And so ends the year 2019. What a cascade of failure and pain it has been. Out came the games to not that much cheer, but lots of hostility and yawning and sneers that made all the publishers recoil in fear and push back the games that looked good to next year, but no amount of pushback would have been enough to lift our poor industry out of the trough of artless exploitational grindathon guff of loot box live service and all of that stuff. But anyway, to close out 2019, the best and the worst and the blandest I've seen. Remnant from the Ashes, unique mix of co-op-focused souls like dungeon crawling over shoulder shooting, could very easily have been a sandwich of flavourless paste between two fibreboard ceiling tiles, but somehow it clicked for me. I just wish these souls likes would take their own advice and get good before the 10 to 15 hour mark. At this time of year, it's important to remember the true meaning of blandness. It's not just for repetitive live service games. If you try to put out an interactive thriller like Man of Medan, populated entirely with characters it's impossible to like, whose actions don't matter a gnat's twat, then maybe blander claws will leave a little turd in your stocking too. It's true what they say, isn't it? You either die spec ops the line, or you live long enough to see yourself become the Call of Duty. It turns out that there was officially about one and a half good games in the Wolfenstein New Order continuity, and all that's left is Wolfenstein Youngblood, which came along, burst into tears, pissed itself, and ruined their attempt at an aristocrat's joke. The RE2 make is RE2 fine, whatever, but I'm troubled by the announcement of the RE3 make. This is a can that can only be kicked down the road so many times, Capcom. Where does it end? Are you gonna end up taking another crack at Resident Evil 6? That'd be like when Europe took another crack at the bubonic plague. As I sort through my list of reviews from the past year, anything I struggle to remember specific things about is sorted straight into the bland pile, and that's most definitely the case with Crackdown 3. It's only in fourth place because I do pretty distinctly remember Terry Crews shouting at something. I forget what. The bleakness of the human condition, perhaps. For a time, it seemed like movie tie-in games were starting to lose their stigma, but then Blair Witch got things back on track with its spooky forest walking simulator of a type that has been overdone since before teenage girls were sacrificing each other to Slender Man. Still, what else can you do with the Blair Witch IP? A game about the rotting carcass of a horse being flogged by Lionsgate executives? You know how sometimes there's a glitch in the Hollywood system and they accidentally make a sci-fi film that's subtle, engaging and intelligent, like Moon or Arrival? That's what Observation made me think of. A bit too linear, but an interesting story uniquely told from the perspective of an AI. One that might make you a little more understanding whenever your computer is taking too long to load PUBG. Apocalypse, motorbikes, love triumphing through adversity, zombie hordes that poo on everything. It's weirdly impressive that Days Gone can have all of these things and still gravitate to total boredom like a compass needle to Magnetic North. I blame the main character. You could dress Deacon St. John in a feather boa and fishnets and take him out seal clubbing and he'll just whinge the whole time about wanting to be in bed by ten. A late entry into the worst games list, late as in the late Shenmue franchise, or indeed the late Sega Dreamcast which died partly because Shenmue killed it. Its poor design and stiff characters made it funny once, but the laughter can't be sustained through its crushingly slow pace, so now it's just bad. If you don't stop giving you Suzuki money, Shenmue will kill again. Especially if you're allergic to shit. I was hesitant to reward Bloodstain just for being Castlevania Symphony of the Night, but it isn't that really. What it is is exactly what I wanted, for Castlevania to stop pissing about and pack all the good ideas it's had into one game, that we can finally call good without qualification. Okay, but can I make the protagonist wear a silly hat? Yes, Koji Garashi, have all the silly hats you want. I will! 
I hate to be predictable, but somehow every fucking year Ubisoft tops its previous record for mindless live service overly monetized sandbox bullshit, this time with Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Apparently its failure caused Ubisoft to push back all its upcoming games to reassess things, meaning that it officially sucked hard enough to suck entertainment value out of the future as well. Left Alive came to us from the place where war games, stealth games and giant robot games meet and apparently all three of those genres were using that spot as a communal latrine. But amid a year of games that were mostly just depressing or disappointing, Left Alive's mismatched gameplay blend and atrocious AI was a rare and special kind of terrible that I call upon whenever something needs to be hastily doused in steaming piss. Yeah, I said I wasn't going to make this my game of the year, but that was before the rest of the year's games plopped out like marbles from the nose of a remedial student. But why qualify it? Disco Elysium is great, because it embodies three things that the games industry desperately needs to embrace. Intelligent writing, originality, and self-abuse. Anthem is mind-numbing live service tosh with fewer original ideas than a BBC daytime television commissioner, but that's not why it's topping my blandest list. The real reason? Because while I was writing down the obvious candidates, Days Gone, Ghost Recon, I suddenly noticed Anthem on the list of 2019 releases and thought, huh, I completely forgot about that. And that, viewers, is what gives you the edge in a mediocrity contest. I hate when publishers take the easy route by making cash-in live service looter games and slapping a familiar name onto it. Consider that for a moment. Contra Rogue Corps was taking the easy route, and they still fucked it up. It's sad that Konami turned evil. It's doubly sad that they're so fucking bad at it. Contra Rogue Corps is boring, lazy, and generally awful, and its attempt to bring across a devil-may-care sense of humour just adds insult to injury. Like being pursued by a monster clown that can't even be bothered to run fast or whip his dick out. Well, I've done my best, worst, and blandest video because I'm as steadfast and reliable as your preferred brand of water-based lubricant, but 2020 is an important year. It'll be a while before we see another year that can so perfectly form the frames of a pair of hilarious novelty spectacles. And it's the start of a new decade. Think of how far we've come in the last ten years. In 2010 I was stuck in a small yellow room complaining about video games and look at me now, I'm a little bit fatter with a slightly less functional dick. Rather than summarise ten years worth of best and worst games lists again, I mean who the fuck remembers Amy, besides whatever poor twat hinge invested in it and presumably now makes their Christmas dinner by peeling old lettuce leaves off the sides of compost bins, I'd like to run down a short list of my most significant games and gaming developments from the last ten years, remembering that significant doesn't necessarily mean good. I mean, a metal straw pushed up my nostril until it penetrates my brain cavity would be a significant part of my day, but it'll mean a poor Yelp review for your milkshake shop. The history of gaming in the 2010s could theoretically be told entirely in open world games. If I were to pick one that represents them all, I'd probably go for Far Cry 3, which was pretty good, but it was where an unpleasant trend was beginning to crystallise, the sandbox game becoming less open-ended cathartic adventure than gigantic three-dimensional checklist of busy work. Its map splattered with identical copy-pasted challenges and collectibles designed mainly to torment the obsessive-compulsive with a primary gameplay loop best summarised as tidying up, where the stories gradually devolved into withered strands of linear tutorial missions that don't even have proper endings because we have to go straight back to the sandbox afterwards to hunt the remaining 500 silver pine cones. But if you want an exemplar, look no further than CD Projekt Red's 2015 hit The Witcher 3, which showed that if you want a compelling open world game, there really is no substitute for putting the fucking work in, imbuing even the least of its side quests with carefully crafted story and character to create a game from which rich narrative bleeds from every pore like the juices of a beautifully cooked roast. Plus you get to see lots of lovely girls' boobies. <laughs> 
the Black Ops series, Yahtzee. Have you been mainlining Worcestershire sauce again? Think about it, viewer. With four games spanning from 2011 to 2018, is there any series that better encapsulates the state of spunk gargle wee wee modern shooters in the 2010s? It's like a barometer for shit. It starts with Black Ops 1 and that Cold War era Manchurian candidate plot that played out like an overexcited 12 year old downing pixie sticks hand over hand while giving his school report on the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was while they were still riding off the high of Modern Warfare 1 when Call of Duty still cared about at least trying to take storytelling seriously. But over the course of Black Ops 2 and 3 we see the gradual process of modern shooters giving less and less of a shit, until they can barely spare a single kernel of undigested corn. So suddenly we're dealing with super terrorists in the future with jetpacks and grapple guns and robot uprisings, until Black Ops 4 comes along, throws up its hands, stops pretending, and ditches the story altogether to drink from the overfilled catheter bag of live service multiplayer. And rip off PUBG as well, just to completely give the game away. Sooner or later shooters always gravitate back to what people actually want from them. Simplicity. Run around, shoot things that aren't you, bounce up and down on their lifeless faces prostate first. If only they'd rung up Doom 2016 they could have found that out for free. For a company that's constantly bringing out the same fiery turtle lizard kidnapping the same rattled old strumpet whose underskirt region must by now resemble a First World War battle trench after a shipment of dodgy corned beef, Nintendo have done a surprising amount of hardware innovation, and the Nintendo Switch is the result of a decade of harsh lessons. First there was the Wii, that underpowered little white square of hardened cum, in retrospect little more than a very inefficient way to bring computer bowling to the nursing homes of the world, then the 3DS which thought the best way to iterate on the winning dual screen formula would be to add a visual gimmick about one step removed from a children's pop-up book. Then the Wii U of course, it's a console, it's it's a portable, it's both, as long as you have a convenient forklift to move the portable part around, and don't intend to go more than 12 yards. So after all that flailing we end up with the Switch, which I have to admit I've come around to. I have an office full of gaming machinery, but the Switch is the only device I keep in my living room to dick around with in my off hours. Because it's easy to set up, has a rich library of curated indies, and I have a pro controller now so I can actually play the fucking things without bending my hands into hideous claws, fit only for stirring pasta water and bringing off female robots. <laughs> But masturbation isn't the only great thing that's best achieved alone. Often the most significant indie games come to us from small, if not solo, developers, probably because they're the ones who can take the big artistic risks without having to worry about other people needing to be paid and saying unhelpful things like, is it strictly necessary that every single enemy be themed around feces? The 2010s brought us such innovative titles as Eric Barone's Stardew Valley, a game courageously asking the question, what if Harvest Moon but called something different? Alright, bad example. Lucas Pope brought us Papers, Please and Return of the Obra Dinn, a superb one-two punch demonstrating the unlikely storytelling power of bureaucracy. And how could we forget get Toby Fox's Undertale, a lovely indulgent scented bubble bath of a game, equal parts nostalgic, hilarious and moving, which I would probably call my game of the decade if I were in a room full of people wearing internet meme t-shirts. But in terms of most culturally significant solo indie game, I'd give that title to 2011's The Binding of Isaac, a game whose deceptive simplicity hides nauseating depth and which is partly responsible for the explosion of indie roguelikes that continues to this day. Yes, Edmund McMillan, I blame you. My first idea for this video was just to list off my last 10 games of the year with some token snarks and then knock off a spaghetti and robots, but then I realised that this would leave Dark Souls unmentioned, since I went from initially dismissing it to hardcore proselytism, like when all the world's insane conservative grandpas discovered social media. Dark Souls is what I'd call my game of the decade if the room was instead full of fat bearded dorks who unironically own swords, but it might also be my most historically significant game, now that every other game seeks to ape it, and the media calls every milk float with a slightly stiff brake pedal the Dark Souls of commercial transportation equipment. At the time it came out, 
franchises like Uncharted were redefining games as cinematic experiences with all the depth and challenge of a paddling pool, half full of children's activity sheets from popular chain restaurants, and it took From Software to remind us that games are games, not just films where you have to keep holding the remote, and they have their own strengths, depth of exploration and discovery, the satisfaction of overcoming meaty challenges. Real games never went away, Dark Souls was saying, they were here all along, waiting around a corner to twat you with a pole axe. Alright, that's enough retrospective videos. A wise man once told me, he who dwell on the past have eyeballs glued to his bum cheeks. Actually, he wasn't that wise. Time to move on and return our gaze to gaming's future, all two or three years of it that remain before we all die in wars and climate disasters, and to do that I'm going to review a game that came out a month ago, Boneworks. Because it's VR, which stands for Very Ruturistic. I've been getting back into VR lately, I still like it as a fundamentally more immersive way to play games, but that's all very well for me to say, from atop my throne of rare Funko Pops. As much as I like playing in VR, I still don't think it will become relevant to the mainstream until A, it doesn't cost so much, B, the computer you need to run it on doesn't cost so much and no longer requires a cooling system bought secondhand from the Soviet nuclear program. C. It can be set up without taking up nine USB ports and a day off, and D. Enough time has passed for everyone to get their sea legs and our futuristic robot vacuum cleaners have mopped up all the sick. Oh yes, and E. A couple of hot apps to make it worth the bother, and Boneworks might be a right step in that direction. VR is still largely in its youthful phase, which will inevitably come back to embarrass it after it leaves high school, meaning that most of its games are still a bit too enamoured with the technology itself and based around short experiences, because they assume the audience is like the ones in the very early days of film who screamed when they thought the big train was about to smash through the wall, and they're afraid of overloading the robot vacuums. Boneworks story campaign is largely about being in a VR world and ooh, future technology is humanity ready, blah de blah disappointingly, but it's still a step forward for VR largely because it fucking has a story campaign of decent length that isn't just six rooms in which we stand poking bananas on a tray until we jizz ourselves. Also I can play it sitting down. VR and motion control games have long had trouble grasping that comfort is a big part of immersion, and I don't like standing around for long periods, especially not with two pounds of electronics strapped to me bonce. Room scale, my seated comfortable ass. do you think we all live in the studio apartments from 90s sitcoms? I was enjoying super hot VR for a while but then I couldn't get through a certain level because they spawned all the guns under me fucking couch. But none of that for bone works, sit down all you want, you lazy cunt. The next notable thing is that you move freely around with the analogue stick rather than teleport place to place, and somehow it doesn't make me throw up. So it must be doing something revolutionary, because it's the kind of game that seems like it should. It's a physics-based game where your in-game body is one of the physics objects, and you can use your in-game hands to climb all over the environment. But if you try to get your in-game hands or head to pass through a solid object, then they won't, and will judder violently as the rules of the virtual world try to meet whatever flappy hands bollocks you're doing in reality halfway. And that's precisely the kind of shit that overworks the robot vacuum cleaner, but no, I seem to be fine. Maybe it's less the game and more me being used to VR now. But I hadn't used my Oculus for like a year before I started Boneworks, mainly because I couldn't be asked to set the cameras up again and needed the USB ports for my powered amphibious bellend scraper. But when I said the game is physics-based, you pictured many things. Hanging ropes and stacking crates and cabbages and kings. Boneworks does have a lot of physics puzzling, i.e. if in doubt stack a crate, but it's physics-based in the sense that Half-Life 2 was physics-based in that once you get bored of all the pulleys and seesaws, you can unwind by admiring the physics with which a goon's head bounces off the pavement after you shoot them with your big gun. And it's the combat where Boneworks shines. It's going for realism, well, as realistic as you can get when you're desperately miming the act of jerking off a spectacularly well-endowed man in the hopes that it will make the intangible fire axe you're holding connect with the nearby enemies. And you know, I didn't think this could ever work. Swing a melee weapon with motion controls, the melee weapon bounces off thing in the game, hands in real life do not bounce off anything, oculus touch controllers make intimate contact with testicles, but somehow it works here. Things do get a bit Jurassic Park trespassery when you're trying to heft something the game says is heavy, which in reality weighs the same as everything else, i.e. bugger all, but it's the guns that really do it for me. You have to realistically load and unload your magazines, realistically pull back on the slides with your actual hands, pop the gun under your real actual armpit to holster it, and then listen to it clatter to the real actual ground half the time because the holster didn't register, but it doesn't matter. When your rifle runs dry as you're holding off attackers so you fling it aside to pull two pistols out of your armpits and John Woo your way to safety, well it'd be hard to explain how satisfying it feels without getting placed on a watch list. I just wish there was more of it. It takes ages to get to the combat heavy parts of the campaign, there's only one kind of enemy that also has guns and it's got the AI 
eye of a startled fish and thinks the best approach after you disappear behind cover is to all cluster around a nearby wall and examine it for clues. And I hope you like semi-automatic pistols and submachine guns, cause that's your lot. No shotguns, no explosives, no Ghostbusters laser. I mean, if you're gonna take influence from Half-Life, I'd have made the Ghostbusters laser chapter one, personally, or possibly even the subtitle. Boneworks even has its own version of Half-Life headcrabs, incidentally. You can catch them out of the air as they pounce, then pull out a sidearm and execute it like you're spritzing a pot plant. That was also fun, just to add another bullet point to my watchlist entry. I know only a small percentage of you use VR, and to everyone else I might as well be telling you how spiffy the handrails are up in this ivory tower, but for what it's worth, Boneworks is the first game in a while to make me think VR might be getting somewhere. It's not there yet. The physics is full of little niggles, as you might expect from a game trying to juggle so much. The major issue with the climbing is only your hands and head can be moved, and your in-game legs just flop around getting in the way of things like two stubborn trails of cum dangling off your mum's chin. But forget all that. Valve announced that new VR Half-Life Alex game, and immediately the expectations sprang almost as high as the stiffies, but on the off chance that anyone working on that gives a half cup of sifted shit for what I'd like to see, then I point to Boneworks and say, do you see this? Take this, give it a more coherent plot that doesn't just boil down to it is a VR game, and methinks doth not protest so much about whether or not it's a tech demo, ease off the contrived physics puzzles and improve the monster and weapon variety, and that'll do for me. Oh, is that all, Yahtzee? Anything else your expensive ivory tower escapism device can do to help you literally blind and deafen yourself to the ongoing horrors of reality that more and more of us are forced to live with, to the utter indifference of the openly corrupt liars and plutocrats that govern our lives, your imperial bloody majesty? Uh, Ghostbusters laser? January is like my parents' marriage, cold, miserably prolonged, and entirely lacking in sexy times. Fucking release schedule like an old leftover pilgrim in a Tupperware box I'd rather be using for something else but no one will eat it means it's back to reviewing the last few games from 2019. What's that you say, tiny pilgrim? Have I tried Pathologic 2? Oh, for fuck's sake, not you as well. Look, I gave it a try, I found it dreary and inscrutable, alright? Maybe I'm just not smart enough to get it like you. Why don't you sod off back to your little intellectual enclave in the fridge and discuss the merits of Cartesian dualism with the I can't believe it's not butter while I drag my Neolithic brow over to the Epic Store to play a game about smashing toy robots together. I am not getting defensive! Do you want to fight? Anyway, MechWarrior 5 Mercenaries is set in 3015 during the final decade of the Third Succession War. I don't know what the fuck that means, I just lifted it off Wikipedia. I might as well have just been blowing raspberries for that entire sentence. To its credit though, the plot of MechWobbler 5 doesn't seem to require much background lore. We play as Generico McWhite Dude, who came straight from the discount protagonist shop's range of own brand products, just as good as the top names but without all the expensive personality, who is a rookie at a mercenary outfit being trained in the use of war mechs by his dad, who I guess gave him the job because he was sick of him lounging around in his very generically decorated bedroom, but then evil mercs come and smash up the place so we become head of the company ahead of several vastly more qualified people because it's who you know. The game then mech wobbles between ground level mech combat missions and management mechanics in which we make repairs, hire pilots, refill the pick and mix dispensers, move around the cosmos and pick our next combat mission. I'll be honest with you, Mech's Wobbly 5 didn't hold my interest for very long, because both its gameplay modes made me think the same thing. This probably really appeals to someone, and they probably think of it how they hope other people think of them, that you just have to get past the incredible awkwardness. As you might expect from mechers, the actual gameplay is like an FPS had a horribly deformed baby with vehicle combat that's inferior to both, so holding forward makes you accelerate rather than just walk, and you don't turn towards what you're aiming at, so my merry strafing runs would usually end with me lurching straight into a mountain. It takes some getting used to, and I'm not sure I want to get used to it, as I'd have no use for the skills elsewhere in life, unless for whatever reason I find myself needing to use a potter's wheel that's been mounted to the top of a wonky supermarket trolley. Plus, there's something horribly wrong with the friendly NPC AI. I go to all the trouble of hiring these dudes and giving them mecha to pilot, and there doesn't seem to be any way to tell them not to stand in the place where the missiles are going, so the repairs after every mission cost me an arm and a leg, in that he literally got his arm and his leg blown off. One time, dumb twat wouldn't even move 
until I lasered him in the face to wake him up. And that's not going to look good on the employee review, is it? How I had to mess up my nice clean laser with his face and now it's caught a bad case of stupid. I'd like to take a longer look at the management mechanics and their interface, but I can't because my eyes keep falling asleep when I try. The Battlemech loadout interface is all columns and boxes and useless information like a spreadsheet submitted as evidence in a fraud case in the hope of boring the jury to death. And then you find it's mostly pointless to fuck around with because the weapons already on your mechs by default are usually better than the ones you find, and in any case your weapon slots are all fussy little bitches that will only consent to holding weapons of a specific type and specific size that were manufactured after 1980 in a cruelty-free facility. As I said, Sex Wiggles 5 is the sort of thing that would probably really appeal to someone, just nobody I'd relish taking a long car journey with. So let's move on to the other game I played on the Epic Store this week, Wattam. Or to give it its full title, what a massive waste of time. No, bad Yahtzee. Watam is the new game by Keita Takahashi, dude who made the excellent Katamari Damacy, which you'd think would recommend him, but he followed up Katamari with a game called Nobby Nobby Boy, which was less game than pissing about simulator, and between that and Watam, it's now clear to me that Katamari Damacy was a freak incident, when Keita Takahashi and the concept of gameplay briefly aligned with each other before their opposing trajectories sent them both flying away into space. Watam begins with us controlling a dude similar to, but assuredly legally distinct from, a Mr. Man character, who's alone and sad in an empty plane but quickly alleviates his loneliness by befriending a nearby rock, but Mr. Rock only possesses rudimentary limbs and a face and no sex organs, so Mr. Man must continue befriending random stuff he finds, until by the end of the game you preside over a little world full of inanimate objects with arms and legs and you can control any of them you want, and you can make them all join hands and dance Ring a Rosie while making baby noises, and then eventually you blink and wonder what the fuck happened to your life. It might sound like another pissing about simulator, but it does have a story and a progression path. You unlock more areas and characters by solving puzzles. Now video games have been mistreating the word puzzle for many years, ever since Quake called it a puzzle whenever there was a door that had two buttons to open it instead of one, and the puzzles in Watam mostly run thusly. Character A wants to meet character B, game literally points you to character B, bring character B over, giggles and cake ensue. If that's a puzzle, then taking fists up the arse for men in truck stop bathrooms is being happily married. Yate, are you playing a baby game for Rickle Kiddies and complaining it's too easy? Blimey, Pathologic 2 brought out all your insecurities, didn't it? Shut up! In this age of adult colouring books and blockbuster movies based on 90s toy commercials, it's hard to say what is and isn't for kids anymore, and besides, there's a slightly bizarre edge to Watam that gives one pause for thought. See, some of the characters have special abilities. Mr. Mouth has the ability to eat other characters, and having done so, he can then poo them out, thankfully without the assistance of Mr. Lower Intestine, and those characters will then be poos, little happy poos with arms and legs dancing about and having fun because they weren't sure they were into the whole being digested lark, but now they're generally optimistic about their new identity. There's even a puzzle where one of the poos sits on top of a waffle cone and pretends to be ice cream to prank someone, and I wouldn't want my kids latching onto the prank potential of coprophagia. Watam's blurb states that it's a game about friendship, but I don't agree that it is. What this game is really saying is that the only way to be accepted by society and your peers is to blindly follow instructions, and that if someone chews you up and shits you out, you should just be grateful for the attention. So apparently it's a metaphor for your first job after leaving college. I hate when people say the human race is destroying the planet. Bitch, the human race can't even invent a permanent system of government that doesn't eventually lead to societal collapse. What the fuck do you think we could possibly do to worry a giant billion-year-old rock? No, the only thing the human race is destroying is the human race. And life on Earth goes on regardless. Oh sure, there are a lot of homeless koalas in the world right now thanks to climate change, but I'm sure the cockroaches and the urban foxes will remember us all quite fondly when they're ruling over the remnants of our cities. Climate change reversal. Don't do it for the forest or the little hoppy bunnies. Do it so you can keep sitting on your fat ass stuffing sustainably sourced Pringles into that slime-covered catcher's mitt you call a face. Feel free to use that slogan uncredited, ecological groups. What was I talking about? Oh yeah. In the spirit of fucking the planet, here's a game based around the common if slightly wishful sci-fi notion of going to a whole other planet 
planet and getting a do-over on the planet fucking. Journey to the fucking, I mean savage planet. I know I've said the word planet so many times I sound like a stuttering middle manager trying to delegate work outings. Journey to the Cabbage Punnet's premise is that you are a faceless adventurer who has been dispatched to an uninhabited planet by the corporation that presides over a thoroughly fucked Earth in the hope of finding a new home for humanity, only to find it slightly less uninhabited than previously thought. I say faceless, you do get to pick your face early in the game from several options, and with my usual devil-may-care sense of humour I chose the picture of a dog, and then had to spend the entire game having to listen to canine growls and whines every time my character jumped or got hit. Oh, I see how it is. This game thinks its sense of humour can out-devil-may-care mine, does it? Well, only one of us gets the last word, bitch, and my last word is cunt burlap. I think it's fair to say this game shoots for balls out comedy game. It's the scary movie to the outer world scream. Precisely the same satire, but ten squillion times less subtle. I could convince myself it's a decently funny game if I hung around my home base the whole time watching the parody adverts from that lovable, wacky old dystopian future Earth, but sooner or later I'd have to leave the capsule and let it all fall apart, because the rest of the humour is in the things your AI helper voice says and writes in your journal, which has a very bad case of insert a sarcastic quip into every fucking line regardless of how tortured it comes across so an enemy description like a giant frog that spits lasers becomes a giant frog that spits lasers, ooh that's a new one, which he could have added to the description of literally anything and called it a quip and been just as much of a liar, itis. And it's doubly annoying when I have to take a sample of a giant laser frog as part of a busy work quest that I have to do to unlock the next round of gear upgrades, and the description in the bestiary just wants to fucking quip at me rather than tell me something useful like where the fucking things usually hang out. But we're moving so fast, I haven't even said what kind of game it is yet, or rather what kinds. Journey to the Savage Garden is one of those games in the vein of Jedi Fallen Order, i.e. a game that rips off so many other games that it almost comes back around to being original. I already mentioned Outer Worlds, but there's also a big dollop of No Man's Sky on here, on top of the relatively conservative dollop of it that Outer Worlds already had. At its core it plays like the Metroid Prime-esque ability-gated Metroidvania crossed with the hunting and crafting element of, say, Subnautica. And this is where the mechanics have their biggest car crash, because when we find the Pig Viagra upgrade that allows us to explore all the areas that can only be reached by grappling onto the extruding stiffies of pigs, we can't actually start doing that until we go back to our ship and craft the upgrade, which is a bit of a grinding of gears from a flow perspective because the place where you found the upgrade might be thick with sexually engorged boars, all ripe for the molesting. But you still gotta go back to the starting location first, and this is assuming you have the crafting materials. If you don't have the carbon it's back to massacring starting enemies, until you realise that starting enemies drop more carbon if you feed them and wait for them to poo it out, and that's when you find yourself thinking, I am a seasoned adventurer! Why am I back in the fucking starting area, waiting to harvest a turd from a spherical owl so that I can go fluff a bunch of pigs? I guess that's a point for Journey to the Sausage Buffet in the Devil May Care Sense of Humour contest, but it's still not much fun. There isn't actually a Pig Viagra upgrade, I made that up. Sorry if I accidentally sold you on the game there. What you do get is utterly bog standard Metroid Prime power-ups. Grapple beam, space jump, space jump but twice, space jump but very high this time, but without Metroid Prime's great level design. The map is not so much an intricate sprawl of paths as a great big undisciplined cow pat of areas and secret pickups, which probably explains why it feels it can do without a map. I mean there's so much vertical traversal, if you need a map just get onto a higher ledge and look down, but it means that when you're in the late collectathon stage and blew all your low level enemy turds on one of the secret detecting upgrades, all you have to go on is that the item is in yonder direction, when it might be at the end of a cave, whose entrance is actually on the other side of the island, guarded by a sequence of six erect pig knobs and a swollen horse vagina. Again, I made that up, sorry to disappoint. I should stress that I don't hate the game. Oh don't worry Yahtzee, that was totally coming across with all your swearing and references to farm animal genitals. It's a relatively smooth ride most of the time, at least somewhat funny, and importantly it remembers that a game's comedy should lie in more than just the dialogue. When you're done collecting spherical owl poo, you can punt them into the air and skeet shoot them with your one slightly lame gun. The things I'm complaining about are annoying bottlenecks that keep interrupting the ride, the crafting grinds, the slightly samey and frustrating boss fights, locking certain upgrades behind arbitrary achievements so suddenly I'm required to kill a group of four enemies with a single grenade if I ever want my slightly lame gun to do more damage than a dementia-riddled grandma spitting frozen peas after a particularly disastrous cooking attempt. But I think the real problem with Journey to the Damage 
Janet, is a recurring sense of there just not being enough. It takes ideas from a lot of games but doesn't take enough from any single one to stand out in any area. It doesn't have enough weapons or monster variety to focus on combat, but the world isn't interesting enough to lean on exploration either. It's Subnautica without the wonder, it's Grow Home without the elegance. And while quirky humour in a game like A Hat in Time can make one forgive its jankiness and still quite amazingly shitty title, Savage to the Journeyman Project isn't quite funny, unique or charming enough to pull that off either. And just to raise one final point, Cunt Burlap. I know it's not been very long since my last dispatch from the VR Ivory Tower, or IVRE Tower, or even something else that's not as crap, but A, it is still January at time of writing, the Siberian gulag of release months, B, if I'm serious about VR being good and the way forward for immersive gaming, and I should stress I do genuinely think that, people tell me they often can't tell if I'm being sarcastic because I have what's medically known as resting bitch voice, then like the coronavirus we'd all better get used to hearing about it, and C, after Boneworks was a VR game that impressed me by feeling like a game game, rather than a heavily cut down VR experience that once the tech stops being novel will feel akin to holding a press conference to show off a lovely sparkly giraffe you made out of tinfoil, here comes another game game that manages to improve upon it, switched to ominous tone of voice in some areas, meaningful look to camera back to normal voice, The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners, another bloody spin-off from The Walking Dead, that shit spun off more times than a poorly secured fan belt. Maybe it would be simpler to just declare that every zombie property is a Walking Dead spin-off, that way we can put all the zombie apocalypse crap into one convenient basket that we can then drop kick off a pier at our leisure. But I digress, the first area in which The Walking Dead baits and switches exceeds Boneworks is story because it actually fucking has one. The city of New Orleans has been classically zombie apocalypsed and catastrophically flooded as well, although apparently that was unrelated, that was just, you know, Tuesday. You are a famous wandering scavenger known as The Tourist, so this must be some ways into the zombie apocalypse, at a point when enough survivors can hang around being bored for long enough that they've got time to go on the social media that no longer exists and there can be such a thing as a famous scavenger, and everyone gossips about who they've shot and what gas stations they've cleaned out for bog roll and donuts this week. You've come in search of a buried treasure called The Reserve, a bunker full of all the bog roll and donuts one could ever need but your search for it is complicated by the city being split between two factions, the Tower, an organised community that rules with an iron fist and want to carefully ration the donuts, and the Reclaimed, a coalition of free-spirited exiles who want to throw all the bog roll over the trees in the Tower's front garden. So once again it's fascists versus nutters. Seems like every time we have to worry about picking a faction to side with in a Choices Matter game it boils down to fascists versus nutters, and this is never as complicated an issue as these games seem to think. Yes, it's nice to have some laws written down when Johnny Fuckface eats everyone else's pie rations, but it is equally nice to not enslave people. This is not a difficult middle ground to reach, just snap the elastic band on your wrist every time you feel like enslaving someone. I wouldn't worry too much about the factions, in practical terms they're identical, they take over a building or area, if you stand in the threshold they'll sling insults like teenagers from a car window, advance one inch and they mark you for death. Then run away, stealth around, murder them all, hand out Werther's originals, it doesn't seem to matter in the long run, they won't remember next time, and then at the very end of the game you just pull whatever levers you fancy on the various ending Tron 3000s, and then close your eyes tight and imagine a wonderful appropriate ending for the faction story because the game won't fucking show you on, you're more on the fringe of the faction plot than involved in it, I suspect because every time you're in a room with an important character there's a risk you'll get bored and stick a screwdriver up their nose, possibly after they insist on restarting the conversation from scratch again because you drifted more than 10 centimetres away to pick up some salad tongs, which might as well bring us to the combat. It's similar to Boneworks, but the physics based melee combat is a lot better as your knives and nail covered baseball bats embed themselves in the enemy with a sound like a very large dog stepping in a bowl of freshly prepared breakfast cereal, whereas in Boneworks you don't so much strike enemies as very aggressively wipe them with things. Also, there's that better of a variety of guns I was asking for, including shotguns and revolvers and explosives, but somehow they don't have the same satisfying feel. It's the little things. It's the sound. It's the slides being a bit more finicky. It's the way ammunition doesn't go into the gun so much as disappear the moment it's vaguely near it. Gun tour accepts your sacrifice. You are granted a boon of six more dead cunts. Not that Walking Dead Bangers and Mash needs much gun variety, considering every enemy dies from a single headshot from the starting pistol. Even if you don't trust your aim, you can easily grab a zombie's forehead and hold him there while you put the gun to his chin, stab him in the eye 
guy writes swear words on his face and felt tip, whatever you want, he can't do shit. And the zombies are rarely in large enough swarms to require a change of strategy. Guns are better saved for humans, but you're supposed to try to stealth around them, and in any case you still don't really need more than the starting pistol, because a two-handed weapon is an ungainly elephant's knob wobbling around on your arm, knocking over expensive vases while you're staggering around trying to load shells into the thing under enemy fire. And meanwhile the pistols are bingo bango quick draw finger guns of death, so if you're finished adding faction plot to the list of things that aren't worth worrying about, why don't you stick weapon upgrades on there as well? Bit of a shame actually, because they're what the whole fucking game is based around. The main reason you leave your wank den every day and explore one of the regions of New Orleans is to loot another samey building for crafting materials and the rather anomalously large quantity of barbecue lighters that lie around, in order to upgrade your equipment workbenches and make better stuff that you mostly don't need. You spend most of your time creeping around dark rooms, opening cupboard after cupboard, holding random garbage up to your shoulder like a sailor feeding his parrot and hoping it'll actually go into your backpack this time and not dribble all down your shoulder like a squirt of crackery bird shit. In summary, it'd be nice if this game based largely around prepping had something worth prepping for. It's almost more fun to go in as unprepped as possible, just pick up the nearest beer bottle when there's a zombie in the way, and give him the old Newcastle stigmatism. Because after I finished the final level, seen my unsatisfying ending and gone into post-credits mode, I looked over the arsenal of weapons I'd assembled and barely used, and wondered if there had been a point to any of it. I decided then to load up all my weapons, go out into the city, and finally see what happens if you stay out past the time limit when the bells ring and all the zombies allegedly go bananas. So I did that, and this really dramatic music started playing, some angry zombies shambled over and I shot them all in the head. Then I listened to the dramatic music for a bit, then I got bored and went home. It was like working security at a disappointing Pink Floyd concert. Way back in the good old days, when a loot box was just where Renaissance Fair performers stored their musical instruments, we used to debate over whether video games were an art form. These days it's generally agreed that they are, albeit in the sense that architecture is an art form, you know, your average AAA game is like a newly constructed skyscraper, imposing, functional and full of people I need to murder. But there aren't many games that are akin to the experience of, say, walking around an art museum, of slowly gliding through silent, mostly empty rooms, standing in front of an installation and inspecting it with a finger to your chin as you think to yourself, hmm, I am bored out of my fucking skull. I hope that attractive cloakroom attendant is watching and thinking what a cool and sexy intellectual I must be because I would desperately rather be playing Crash Bandicoot. But now that experience has been faithfully recreated by Kentucky Route Zero, an episodic game that recently concluded with its fifth chapter. Surprised to see someone still doing the episodic game thing since Telltale Games choked to death on its own officially licensed farts, but this one started in 2013 so I guess that lines up. This also means that the game took longer to finish than the Second World War, and had it been any more boring might have had a similar body count. Kentucky Route Zero might be best classified as a point-and-click adventure, although adventure implies things like puzzles and challenge and adversity, so we might more accurately use the phrase point-and-click sequence. Your interactivity is limited to dialogue choices that ultimately don't change much and moving around to get to the next one, so not a lot of gameplay to work with, but I have a job to do, so by Jacob's Cream Crackers I'm going to damn well try to whine about it. I wouldn't recommend using a controller like I did, because the arty cameras and clashing of gears between 2D and 3D 3D movement mean that the direction you move in when you press the analogue stick is a matter left to the whims of fate. Oh come on Yahtzee, clearly this game is a project created by artists with a specific vision rather than one of you video game insider types who want to put everything in classifiable boxes. You stopping in here demanding intuitive movement and boss fights is like marching into a high class restaurant and loudly demanding to know where the children's ball pit is. Fine. In Kentucky Route Zero you play Conway, an ageing truck driver in an ageing truck on a job to deliver antiques from a shop that's about to close down. Is that enough elements establishing the theme of entropy yet, viewers? What if we also give the truck driver a bad leg, and a t-shirt with everything fucking dies on the front in big letters. Struggling to find an address that doesn't seem to exist, Conway is directed by various mysterious figures to the Route Zero, a mysterious world of underground tunnels and secret backroads where dwelleth a forgotten vein of middle America. What follows is a melancholy odyssey reminiscent of Alice in Wonderland if it were directed by David Lynch and if all the talking doorknobs and shit were replaced with struggling small business owners, passively trying to muddle along in a world that is leaving them behind as an insidious all-pervading company slowly eats their support out from under them, a company that I suspect might 
might be a metaphor for death. That's going off the fact that it appears to be entirely staffed with skeletons, but I'm no literary analyst. Maybe it's a metaphor for how difficult it is to find a good osteopath these days. Conway himself takes a back seat as the game becomes a sequence of introductions to new characters and the little islands in the darkness that are the glimpses into their lives. Considering how long it's taken for all the episodes to come out, one might reasonably wonder what was taking so long, because I can list a few things they certainly didn't need much time for. Gameplay design, voice acting, probably not graphics either, considering that a lot of it consists of stark gradients against blackness and the characters are simple faceless figures that look like they could be recreated by a bored schoolboy artfully folding his sandwich wrappers. No, I think the writing is where the time went, and in fairness there's a hell of a lot of it. Conway's party gradually fills up with quirky characters, a TV repair woman, an android synth pop duo, a little boy who's best friends with a giant eagle and constantly wears a suit for no established reason, possibly to avoid being mistaken for a tasty worm, and they all have unique personalities, viewpoints and interactions with the many unique individuals they meet on their journey, although some of those blur together a bit. In the fourth chapter you're all on a boat and suddenly there's this theremin player on the squad, and I honestly couldn't remember if she'd been properly introduced or just turned up in the background like mildew in the shower. And then chapter 5 introduces a whole town full of new characters and the already faint sliver of shit that I currently give for these people's lives has to be divided even further and nobody's getting a full dingleberry. I admire Kentucky Route Zero more than I like it. I admire the thoughtful writing and the creativity behind its ideas. I also admire people who know how to survive in the wild by chewing tree bark for nutrients but I wouldn't consider it a recommendation of the lifestyle. And I have trouble recommending any game that puts me to fucking sleep. I suppose there's no hope of getting out of this without sounding like a jaded video game insider with an attention span so worn down to the nub I can barely focus long enough to navigate the straw on my Capri Sun into my drooling mouth. But Kentucky Route Zero wouldn't even let me into the third chapter until I watched an entire three-act play. Not a fun play, like that one with the horse where Harry Potter gets his knob out, a pretentious student play, where three characters sit unmoving in a diner verbally skating around the fucking point for 20 minutes. It would even fucking pause if I wasn't directing the camera at whoever's turn it was to speak, ensuring there was no escape, and forcing me to become an instrument of my own torment, the way my mum used to glue thumbtacks to the palms of my hands before I went to bed. Didn't fucking stop me mum, just means I get awkward stiffies when I go to Office Max now. I can't help comparing Kentucky Route Zero to another game I tried this week, a free demo on Steam called Starfetcher's Pilot. A very amateurish looking side-on hack and slash with art that looks like MS Paint stepped on a turd and skidded through a French window, but with a deliberate punk sensibility and humour that brought to mind Pseudo-5-1's best works, and a unique core mechanic based around clicking and dragging the end of your sword with the mouse that's more like colouring in than combat, but has the interesting raw experimental feel of, say, sexy hiking. All in all it was a million times less polished and a million times more interesting. And you know what, if Starfetch had tried to make a point about the disenfranchisement of America's forgotten underclass, which it arguably does, I'd be a lot more likely to listen. Call me a philistine, but gameplay and challenge can actually be a useful tool for pacing a story, and going without is like a film going without proper editing, or getting thrown out of Office Max before you can climax over the tipex. Zombie Army 4 Dead War, blimey that slightly redundant title just paints the whole picture doesn't it, tells you everything you need to know. Firstly that you're going to be fighting an army of zombies, and secondly that the developers have absolutely no fucking ambition whatsoever. Well that's not fair, Rebellion is a mid-range developer that occasionally crop up on my radar, dropping games like Never Dead and Shellshock 2, the gaming equivalent of hernias, painful, miserable and showing them to people is a good way to lose friends. But as a company they've been plodding along since 1992 so I have a weird respect for them, the way I'd respect someone who keeps trying to change the light bulb in a ceiling fan demonstration room. Their ship kinda came in with the Sniper Elite franchise which has been distinctly dominating their release list since 2012, but if there's one thing that's more easy and pandering than the Second World War, the last war with a solid face and heel that didn't break kayfabe, it's those motherfucking zombies. So they made a zombie mode, because Call of Duty did it and if Call of Duty jumped off a bridge then, well firstly Battlefield would jump too and then Rebellion would follow after about five years of staring vacantly into space. And that zombie mod inevitably proved popular because zombies are the one villain less complicated than Nazis. There may have been one or two Nazis who wondered if they were entirely on the right side of history as they harvested gold teeth from the mass graves of their victims whose violent murder would be a half ounce less satisfying. But zombies, you're practically doing them a favour as you grit the pavement with their gallstones. And so Zombie Army is now standalone and has quietly dropped the Sniper Elite part, just as Raving Rabbids ditched Rayman and George Michael ditched whoever
whoever he ditched. So it's an alternative World War II where the Nazis resorted to necromantic black magic, which must have brought on a fresh round of are we the baddies pontificating on the infantry's part, but mercifully they were all swiftly too zombified to care. Europe is now mostly zombie infested wasteland and it's up to you and three of your chums to take back the 20 or 30 square feet of remaining habitable land by fighting off a coordinated assault of the undead, destroying a few towers from hell, and killing zombie Hitler or something else entirely fucking obvious. So this game plays precisely like what it is, a zombie mod for a World War II shooter, except it's the whole game. You can see where the paint's flaking off and it's still sniper elite underneath, mainly from the focus on sniping, obviously, despite precision striking not making much sense as a core mechanic in a zombie horde game, akin to trying to eat Cheerios with a kebab skewer. And yet there's still a bit in the tutorial where you pick zombies off a distant radio mast and it's about the last time you need to shoot anything at that kind of range. Also every now and again a rifle kill will get tarted up in that trademark sniper elite fashion, with a slow motion kill cam so you can relish the way your bullet turned a zombie's skull into cheeseburger, and the guts of his nearby friend into a side of curly fries. But again this is something that works a hell of a lot better in a game about precision sniping, because it's paying off the process of finding your target and picking the perfect moment to fire after having followed him around for ten minutes learning his routine, which corner shop he likes going to, what hopes and dreams he'd have for the future if you weren't about to make them all blast out of his ear like a truly stomach-turning piece of scat porn, you don't get quite the same effect when it's just randomly happening for Zombie 19 of 36. They don't have many hopes or dreams beyond making it across the room without their feet snapping off. Also, half the items that go in your grenade slots are mines. Useful as mines might be to a sniper trying to defend their position against an encroaching zombie horde, all they are is very inefficient grenades that you have to lay and run away from like a barnyard hen trying to avoid parental responsibility. Look, I'm not saying this can't be a sniping game if you want it to be, there are plenty of very far away zombies posing you absolutely no threat you can go to town on if you want, but there's no reason to be Mr. Stealthy Sniper. The zombies aren't going to sound the zombie alarm and bring down the zombie popo. Even if they did, this is the slow moving kind of zombie that doesn't carry guns, so unless the fucking Riddler has tied your accuracy rating to a question mark pattern bomb strapped to your dick, I'm not seeing much incentive to not just grab a Tommy gun and spray like the most insecure dude at the Bukaki shoot. I say they don't carry guns, there are the now inevitable special zombies that the game saves for Christmas and birthdays, including a big burly lad with a minigun, but he tanks hits like a pair of leather buttocks, so if you try to snipe him he'll just saunter up to your position and jam each barrel of his minigun into a different facial orifice. On the subject of special zombies, another game that might seriously alter Zombie Army 4's future plans were it to jump off a bridge one day is Left 4 Dead, which it's structured very similar to, separated into acts divided by safe rooms, lots of set pieces based around defending a spot, carrying a thing, or carrying a thing to a spot you need to defend, and of course the co-op focus that means that solo mode is this weird alternate universe where all the NPCs are constantly blind drunk and keep talking to you like you're more than one person. There's one level on a boat with mounted guns where you keep sailing past areas full of zombies but there's no way for the zombies to get to you, so I think it was where you're supposed to be competing with the other players for points, but I'm as friendless as ever so I just stood around picking my nose for five minutes. Yahtzee, sorry to interrupt, but why are you even covering this game with less new ideas than the ceremony planning committee at the Academy Awards? Is it that you are now officially an epic store shill? First of all, it's on consoles as well, and second of all, fuck you for derailing the comments again. But the point is, if you can't do anything new, you'd better fucking make sure you do everything right. And you know what, Zombie Army 4 isn't unfun. Down on the ground with the primary loop, the shooting feels nice and the head explosions have the right kick, so if you are in the mood for a mindless shooter it will certainly provide. Rebellion as a developer seemed to be permanently stuck about five to ten years behind the rest of the industry, but you know, it was nice five to ten years ago. There were some fun games, not so much fucking crafting. So here's the guns, here's a token upgrade system you might as well ignore, let's have a party. But it is a shame to see Rebellion being so risk averse, this kind of thing's basically all they make now. They did a new IP a year or so back called Strange Brigade that had a bit more imagination, but at the end of the day was just League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for dead. I suppose they need to bring in the Benjamins, but they used to have some experimental spirit. I mean, Never Dead had an interesting core idea, it was just executed worse than Colonel Gaddafi.
Hey kids, are you making a fantasy game but are having trouble coming up with a title? Try this simple trick. Take a word from word list A and one from word list B, stick of or of the in between the two, and you're ready to go. If you're really advanced, smash together the names of your two favourite pieces of IKEA furniture and stick that on the front with a colon on the end. What the fuck is Walson? Is it the protagonist, the country that the game happens in, the name of the medication your character gets prescribed for his chronic pauldron chafing? Who fucking cares? Maybe it's what the dude on the cover art calls his beard. Seems like the sort of beard that has its own name and postcode. Anyway, Walson Beards of Mayhem is a top-down Diablo-esque PCRPG and apparently is supposed to have some kind of multiplayer component, but the moment it came off early access it was like when the waitress puts the dinosaur steak on Fred Flintstone's car and it immediately falls over and the wheels fly off. This will certainly date the review if they manage to fix it, but Walton Issues of Connection only successfully got me online once, and could only keep it up for half a tutorial mission before abruptly pulling me out and exhaustedly swearing that this has never happened to them before. But when it did connect it wouldn't let me use the character I'd spent three hours levelling in the offline mode and I was buggered if I was letting that go to waste, so fuck it. Here is my review of recent offline single player game, Walton lungs of mayonnaise. You are a warrior in the kind of po-faced dark fantasy world whose attempt at a grim atmosphere of perpetual war and seriousness is massively let down by the character design. I mean look at this fucking dude again, why has he got castle greyskull playsets glued to his shoulder pads? Does he keep up his troops morale with his variety act, the human pick and mix dispenser? What happens when he needs to scratch his ass? do they need to erect scaffolding? Don't worry, this isn't you. You are a blisteringly generic person created in an extremely token character creator where the face options only have four extremely similar flavours of plain, like the world's worst frozen yoghurt shop. Most of the shoulder pads your character is permitted to wear in-game are fairly sensible and would still permit you to enter buildings with the revolving doors, this character is your mentor, which does make for some silly moments when you have to interact with them and your comparatively soberly dressed avatar appears to be trying to chat up a treehouse village. The game's a mashup of bad costume design choices because there's also a main female character in skin-tight armour with a neckline that goes down to her kneecaps. You're an orphan who's raised to be part of a fanatical Puritan army dedicated to fighting demons and witchcraft, but during a battle with a demon you suddenly turn into a giant glowing man with huge glowing wings and a halo and holy armour who proceeds to kick the shit out of the demon, and all your Puritan friends immediately draw the obvious conclusion that you must also be a demon. Not the sharpest claymores in the armoury, these lads. Now sporting mysterious witchcraft powers that you don't fancy explaining at your next quarterly review, you are cast out and throw in your lot with a convenient nearby city-state who are having the usual cult and bandit problems, and your former army keeps showing up to call you a heretic and embarrass you in front of your new friends. Honestly, I had trouble keeping track of the plot, because everything that happens is just another excuse to traipse through a sequence of sprawling dungeon floors full of little throngs of mobs in the traditional Diablo fashion, now and again fast travelling back to the town store in a great big garbage truck full of unwanted weapon drops, so I was playing most of it kind of zoned out and the plot was just something that occasionally shook me awake like a boring maths teacher suddenly popping out a tit. As I said, it's a PC RPG, and it's not fucking around with that. I did tokenly try to use my controller, but all it did was make the cursor move around and none of the buttons worked, as if the game was saying, ooh look at that shiny whiny cursor you're moving around all by yourself with your magic lump of colourful Fisher Price plastic. Do let us know when your daddy gets home so we can play the real game with all the other grown-ups. Yes, console peasants to the tradesman's entrance please, we want to hear that mouse clicking like a pistol shrimp taking a course on native African languages. So it's a click on the enemy to fight the enemy sort of affair, and you have to be very exact with your clicks, because if you miss the hitbox your dude will interpret that to mean that you want him to run right up to the hostile foe and lean in for a snog, which is very annoying for a ranged character, especially when you're trying to fight those fucking tiny bats and putting a strong contrast between what's an enemy and what's an unmopped floor would I guess have gone against the artist's vision of a dark fantasy world where housekeeping doesn't come around very much. But eventually I realised you can hold down control and your dude will park his bum down and attack where you click, which helped with that problem, annoying as it was to have to keep it held down with my pinky while casting spells with the number keys, but in a way I resent the game for having a simple solution to my gripe. It meant the game could go back to being a perfectly smooth production line. Advance, kill things, harvest equipment, go back to town to flog it for more money you have no fucking use for, because the best equipment plops out of the bodies of dying enemies, counterintuitively. I mean you'd think some of it would need a wet wipe first. The big boast of Walson corduroy trousers is that it doesn't have a character class, it's just a big undisciplined splatter of stats, skills and passive upgrades that let you build whatever custom class you like. Within reason. I mean really it's a choice between slow melee weapons, fast melee 
melee weapons or ranged. It's not like you can be a pastry chef and win an enemy round with your wonderful profiteroles. I went for a magic and ranged weapon focus, because every enemy can attack you close up, but not every enemy can attack you from a distance, so that's just logic, that is. Soon I fell into a routine, freezing enemies with ice spells and backing up to zap their butts off, which worked well, too well really. There was this one spell called Annihilation that projectile vomits a fucking wall of death, which must have been overlooked by the balance monkeys, because it used significantly less mana than my poxy starting fireballs that can just about worry a sloth doused in gasoline. So I was merrily cheesing my way through the game when the difficulty curve suddenly brick-walled my ass at a certain boss fight, largely because my freezy spell didn't work on the bastard, so that set my whole routine out of whack, and I had to rely on the fucking stupid dodge mechanic where your dodge stamina is tucked away in a tiny, barely noticeable part of the interface, and if you don't have any, your character just stands there daydreaming about pencils as the enemy carves up your buttocks like birthday cake. But I knuckled down and eventually managed to get through the second stage of the boss. Unfortunately, it was a three-stage boss. When his health inexplicably came back a second time and the game looked at my exhausted ass and went, what now, Mayor McCheese? I decided that was enough for me, thanks. Walson, bored of playing as a single-player experience is like working a data entry job where your outbox is linked to a pressure switch that will let some undetermined point set fire to your armpits. It prompts little beyond boredom and complains to the temp agency. Yatsu, do you have dreams? Of course I have dreams. I dream of the day you stop breaking into my house to ask me stupid questions. I dream of finding a commercial grade air freshener that covers the smell from the basement. No, I mean, do you have dreams on the PS4? The new game, well, game tangent creativity experience by the people who made Little Big Planet, who appear to be trying to pull off the same scam where they get young creatives to pay to make their content for them. Dreams is the next logical step from Little Big Planet in that instead of just making levels for a slightly twee platformer, you can now make entire slightly twee games from the ground up with a suite of inbuilt art animation and coding tools. I assume people have been asking me to cover this thing partly because I'm an established hobbyist game designer, currently doing a side series in which I pledge to make 12 games in 12 months, the way a small child goes, hey everyone look at me, just before they crack themselves in the eye with a rock, but partly I suspect because a lot of people started up Dreams, watched the intro sequence, and then said, someone really needs to piss all over this. So that's what I'm going to do, Media Molecule, I'm going to piss all over your dreams. And if you called it that to make me feel bad about pissing all over it, then you obviously don't know me very well. The intro and tutorial dialogue has the tone of a kindergarten teacher handing out gold stars to everyone for all being equally special. Welcome to a magical universe of your very own, where you can realise your wildest imaginings as long as they're slightly twee. Bitch, I can realise my wildest imaginings with a blank wall and a handful of shit. You didn't invent creativity. The invention of creativity occurred in 1988 when Robert Zemeckis directed Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and you don't look much like Robert Zemeckis. The next step in our creativity journey is to play the example game, a game about a broody jazz musician going through a symbolic odyssey of self-doubt after someone mildly criticises him, which makes me think he should hang out with Kay from Sea of Solitude so they can have fun getting the fuck over themselves together. But because it's a showcase it has to contrivedly switch between noir adventure and cartoon platformer and various other set pieces and musical numbers, which makes it a bit of a tonal dog's breakfast, especially when the protagonist uses the word shit at one point, which I took special note of because it was quite a lurch for the established family-friendly vibe. Don't tell me shit's been downgraded, I hate having to update my swear matrix. I guess it doesn't matter since the sample game's only purpose is to say, hey, we made this in dreams and so could you. Yes, Media Molecule, I suppose I could, just as soon as I too have access to a studio full of industry standard professionals and pay them all a salary, but considering you expect me to release it for free on your network, I might prefer to reserve my cash for something with a better return of investment, like heroin. So it's not exactly inspiring, it's like giving someone a bucket and spade and then lecturing them on the history of industrialised strip mining. I went through some tutorials and fair's fair, it is an extensive suite of 3D art tools and drag and drop coding systems that could potentially realise a lot of complex visions, but the big question that I keep coming back to is, 
is, why bother when I could just do all this on PC with a mouse and keyboard, rather than having to relearn basic drag and drop skills with a PS4 controller like a man clumsily attempting to remove Tinkerbell's bra. Oh Yahtzee, you crumbly old gaming insider, you've got it all wrong. Of course it's not trying to compete with commercial game creation tools, it's a creativity toy for the kiddiewinks to get their coding feet wet in between naps and demands for McDonald's. See, I just think it's too complex for that. You're talking about it being like playing with Lego, I say it's more like playing with Lego with a pair of remote-controlled animatronic hands with a 200-page operator's manual. Once these drag-and-drop engines go past a certain level of depth, I feel like they can't be that much easier than just learning to code, as I struggle to memorise a new language of icons and seriously chafe Tinkerbell's nipples trying to line up a cuboid. I feel like making a game in dreams would be like cleaning a bathroom floor with the eyelashes of a horse. Impressive, yes, but there were much easier ways, and you'll have very little use for all that horse wrangling expertise you had to learn if you want to move into cleaning bathroom floors on a professional level. Even more so after Sony inevitably decides it can't be bothered to support clean bathroom floors anymore and turns the servers off, sending everyone's hard work right down the bathroom drain. Yes, I have completely lost the fucking thread of this metaphor. But what of playing the games? What of being the societal parasite in the objectivist utopia that is dreams? The content is arranged like the layers of a trifle made by dementia patients. It starts at the top with the cream, mostly media molecules example games, made as discussed above by professionals being paid money. Then under that, the custard, the hand-picked smattering of decently playable games made by earnest creatives, presumably mostly bedridden and with nothing else to do all day but count the ceiling tiles. And then under that comes everything else, a bottomless ocean of ranch dressing and polystyrene. Mostly games consisting of two buildings plonked on an empty field and released as super early pre-alpha test demo for the epic open world sandbox action RPG I'm totally going to make after I break both my legs and the ceiling tiles lose their allure. About 50% of which feature Sonic the Hedgehog, but that's all to be expected and no reason to be discouraging. I made sure to leave a like on the small number of games that I felt got into the right spirit of things, offering nice straightforward gameplay loops, occasionally even original ones. And as I looked around at the colourful menus and the careful curation algorithms at work, I found myself thinking, you know, it'll be a real shame when this all gets taken over by perverts. These things always are, Media Molecule. The Sonic the Hedgehog fans are the warning sign. Now, Sonic fans aren't necessarily perverts. Basketball players aren't necessarily tall, but it fucking helps! Sooner or later they bring in that one character who's a bat with tits and the furries have got a foot in your door. Remember Second Life? Once a lovely wholesome attempt at a community-created online world of imagination, now just zebra dicks and yiff piles as far as the eye can see? The earnest creators will all return or graduate to more efficient systems once the novelty wears off and then all your fancy 3D art tools are so much fantasy penis-shaping equipment. What are you gonna do, screen all incoming content for the rest of your fucking life? Smarter and more dedicated people than you have tried to hold back the masturbators and the masturbators always win, probably because they've got all the stamina. See, this happy clappy everyone special approach just isn't preparing the kiddiewinks for the realities of life as a creative. Stress, rejection letters, audience indifference, the frustration when someone makes twice as much money as you just from drawing nipples on Princess Sally Acorn. Be honest, viewers, did you click on this video thinking it was an old one, being belched up from the archives by the YouTube algorithm, all hail its benevolent wisdom, may it ever smile upon us? Well, this may surprise you, but it isn't. It's a new one. And I just never got around to doing a retro review of Doom at any point in the last 14 years of bitching every time a shooter dropped the main character's walking pace to below the land speed record. Partly because it's such a linchpin of PC shooters, reviewing it feels like reviewing, I don't know, gravity. Three out of five stars, it's nice the way it stops us floating off to die in space, slightly disappointing what it does to my waistline. But with everyone waiting for Doom Eternal to blow their verrucas off, I thought this would be a good time to take a look back at where the hype all began, to a better time when more than one fucking game worth talking about came out in quarter one. Doom was released by id Software in 1993 and was a culmination of two significant events, John Karma creating a revolutionary new 3D graphics engine for first-person games, and John Romero spilling ketchup all over his collection of Metallica albums. The result was the conflux of both a technical and a cultural revolution. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like to see it for the first time, getting the same heavily fudged 2D planes from Wolfenstein 3D to simulate angled walls and floors with multiple levels must have been like finding a way to play the trombone with your 
your rectum. And while that lit the spark, the unflinching gore and occasionally present story about blowing the horny bollocks off of demons from actual biblical hell packs just enough spice into the powder keg to ensure a devastating impact, and no small controversy as well. You'd think if anyone would be in favour of blowing the randy vaginas off of those nasty satanic demons it would be conservative Christian groups, but there I go again, trying to apply logic to hysterical people like a man trying to apply marmite to a bread slice before it comes out of the toaster. But you don't need me to explain why Doom did alright at the time. Let's analyse the question of whether or not Doom holds up, because the interesting thing is that depending on who you ask you'll get two very different answers to that question, and both of them start with the word obviously. On the one side they say obviously it doesn't, Yahtzee, fucking look at it. Impressively fudged as the engine was, it turns out it's actually a lot more efficient and hygienic to play the trombone with your mouth, and it was obsolete the instant Polygonal 3D waved its handkerchief from across the dance floor. And all the gore and Satan stuff is kinda laughable in this more enlightened age, when the angsty kids who used to doodle pentagrams onto their school books have learned to express themselves in more wholesome ways, like spree killing. And then you have the other side saying, obviously it does, Yahtzee, Doom's the best shooter ever, just play it and you'll remember why. But make sure you're playing the right source port so you can run it in a resolution that wouldn't embarrass a graphing calculator. Oh, you might as well install the brutal Doom mod so you can play it in the original intended spirit, i.e. a game designed by a very unsupervised 14-year-old who received medication instead of hugs growing up. Hey, stop colouring in those pentagrams and explain how you can say this game holds up if you need to mod it this much to still enjoy it. A certain amount of nostalgia might be clouding up your vision here, mate. Influential as it was, it's hard to go back to the original Doom after so many years of other games gradually adding quality of life improvements like proper mouse look and shotgun reload animations with more frames than a Bazooka Joe comic. Ah, ah, but, but. Doom 2016. After Doom 3 was trying to be System Shock 2 and everyone got sniffy at it, well, what little they could see of it, Doom 2016 was a massive hit, and why? Because it went back to being like the old Dooms. Ergo, old Doom still good. Did it though? Doom 2016 worked because of the past free movement and cathartic violence, and while the original Doom Marine certainly moved like he was six tacos deep and looking for the one unoccupied toilet in the shopping mall, Doom 2016 would be nothing without verticality, and being able to jump on enemies and tap dance their mandibles off. So if I were to pick its primary influence, it wouldn't be a game that had no fucking jump button. And as for cathartic violence, it was Quake that invented making all an enemy's body parts fly spectacularly away from each other, like former high school friends promising to keep in touch. The jibbing in Doom is all sprite-based and as such is a rather stuffily formal affair, the jibbed enemies politely arrange themselves into neat piles on the floor. Also, with the exception of the plasma gun, which is like stomping on tubes of spearmint toothpaste while blowing raspberries, Doom's weapons all feel a bit clunky for my tastes. Like the Doom Marine has to bite the end off a Yorkie bar between each shot. Doom 2016 certainly calls back to Doom Not 2016, but it isn't much like it. Really, it's a game of its time, influenced by the lessons of the many, many years of fast-paced cathartic action games that came out in the meantime. Most of what you can get out of Retro Doom you can get better from games that have come since. But having said all that, there has to be something timeless about Retro Doom, Google basically any shooter and someone has made a Doom mod trying to recreate it, including Doom 2016. I mean fuck, that's like trying to remake Jurassic Park with finger puppets and a small dog with a boglin strapped to its face. There has to be something more going on than just nostalgic associations certain people have with the reassuring smile of a caco demon. And there is. On analysis there are several things Retro Doom provides that you just can't get from newer games anymore. For one thing, the practice of trying to characterise the player by putting their face on the status bar like he'd forgotten to adjust his rearview mirror never really caught on outside id's games. Duke Nukem 3D pointed out you can characterise you do just as well by having him occasionally quote Army of Darkness and sexually harass everything in a bra. Besides that, Doom offers a very pure gameplay experience with no story interruptions. For all our Lord and Saviour Doom 2016 tries to talk a big game at the start, when the protagonist kicks the shit out of a monitor the moment it starts dribbling exposition at him, there's still that whole scene later on 
on when we have to stand around in the manager's office for 10 minutes while he goes over our performance review. And while Doom's graphics are archaic, I mean as far as the engine's concerned you're basically just playing Pac-Man with 3D glasses on and the screen tilted 90 degrees from your face, the visuals are extremely distinct. Modern realistic graphics tend to make everything shadowy and covered in Christmas lights, but when you see a demon in Doom 1 there can be no doubt as to what it is. For all two and a half animation frames of its big chunky sprite stand as luridly pink as a freshly spanked flamingo and with an actual identifiable expression on its face, for me it was a point against Doom 2016 that all the demons have generic skull faces with the teeth outside the mouth, which doesn't express anything but an urgent need to floss. So in summary, with Doom's days as a groundbreaker long behind it, it can still at least offer an invigorating simplicity when you're tired of the self-important posturing of new games. Don't get me wrong, I like the innovations of the modern toilet, but there's still something uniquely satisfying about going out into my front garden and pissing on a political canvasser. Someday, indie games, you and I are going to have to draw up a little constitution and decide how long is too long to be in early fucking access. I made a vow to stop reviewing games that are still in oily excess because anything I criticise can get fixed before the final release and then my review just has to dangle there from the internet looking all wrong and stupid, like a decent human being in a Republican-controlled Senate. Plus it leads to situations like when I half-arsedly reviewed Fortnite while it was still in twirly axis, little realising it would soon become the world's third most popular form of human communication. But now I have a new problem, because sometimes games stay in early access the whole time they're in the popular zeitgeist. So by the time I review it, no one cares, and I've all moved on to John Madden's Felching Simulator 2020. Black Mesa was announced 15 years ago and been in early access for five. I assume they've been waiting until the kitschy retro factor kicks in since they missed the first chance to strike while the panty was wet. As a critic, this has been a ripe pinecone up my perineum. Back when I first played Black Mesa in those wonderful days before all sense left the earth, I had tons of shit to critic about, but they kept throwing up the early access card like a crucifix to a vampire. Hey, where are the zen levels? Early access! <sighs> Hey, the enemy soldiers seem a bit too accurate. Early access! Oh, for fuck's sake. And now I'm roundly miffed to see that the release version of Black Mesa is really fucking polished, which is all anyone should expect, since they've been polishing it for so fucking long there's a six-inch layer of crystallised Mr. Sheen around the thing. But let's take a step back. Black Mesa is a fan-made remake of the seminal 90s PC shooter narrative action game tentpole and all-around ball of chunky cuddles, Half-Life, made in the Half-Life 2 Source engine. You see, when Half-Life 2 came out, Valve put out a version of Half-Life in the Source engine, but it was just a copy-paste of the assets. So some disappointed fellow said, hey, wouldn't it be great if this was an actual remake of Half-Life in the style of Half-Life 2, with fully updated graphics and level design, and someone else said, yes that would be great, hop to it, and thus was decided the next 15 years of that poor fucker's life. Now my philosophy brain reminds me that I disapprove of this kind of thing. Part of the value of art is as a capsule of the styles and attitudes of its era. Dragging an old classic into the present and forcing it to chase new trends is a cycle that never stops. The Source engine is itself pretty old and crusty at this point, and Black Mesa will now need to be remade again in Unreal Engine 4 with VR support and old bollocks probably shouldn't put the idea in their heads. But on the other hand, my down-to-earth brain points out a, this is the fucking modern games industry we're talking about, where they don't even apply backwards compatibility to their baseball caps, so in a few years this might well be the only way we can play Half-Life, and B, Black Mesa gives me lovely wobbly feelings in my tummy tum because Half-Life is my boo. If you want to know how Black Mesa would be for someone who's never played the original, then I haven't got the least fucking idea. Go to Timmy Tween Twitch streamer and pay him a hundred bids to answer that question, if he can stop sucking Mountain Dew from his mum's titties for five seconds. I'm more familiar with the layout of Half-Life than I am with that of female genitalia, and Black Mesa follows it closely, so it's all that lovely pacing and narrative gameplay but now with the beer goggles taken off. Everything's crisper, the guns are more satisfying, the characters have a little more character, the environments make a little more sense with not so many sewage runoff pipes outflowing inexplicably into people's offices. I noticed we still haven't solved the issue of everyone looking the same. The original Half-Life only had four different scientist models, but they were very different, running a spectrum between Albert Einstein and Sidney Poitier. Now it's more like twelve very slight variations on the same face, and not just the scientists, the security guards and the soldiers have the same ones, and all with the same body type, so it's like the facility was taken over by a tribe of very generic Oompa Loompas. See, there were notes of 
silliness in the original Half-Life that one forgave of a janky 90s shooter, but which are thrown into sharp relief by a more modern realistic tone. Obliging the player to press crouch while jumping, in order to jump over slightly higher things, is in retrospect a pretty janky workaround for an engine limitation. You'd expect some kind of mantling physics these days. And it suddenly seems odd that no one Gordon Freeman meets as he fights his way out of the doomed facility wants to come with him. Quick Gordon, rescue teams are meeting us on the surface, I'll open this door for you, let me know how it works out. What, me? No, I couldn't possibly come too, there might be something you need to crouch under, or a one foot high obstacle. It's probably safest for me to hang out in this alien infested corridor, maybe stick my underpants on my head and try to live among the parasite monsters like Diane fucking Fossey. But let's leave the bulk of the game to one side, after all a remake of a good thing still being good doesn't score any points because it had to copy its homework. The real challenge was the zen levels, for most of the time Slack Mavis was in early access it just awkwardly stopped right after you jump into the portal to the alien realm, and cut to credits after two or three seconds of the Doctor Who opening titles. Because what the fuck do you do with zen? The notoriously unpopular final chapter of an otherwise timeless classic. You've got to at least try to make it good if you're already committed to making changes, you can't throw out the Einstein scientist and then preserve the pile of shit at the end for posterity. Black Mesa's zen is three or four times longer than the original, which I'm not sure is the solution I'd have gone for. Oh, you don't want your broccoli? Well here's three times as much, bitch, and if you don't learn to like it I'm going to start pushing it up your nose. I suppose having worked on it for years they wanted to prove they weren't Duke Nukem forevering that whole time, and that is most certainly proved. The cosmic vistas are spectacular, every inch of effort is on display, and while it is over long and the quality has its dips, some bits are pretty forgettable and some chug along like the early morning hangover shits, there's enough of a sense of wonder about it that I wasn't unengaged. Trouble is, I don't think it addresses the actual issue with Zen. We just spent umpteen hours tactically combating our way through an ever-evolving narrative about a research facility disaster and a military cover-up, and this Metroid meets American McGee's Alice bad acid trip at a children's ball pit full of tricky platforming and bullet spongy bosses doesn't feel like a payoff for what was set up. And with its lurching shift of tone and handful of hitherto unused movement and puzzle mechanics, Neo Zen might as well be a different game altogether. In summary, Half-Life was a handsome, intelligent and smartly dressed man who was inexplicably wearing one bright green Wellington boot. I don't think the solution was to put on the other Wellington boot. The usual indie platformer theme of small innocent child in big scary world is like the missionary position. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, some interesting things have been done with it, but when it's all you fucking do, you'll swiftly be desperately hankering to break the monotony with just one suck job or nipple clamp. The thing about small child scary world though is that it rarely does sequels, because the underlying theme of small child scary world is coming of age and or loss of innocence, and you can't lose your innocence twice. Well I suppose you could lose it in stages, say lose half when you find out that Santa isn't real, lose the other half the first time you take it up the arse. And speaking of comfort zones, we come to Ori and the Will of the Wisps, sequel to small glowing child cat rabbit thing in Scary World Metroidvania title Ori and the Blind Forest, and the direction it's apparently chosen to go in for this sequel is a U-turn. Say it doesn't take long into Ori and the Walkers of the Crisps to realise that the story is hitting the exact same beats as the last game, except to the montage of deliriously peaceful family life at the start before everything goes to shit, they've added a baby owl with a nice fresh virginal innocence to ruin instead of Ori's this time. Missionary position again, is it darling? Okay, I'll get the sheet with a hole in and the picture of Jesus. You might reasonably think from looking at the promotional art, I almost said box art there, but come on, like anyone buys games in boxes, from shops, like a twat, and incidentally I think the world owes me and every other gamer a debt of gratitude for being way ahead on the whole self-isolation thing, that the owl is some kind of sidekick or co-op partner, but that's the case for all of half a level and the rest of the time it's Ori on their own again and the owl is mere feathered MacGuffin. McGriffin, perhaps. Again, Ori finds themselves lost in a scary Metroidvania world full of hostile balls of glowing snot, not the same scary Metroidvania world, a new if hauntingly similar one that was next door to the first one the whole time, and again the big villain is a giant scary owl. Not the same giant scary owl, a new slightly scarier owl that the other giant scary owls didn't want anything 
anything to do with. So I guess this is how we're ramping up the stakes for the sequel. New, never before seen depths of owl antisocialness. No, but seriously now, in the fullness of time I felt bad about my very huffy review of the first Ori in the Last Crusade. I mean, you could hardly call the games lazy. They're beautifully drawn and animated with a lovely soundtrack. The core gameplay is smooth and satisfying, and the emotional moments hit the right emotion. I couldn't remember what had rubbed me up the wrong way about it, so I eagerly started Ori in the Way of the Wank and shortly afterwards said, oh, I remember now. It's not that it's bad. It's very stylish, I just don't think there's much substance to it. Once again, the nebulous negative force we're up against is The Darkness, which has no agenda beyond making all the nice people sad and the local boss monsters bastards, requiring that we help out through therapeutic beating the glowing snot out of them. Look, I know this isn't Tinker Tailor Soldier Cat Rabbit thing, and I shouldn't expect complex plotting from my fantasy animal platformers, but the mythic tone and sweeping soundtrack makes me think that it thinks its story is epic and profound when it's actually kind of shallow. Drive out the darkness and restore the light. Ooh, good idea, maybe I wouldn't bump into things so much. The game's backed by Microsoft and there's a vibe of corporate committee thinking around it. It reminds me of how Hollywood pumps its most crassly gigantic budgets into movies with no more profound message than it's bad to murder everyone with explosions because any more controversial statement would offend the Chinese government. The first game had one original thought in the form of having you manually plonk down your save points which was slightly wobbly in execution so naturally it's been kicked to the curb in favour of making a game that's more like Hollow Knight. Because Hollow Knight was popular and did well and has therefore gained the favour of the giant money machine, all praise its benevolent wisdom. So it's got a similar badge system and a similar emphasis on NPCs, it's even got the one map maker dude you keep running into in the world who sells you a map for the current area, except in Hollow Knight you flat out wouldn't have a map until you did that, as a deliberate design choice to make the player really think about their new environment without hand-holding for a while, and Orient the Will of the Smiths auto-maps for you regardless. Maybe orienteering offends the Chinese government too. And of course there's the spectacular boss fights, all three and a half of them, one of which is a giant spider. And giant spider bosses in Metroidvania games are like turret sections in shooters in that they're officially the point where the designers ran out of ideas. But let's not be too churlish, because the boss fights where there's actually a boss and you're actually fighting it are a rare treat when half the time the game will have a cinematic chase sequence instead, which are about as much fun as working a seed out of your teeth while listening to the Uncharted soundtrack. Inevitably these involve having to perfectly carry out a strict sequence of movements and starting all over again at the slightest pause or mistake, where all the impact is lost after the first two or three restarts and it's only cinematic if you're in a cinema where the projectionist has advanced Parkinson's disease. As I've said before, such things aren't precisely the same as Press X to not die QTE sequences but they certainly share a bathroom and use the same electric pube trimmer. Oh hark at Mr Grumpy Pants reaching for things to complain about because it's easier than changing into a pair of trousers that's more positive spirited. Alright, it's still a beautiful game, and when it isn't pausing to very cinematically wank the budget off on screen, the core platforming gameplay is fun and skillful, although I hate how we only have three ability slots mapped to three of the face buttons, because one of those abilities is your standard attack, which you will never unequip, and at least one of them needs to be whatever traversal power gets you through the current area, so really you've only got one free slot. And I've got all this money, and the merchant's children are starving and eating each other's toenail clippings to survive, but I don't want to fucking buy any of the merchant's fancy combat abilities, because I only have one slot and I don't want to have to keep pausing the game to remap my controls mid-combat like I'm trying to drive a car with a starving Tamagotchi on the passenger seat because someone's never heard of button combinations. Oh dear, Grumpy Pants is back from the dry cleaners. Sorry, I'm still not sure why Ori games affect me this way. I see a perfectly playable game about a cute little animal thing and I instantly get suspicious. It's probably lingering trauma from looking at Sonic the Hedgehog fan art. Yes, it's the explosive new doom that everybody's talking about in which humanity faces extinction at the hands of an all-pervading terror, but that's a bit too depressing so let's talk about a new video game instead. Doom Eternal, the other thing that's been fucking my year up, by sitting at the end of quarter one with its mouth open like a fucking trapdoor spider and scaring off every other big release. Doom Eternal this, Doom Eternal that, the children are dying, Doom Eternal! Hey, I finished cleaning the menswear section of this department store, which section should I do next? Oh, could you Doom Eternal? Doom Eternal?! Doom Eternal is the sequel to Doom 2016 in which we step back into the chonky elephantine boots of the Doom Slayer 
and the plot picks up where Dune 2016 left off, give or take an explanation for how we escaped from Mars and where we got a fucking spaceship from, or how demons have conquered most of planet Earth. Okay, so maybe it doesn't start where Dune 2016 left off, although the demons invading Earth bit we could probably have safely assumed. Ooh, what has humanity learned from the previous disaster? The usual amount, somewhere in the region between bugger and all. How timely. But as for how the Tomb Slayer got here, maybe that was explained in a DLC or a comic book somewhere. And incidentally, I do appreciate how it's now canon that the Doom Slayer does actually talk like he did in the Doom comic book, like an abattoir worker on enough coke to floor an elephant's seal. Doom Eternal's starting point is the fast and chaotic arena shootouts of Doom 2016, the thing that our Doom retrospective video established isn't actually that much like the original Doom because it's more complex than playing marbles on a kitchen counter covered in several interesting varieties of ketchup. But that seems to have made Doom Eternal a bit self-conscious, as it's very deliberately redesigned a lot of its monsters and pickups to look more like how they did in classic Doom. You wouldn't be trying to pander now, would you, Doom Eternal? No, of course not. Would you like us to change it? Let us pander to you not wanting us to pander. But lest you think we're regressing, gameplay is leaning even harder on the complexity lever. I always felt I could have done without a lot of that weapon upgrade business in Doom 2016, when I'd finished getting all the upgrades for all the guns I was capable of remembering that I had while panicking, and now there's so many more things I have to remember that I have. Eight guns with two alternate fire modes each, frag grenades, ice grenades, blood punch, no that isn't what they serve at Hell's Singles Mixers, the one-hit kill sword, the chainsaw, the flamethrower, the candlestick maker, you still get ammo pickups from your off-the-books chainsaw mastectomy clinic, and now you get armour from using your flamethrower because the searing heat is making the demon's pocket change fuse together. No, it still doesn't make the slightest sense in context. Oh, who the fuck needs context, Yards? It's fast arcadey fun combat. Did you miss the instructions? Step one, rip. Step two, tear. Step three, lunch. What you're talking about, viewer, is combat having a sense of abandon and catharsis, but I have trouble getting into that mood when every time I burst into a room full of low-level mobs I have to stop and weigh things up. Hmm, health and armour both need a boost. Should I set fire to these lads before I chainsaw their legs off? The more strategic nature of it might turn some people off if they'd rather just pull out the super shotgun, say, hey does this barrel smell like cordite to you, and change the atmosphere of the room from 70% nitrogen to 90% vaporised sexual organ. Oh, for those happier times when I was a youthful carefree murderer. And speaking of killing the mood, when a new monster or boss is introduced and it poses for the camera, it's 17 disfigured tits trembling under the flickering hell gloom, and my whitening knuckles are equally divided between my shotgun hilt and my oversized ball sack in preparation for the battle, what I don't want to happen next is a tutorial message slamming the brakes on the pace to say, it's a new monster! his precise instructions on how to kill it. Lucky you weren't left to figure it out for yourself, you might have gotten dangerously engaged. Yeah, I know, turn tutorials off, Yardsy. But as I say, they've only added more complexity to the combat, so I was afraid the game might suddenly toss me the enchanted egg slicer of Ravi Shankar and wouldn't tell me how to use the fucking thing. And while I'm playing pocket billiards in my grumpy trousers again, the new traversal stuff is fun and all, with the air dashes and the bouncing off poles like a Nazi jackboot in the late 1930s, but now that we can reach the furthest crannies of the map, exercise some fucking consistency in your level design so I'm not constantly jumping for scenery that looks blatant ledge-esque and sliding off invisible walls into the abyss. This is a game that constantly encourages you to hunt for secrets, I'll remind you. It's beckoning with one hand and readying vicious nipple cripples with the other. The combat we loved is still here. I had two small quibbles with Doom 2016, the monster design being kind of flat and expressionless, and some of the glory kills lacking a certain impact. Sometimes we'd rip a demon's horn off and then just sort of wipe his face with it like we're a behind-schedule makeup artist. Both of those issues are addressed in Doom Eternal, but they're addressed as part of a general scattershot attempted improvement that mostly entailed adding more of everything, for better and for worse. Some of the new monsters are fun, some are annoying. Thinking of you, Tentacle. You do not deserve a page in the best, Yuri. All you do is sit there and give us an unavoidable slap if we come too close. You're not a monster, you're a timely and useful reminder of the importance of social distancing. And it's funny how the game is leaning more into the arcadey retro vibe with the redesigned pickups and simultaneously leaning more into serious storytelling, which is about as welcome in my Doom 2016 as a jittery skunk in an eyewash station. The Doom Slayer is an unfettered chaotic id who only wants to kill demons and find collectible Happy Meal toys. In other words, he's the player of 
a mindless shooter game. But the central gag of the character is that all the other characters in the plot are looking for meaning and cosmic stroke religious significance in his actions where none truly exists. He just doesn't give a shit. That's the joke, very funny, ha ha ha. But in Doom Eternal, when there are entire levels devoted to traipsing through empty hallways learning the history of the Doom Slayer and the origin story for how he came to not give a shit and we're beset by cutscenes and dialogue and codex entries filling us in on the makers of Erdak and their history with the Sentinels of Argent Nu and their long tradition of shit and the not giving thereof, then suddenly the game itself is the one projecting unnecessary meaning onto the dude who doesn't actually give a shit and the joke is at the expense of the story writers. In summary, Doom Eternal's still good but its attempts to broaden appeal across the board has resulted in a little bloat and lack of discipline. Both story and gameplay would benefit from keeping in mind the rule of KISS. Keep it simple and shit-faced. I kind of feel bad for Valve. Rejoice, ye faithful, for official Half-Life games have returned from their long hibernation in a giant cocoon of money. Now the true believers will be rewarded with- where the fuck is everyone? We're all in quarantine because of the global pandemic, Valve. Oh, would now be a bad time to ask people to buy our thousand dollar VR headset? I rather suspect it would be Valve, yes. Still, now could be the perfect time for the VR revolution since everyone's stuck at home looking for ways to cover their eyes and ears and go la 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 not listening to current events. And much as the boringly named Valve Index sounds more like something related to insider trading in the plumbing industry than a VR system, I personally found that it represents great value for money, mainly because they sent me a free one. Because I'm a reviewer, so I'd better review it. How does it compare to my old Oculus Rift? Well, the image is crisper and it doesn't take up 15 USB ports, it just takes up 19 power sockets instead. That's not true. In in reality it takes up three power sockets, and isn't it a shame that I have to break character to clarify that because some of you mouth breathers don't understand exaggeration for comic effect and think hyperbole is what Sony's PR department eats cereal out of. Yes I know it's pronounced hyperbole, I couldn't think of a better joke. The controllers are chargeable rather than battery powered, very nice, but they're less than optimal for the larger handed gentleman. I find to press the start buttons I have to bend my thumb joints to very uncomfortable angles like I'm trying to fold my thumbs into extremely small IKEA flat packs. Still I like how the finger tracking means every game now has Brutal Doom's flipped middle fingers at the enemies feature, and the strap across the palm design makes it possible to actually throw things in VR games without also physically throwing the controller and seriously upsetting my dog. But let's get to the star of the show, Half-Life Alex. I remember saying once that Valve will probably never do another Half-Life until it can in some way represent a technological step forward like Half-Life 1 and 2 both did, and it really is a burden having to be right all the time, no one will play Trivial Pursuit with me anymore. Begone ye fan-made golden calves of slack beta and cunt down the wee-wees, Half-Life Alex is a continuation of the Half-Life canon intended to be the hot app that VR still kinda needs. Oh how necessary to the canon can it be, Yahtzee, surely we'll be going through the plot knowing that nothing permanent can happen because it's a prequel set five years before Gordon Freeman shows up and wipes everyone's bumsies. That's what I thought, but then the ending suddenly pulled my trousers right down and started affecting the established plot. So since I don't want to spoil it, sorry Half-Life fans, better crack open those swear jars and start a VR fund. Or more realistically, watch someone on YouTube play it. But forget about that, Half-Life Alex is a lovely piece of escapist fantasy set in a world with an actually competent government, albeit one that's just a little bit too murdery. So a young Alex Vance of the human resistance movement must firstly pursue her captured father, resistance leader and amazing human MacGuffin Eli Vance, and secondly a potential super weapon that could finally defeat the Combine but obviously won't, all the while chatting to a comic relief dotty scientist character on her radio, who could easily have been Dr. Kleiner from Half-Life 2 but isn't. Maybe they couldn't get the voice actor back. But they didn't get any voice actors back, the dude now voicing Eli sounds as much like the previous dude as he does Whitney fucking Houston. It's odd to play a Half-Life game where the main character speaks, and can tell the people around them to stop being such prannies, but it's still unmistakably Half-Life with its trademark monsters, linear narrative gameplay, and weird emotional tone. I mean, humanity has a essentially been enslaved by the Borg, who systematically subject them to gory nightmarish body horror, but everyone's really cheerful and yucking it up with their pet headcrabs. Yes, I know humans strive to be upbeat during a crisis, but there's this one very Resident Evil-y chapter in Alex where we have to sneak around an indestructible monster who's this hideously mutated human who will tear us apart if he finds us and looks to be in immense suffering. And then we're told that their name is Jeff, and everyone talks about him like he's the one asshole in the friend group who keeps hitting on waitresses. Oh that Jeff, Jeff sucks. Hey I trapped Jeff in a garbage compactor, sucks to be Jeff. Sometimes Half-Life storytelling 
feeling feels like what happens when an entire game has Asperger's syndrome. The nature of VR means that Alex's journey involves a lot of picking through pokey rooms, in contrast to how Gordon Freeman spent entire chapters doing action stunts in his turbo roadster while kissing his biceps and steering with his buttocks. But this is why I like VR, because somehow it's just as absorbing to rummage through a room full of cardboard boxes looking for the perfect one to wear on your head. And that's why if they do mod a non-VR version of Alex, it'll probably be about as much fun as playing pop-up pirate without the pirate. The VR is essential. Alex is a refinement of the VR action adventure in every sense. It looks great, and it's taken the Boneworks model, my previously favourite VR game, and removed all the janky and physically exhausting stuff that are fun in their own way but don't suit an immersive story experience, because it's hard to focus on reading a book while doing star jumps. So melee combat's de-emphasised, as not everyone can comfortably swing imaginary crowbars and stuffed polecats around, not without cracking their knuckles on their long-suffering dog again, and no two-handed guns, which in VR tend to feel as natural to use as a fencing sword with a comically large rubber dildo strapped to the end. Pistol, shotgun and SMG, it's the all-one-handed gun show, which is what my old boarding school used to call the period immediately following lights out. No dual-wielding either, which is a shame, although dual wielding in Boneworks was only fun until you needed to reload, at which point you feel a bit stupid, unless you could think of a way to toss a fresh clip into the air with your rapidly softening dick. Also no physics climbing, just ladders. And ladders continue to be the one thing Valve games just cannot figure out. In this case you sort of vaguely grab a rung and then Alex instantly zips to the top like she's queefing rocket exhaust, so the immersion takes a bit of a fanny fart to the face there. But otherwise Alex is my new exemplar for VR narrative action games. It's engaging in all the ways that count, and it being an official entry for a big franchise is a significant step for VR, becoming less of a janky novelty. But will it be what finally breaks VR into the mainstream- no. No, this is what I as a VR enthusiast have come to accept, listeners. Every big mainstream success in the last two decades of video games has been about making them more casual or more social, and VR is the antithesis to both. You can't craftily alt-tab into it when you're supposed to be working, unless you've got pathologically unobservant supervisors, and you can't do it while hanging out with friends, unless you really want them to leave and they missed all the other hints you dropped. So I think it will always be niche. But so fucking what, frankly? You really need something to have mainstream popularity to like it? That's like only liking caviar when it's had peanut M&Ms mixed through it. I wasn't gonna bring up the coronavirus thing again. I mean, the site's called The Escapist, not the constant reminders of our inevitable hubristic doom. Besides, it'll pretty seriously date the videos in a month or two when the virus goes away forever and everything returns to normal and all the dead people come back to life and there's a rainbow. But now I have to talk about Resident Evil 3, a game about society descending into chaos because of a viral pandemic. It could only have been less fortunately timed if the zombies ate toilet roll instead of brains. So after the success of the RE2 make last year, the 3 make was something of an inevitability, I suppose, partly because the process of remaking Resident Evil 2 just doesn't feel complete until it's had a slight lazy sequel knocked out of it. Resident Evil 3 follows Jill Valentine, the marginally less bulbous of the two protagonists of Resident Evil 1, who is stuck in Raccoon City during the outbreak depicted in RE2 and can't leave for another three days for reasons I wasn't entirely clear on, maybe that's when her holiday in Tijuana starts, but she's suddenly having to move up her plans when a giant half-sucked jelly baby wrapped in bin bags called Nemesis breaks down her door fixing to grab her and throw her at walls over and over again to no apparent effect for about six hours. It wouldn't be Resident Evil or an alien film unless the evil corporation is prioritising being evil above actions that make any actual sense, so Nemesis was sent by the Umbrella Corporation specifically to kill Jill and indiscriminately destroy and murder anything between him and Jill, in case anyone should find out about how Umbrella indiscriminately destroys and murders things. All of which smacks of middle management decision making to me. Jill must explore the ruined city trying to help survivors in the moments when Nemesis isn't throwing her at walls, joining forces with a mercenary named Carlos, who is suffering from a bad hair day that must be seen to be believed. He looks like he's auditioning to stand in for a bowl of Kellogg's All bran. Thus ensues gameplay very much like the RE2 make, funnily enough, explore all the rooms looking for puzzle 
items that unlock doors and expand the space, all the while finding it inexplicably difficult to shoot encroaching zombies in the head. The main addition to gameplay is a dodge move that you can use to get a free hit on the enemy if you time it right, although about half the zombies weren't properly informed of this and just grab you anyway. And then you have to do the mini-game where you mash X, and if you fail you get a zombie bite, and if you win you also get a zombie bite but can feel marginally better about yourself. Whoops, no time to complain about that, here comes Nemesis again. I don't know if it's worth analysing the subtext of a game about a giant muscular man refusing to leave alone an attractive underdressed lady and trying to penetrate her with his big floppy willy of death. She is at least better dressed than she was in the original, when she looks like an embarrassing single mother accompanying her daughter to a roller disco. But still, Three Make sometimes gives me a Tomb Raider make vibe when the amount of shit that gets kicked out of Jill Valentine starts to border on the fetishistic. Now I don't think I sound disingenuous when I get finger waggy about this kind of thing, it's not like I jerked off to it more than once. Anyway, as you might have guessed from him having top billing and everything, Nemesis is the big selling point of RE3 and it is a fucking effective concept of frame and action horror game around. Here's a walking fridge smeared in cat food who wants you dead, dresses in hefty bags and as such probably can't be bought off with Abercrombie and Fitch gift cards, and every time you try to kill him he just grows another layer of cat food. And your chief lines of defence are two D cups and a questionably reliable dodge button. In other words, it's the Mr X thing from the last game, except with the greater narrative weight it probably deserved. But where Mr X was a free range murder man who organically roamed the whole game environment, Nemesis has his nipples chained to a milking machine in the ethically unsound factory farm of linear plot. And let's dwell on that lovely image for a moment. All the fights and chase sequences with the Nemesis feel very scripted. In fact, RE3 is a generally more linear game, even more so than the original which had this choose your own adventure thing going on where you'd occasionally be given a binary choice that would slightly affect the direction of the plot. 3Make chucks all that in the bin, possibly because it was so lame it was entitled to handicapped parking spaces, but nevertheless both iterations of RE3 for me represent Resident Evil losing its impact and starting to just go through the motions. Zombies, bizarre locking mechanisms, poorly thought out character motivations, and in the end you go to a secret underground lab and fight a giant wall of snot. Jill's initial poorly thought out motivation, besides avoiding getting turned into a Rissole the size of a sleeping bag by Captain Catfood, is to rescue a train car full of civilians, but then it crashes and they all die and Jill moves on, sparing them no more thought than she does the leftover chow mein that was in her fridge. Some meandering follows and then her new goal is to stop the government from nuking Raccoon City. Basically everyone's dead at that point but there are still loads of perfectly good multi-story car parks. Spoiler alert, she fucks that up too and once again largely shrugs her way through the grief but it does enable her to meander into a secret underground lab and do the giant wall of snot fight. So while every Resident Evil game is a load of fannying about then giant wall of snot in a lab, RE3's fannying about is even fannier than usual, the wall of snot all the snottier and more inevitable. If anything recommends the 3 make it's that it's another five odd hours of the survival horror gameplay you may or may not have enjoyed in the 2 make. And a multiplayer mode, Yarts. But I'd say the difficulty is a bit higher generally and not always in a way that feels fair. I was having trouble with those hunters, the zombie teenage mutant ninja turtle motherfuckers who have super armour and move super fast, so if you don't have a big weapon out they just slit you open like a bag of Maltesers. And then the game over screen kept bugging me. Hey, would you like to switch to a difficulty setting more suited to your clueless girlish simpering player? That depends, 3 make. Would you like to be coughing up my pubes for the next three days? Oh fine, here's your loading screen tip. Hunters are close range fighters, remember to back up and keep your distance. 3 make, you're making me fight these things in a fucking hospital corridor! What am I supposed to back up into, the fucking vending machine coin return slots? Perhaps you'd have a better time in the multiplayer mode, Yards. And you know what's really taking the piss is that outside the rather anemic campaign badly in need of a Mars bar and some exercise, there aren't even any other gameplay modes. No mercenaries mode, no extra challenges, I mean what the fuck were they even working on this whole time? Probably the multiplayer, Yards, why don't you play some of it? Hello Doctor, I'm hearing the voices again, the ones that keep telling me to hurt myself.
Hey, do you want to watch these videos a week early and can't go to the Escapist site because you're violently allergic to ads? Well now the Escapist has YouTube memberships and a new Escapist Plus premium service, either of which can provide what you need alongside all kinds of extra bonuses like emojis and badges and a chance to join in regular Q&A videos. There's also new t-shirts available for sale on Teespring! I wasn't sure how to segue to that! So as is well documented, Animal Crossing New Horizons came out the same day as Doom Eternal, cue lots of photoshops of THE DOOM SLAYER, chasing lost souls with a butterfly net, lolity lol, memity meme. But the two are a weirdly good pair. What better way to unwind from a high-tension gameplay experience than with something cheerful, relaxing and colourful like Doom Eternal? Yeah, you figured out where this joke was going half a sentence ago, I'm sure. Now that Nintendo have got this whole console thing down, a version of Animal Crossing for the Switch was inevitable. Animal Crossing is an institution at this point, one that requires commitment, and as such I thoroughly recommend it to anyone who thinks they're ready to be committed to an institution. The setup this time around is that you and the predatory raccoon loan shark, Tom Nook, have come to a desert island wilderness in order to develop it into yet another wholesome capitalist paradise for animal-shaped random number generators. You know, the kind of setup where, if it were a film, you'd expect half the cast to be cannibalised by the end of Act 2. But don't worry, Tom Nook presumably massacred the native island population before we arrived. The process of developing the island largely entails, for your part, the transfer of ungodly amounts of bells from you to Tom Nook's holdings account, and the usual Animal Crossing routine quickly sets in. You fish, you catch bugs, you acquire furniture, you sell it all to Tom Nook for money that you then use to pay off your loans to Tom Nook. It's the all Tom Nook economy. When Tom Nook dies, this entire society will fucking collapse into anarchy where brightly coloured animal people shiv each other for pears. And as always, you're expected to come back every day in real time to pull the weeds, dig up a new set of fossils and defuse any shiv-based arguments. Very little that I didn't already comment on the last time my path was crossing with animal… game with the animal game. But I managed to gain a new perspective on animal tossing this time around by introducing my wife to it. Now be warned before you show your significant other or cohabitant Animal Crossing that it's a risky play. On the one hand they won't yell at you to stop playing video games for a while, but on the other the house will rot and the children will starve. I'm ashamed to admit that I knew Animal Crossing would suck her in, because she's one of those 100% completion types who have always ensured that Pokemon makes bank like a 7-Eleven across the road from a marijuana shop. So on day one she was saying she probably wouldn't be into it, and by day five she was staying up fishing long into the night because she had to catch just one fucking sturgeon before before the end of March, and by day 8 she was digging holes in a series of arcane patterns in the hope of summoning a tarantula to catch, and I began to worry that she might have joined a cargo cult. But I was gathering all kinds of interesting data on the communal experience of Animal Crossing. For example, kids, the first of your siblings who gets to play Animal Crossing New Horizons is officially the one your parents love the most. The first player gets a fun little sequence where they camp out with Tom Nook and get gently tutorialised, and get to name the island and pick where all the characters' houses go so they can start a beaver ghetto if they feel so inclined, and the next player to join on the same switch gets, oh hello, you're here too. Here are some old twigs we found, try not to get them dirty. What's that? You'd like to have your own island to play with? Well you see that dung beetle over there? You see how he's eating shit? I think you could learn a lot from his example. There's this whole new system of etiquette one must adhere to when other people in the household are playing Animal Crossing, is the first person to log on that day, duty bound to dig up all the fossils. If my cohabitee sends me a hat they designed, is a token thank you reply enough, or am I obliged to wear the awful fucking thing? If they spend hours grinding fish bait trying to catch a blue marlin, and I catch one entirely by chance on my first go, how many is an inappropriate number of pelvic thrusts to do in their stupid crying face, and so on. As for how New Horizons compares to previous incarnations, there's a greater sense in this one that the environment is growing and developing as time goes on. At first it's all tents and temporary housing, no shop, no museum, most of it's locked behind impassable rivers and cliffs, but with time, several large payments to Tom Nook, and enough inevitable fucking crafting to soak up more PVA glue than any unsupervised school child could consume in a lifetime, you gradually turn this mysterious exotic wilderness into yet another Animal Crossing consumerist hellhole identical to the last one. Tom Nook is the living embodiment of the Grey Goo scenario. You could call it 
development of the island the game's story campaign, if you want, much as that would be like putting a dead dog on a swing and calling it an adventure playground. But that might be missing the point, because the point of Animal Crossing is that there is no point. Oh, there are plenty of overt challenges you can distract yourself with, get all of the fish, get all of the furniture, make all the animal people dress up in swastika patterns jumpers, but all that matters is that you are distracted. Now obviously Nintendo didn't know a pandemic and global lockdown was going to happen, and I'm certainly not saying they orchestrated it alongside a shadowy cabal of global corporations to reaffirm their grip on power. To reiterate, I am not saying that, Nintendo, you can stop sending the Frighteners around now. But Animal Crossing couldn't have come out at a better time, because it offers something that is sorely needed. Stability. Keep hold of your Nintendo Switch through every water war and bandit raid in the coming years, and you will always have a little place that will never change, where the grass is always green and the peaches always look like tiny pairs of perfect buttocks, and where the owl at the museum always says the exact same 19 fucking lines of dialogue when I just want him to assess some fucking fossils and shut his fucking face. But do you like Animal Crossing's New Horizons, Yahtzee? Say that's the wrong question. Of course I don't, but I still play it. It's full of little annoyances I could nitpick about, but I strongly suspect it's the flaws that make it absorbing. Of course smacking rocks doesn't just drop crafting resources, it has to parcel them out based on how many times you can smack it in 10 seconds, so you feel motivated to try and beat that record. Of course we can't skip the interminably repetitive dialogue and fish puns, because our eventual payout from the morning's fishing will be all the sweeter for having put in the slog. Of course the owl always says the same fucking thing, because if they said something different for once we'd all be struck with terror at the sudden injection of chaos into our ordered little world, the way a suburban community reacts when a black person moves in. And annoying as it is that there's only so much you can do until you have to wait another day, it's well documented that that's how these games turn into habits. If you set out to masturbate once a day, within about two weeks you're not even doing it because you want to anymore. You're all like, well what can I do? Hands tied, it's wank o'clock. I know most people come here for knob gags, or because you refuse to believe I'm actually still doing this every week, but for those of you coming for purchasing advice, be apprised of two things before you buy Final Fantasy VII Remake. Firstly, if you go in the shop and make the ooh this Final Fantasy's going on an awfully long time joke, then I think the staff are now legally permitted to push you down a fire escape. And secondly, if you saw the title Final Fantasy VII Remake, and from the words Final Fantasy VII and Remake are now expecting a remake of the game Final Fantasy VII, then you might be disappointed. Final Fantasy VII Remake ends at the bit where you leave the first city, or about one third of the way through the first disc of the original PS1 game. Although it takes about 40 more hours to get there, because it's padded like an A cup on school picture day, so there's been some contention over whether this is false advertising, or a new take on the subject matter with better character exploration. I think a lot of this could have been cleared up if they'd titled the game Final Fantasy VII Remake Episode 1, but maybe they didn't want to commit. I mean, at the rate they're going, by the time they get to the last episode it'll probably get pushed back by the heat death of the universe. I hope they are doing more episodes, because the plot as it stands is painfully unresolved. The bulk of what we get might as well be retitled Cloud Strife versus the Manic Pixie Dream Girls. You are Cloud Strife, the original pretty anime sword boy, whose entire life consists of being worked by one Manic Pixie Dream Girl after another while he grumps like a teenage boy being forced to escort his sister to the zoo. It starts with him being dragged into an eco-terrorist group by Manic Pixie Dream Girl number one, big titted childhood friend girl, who, if this were a dating sim, I would have classified as the freebie. He gets Manic Pixied by her for a few chapters before another terrorist bombing goes awry, he falls off a high thing and lands almost literally in the lap of Manic Pixie Dream Girl number two, flower seller with mysterious past who drives the rest of the plot. All of this is adhering closely to the original, and it was just as much a lurching tonal shift back then, when one moment we're having a desperate climactic battle with the evil corporation's murder robot in an exploding facility, and the next we're helping Manic Pixie Dream Girl number two with her grocery shopping, and watching her give out flowers and be kind to all the orphan children, as the townsfolk murmur about how perfect and wonderful and generally too pure for this sinful earth she is. But that doesn't bother me, laid on as it is, thicker than a mammoth skin rug, what does is that the storytelling feels confused. Not confusing, confused. There's this whole new chapter between terrorist bombing 1 and 2, in which Cloud gets latched onto by Manic Pixie Dream Girl 1.5, and it's all over the place like a living room full of aborted Lego projects. First there's a motorbike chase, and then a motorbike boss fight with a mulleted dude who feels threatened by your motorbike prowess and nicer hairdo, then we have to sneak around someone's mum's house and the pace slows right down, before speeding right back up again when we go to a facility to battle some evil corporate soldiers, and then oh no, mullet dude shows up for another boss fight, and then oh no, evil robots come 
come to kill us, but oh yay, Mullet Dude smashes the robots because he respects us now, but then he fucks off and oh no, the robots are still working, so what was the fucking point of any of that? Then oh yay, a rival terrorist cell shows up to cover our escape, but oh no, they've taken Wedge, but oh yay, Wedge comes straight back. And then a prolonged sequence ensues where our heroes pull Wedge's trousers down and inspect his buttocks. As I say, confused. Like they were tag teaming out the writers every ten minutes and they weren't allowed to talk to each other. And at some point someone must have said, hey, you know Sephiroth, the iconic villain of the game who all the fangirls irrigate their inner thighs over, isn't he, like, barely in the first bit of the game? Doesn't his proper introduction only happen right after the bit where our game stops? Well, I wish you'd brought this up sooner, Clemens. Alright, let's have the main character hallucinate Sephiroth a bunch of times. Then at the very end, as you're leaving the city, a magic portal to space will appear and you have to go through and fight Sephiroth on the moon. Any questions? Yes, several. I don't know what the fuck's going on at the end there. I feel sorry for anyone playing this game with no knowledge of the original. Blimey, my pretty anime sword boy daydreams about Gwyneth Paltrow a lot. I've got no nostalgia for the original game. I think I was in the room when someone was playing it once, and I was more interested in the Twix I was very slowly eating at the time, and I found the remake to be a mixed experience. I was having fun while I was in the gambling town, and Cloud had to dress up as a lady and become somehow irresistible to men, despite looking like a frumpy Amish spinster who spent last night sleeping with her head in the feeding trough. But that's a cultural thing. I'm English, and therefore the funniest things in the world to me are men dressing as ladies and the concept of social mobility. I like when the game is padding itself out with new story stuff, like having to beat a hairdresser in a dance-off before he'll consent to do your bangs. I don't like it when it pads itself by copy-pasting the same sewer tunnel 19 times and then collapsing the floor underneath our fat anime ass. so we have to slog through the 19 identical sewer tunnels to get back to the place we were just fucking at. This happens more than once. As for the combat, I was liking it up to a point. You attack, block, and dodge in real time until you fill the meter and then you get to pause to contemplate what special move will best exploit the enemy weaknesses. It felt like a nice way to balance the chaotic battling with thoughtful strategy. But over time, as the challenge ramps up, you need to rely more on your party members and your party members are as much use as an anti-capitalist protester on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I was wondering why they had so much trouble building up a single special move in the time it took me to get three special moves deep, and then I spotted the dude with the gun arm, old Mr. Introverted Japanese person's idea of what black people are like, firing round after round into a nearby handrail. I have to keep taking over to show them how to do it, it's like teaching a room full of six-year-olds how to type. So once again, a hybrid combat system in a modern JRPG fails to convince me that its way is better than the old method of having the characters stand in a neat row and take it in turns. It might not have been spectacular, but it was a damn sight more polite. I guess spectacle is all that matters in JRPGs these days, that's why half the time in combat the deep shadows and particle effects mean I can barely tell what the fuck's going on. You know what was really spectacular, viewers? An epic three-disc adventure on the PS1 that was long because it had lots of stuff in it, and Final Fantasy VII Remake only managing to be as long as it was because a lot of it's copy-pasted like a suspiciously well-written undergraduate thesis feels like a slap in the face to those of us who remember a time when we could have nice things. And isn't that the story of my fucking life right now? Hey, remember when games had actual depth? Slap! No you don't! Hey, remember when you could go out to that frozen yoghurt place you like? Slap! No more of that! Hey, remember when you could get off on light BDSM? No slap? Oh, you tease. Uh-oh, I'm getting that uneasy tingling in my kneecaps. Either a big storm's about to hit town or XCOM is trying to do something new again. We've been through this XCOM, you're a perfectly nice turn-based isometric shooter with a sensible haircut, but you're going to ruin that haircut if you keep trying on different hats. Remember the Bureau? Remember XCOM Enforcer? Nobody else does. Don't worry, Artsy, our new game Chimera Squad has all the turn-based isometric action crossed with base management that you love. Well, like a blind dog on a crowded escalator, I'm sensing an upcoming but. But it's XCOM if it were a Saturday morning cartoon. I'm going to follow you down this rabbit hole, XCOM, but at the first sign of cave-in, I'm heading back and telling everyone you wanked yourself to death. So after all that unpleasantness in XCOM 2, Earth has been liberated, but there are still a bunch of aliens who missed the last bus home to planet Fuckface, and so everyone shrugged and decided to try giving this living together in harmony thing a crack. In the integrated utopia of City 31, named I assume by someone who didn't intend to get attached to it, a number of insurgent groups start brewing unrest and it's up to a diverse breakfast club of alien, human and hybrid soldiers to keep the peace, largely by kicking down doors and shooting everything with a face. So despite being an all-new take on the formula that adds to continuity, we're not so much in bold new 
new frontier territory of sequel as we are the slightly tacky seaside resort town of spin-off, as everything feels kinda scaled down. Which is inevitable now we're not defending the whole Earth, just one unimaginatively named city on it, since we're essentially a SWAT team consisting of discarded Mass Effect party members that turn-based combat missions all start with a breaching sequence where we stack up our four current lads, ladettes and lad neutrals on the entrances and choose in what precise manner we want to burst in and in what order we want to freely shoot whatever live-streaming Call of Duty players overlooked the wrong viewer's donation message today, before everyone cuddles up to the nearest chest-high wall and the usual XCOM foldy roll ensues. So the combat missions are all short and snacky and set in single rooms and there's absolutely no stealth, obviously, since none of the encounters take place in a hospital for the deaf. There's also no permadeath, any party member who gets knocked out comes away with naught but a mild boo-boo that can be entirely removed by letting them sit out a mission while the school nurse kisses it better. The phrase baby's first XCOM might leap to mind at this point and that's fairly apt, combat is certainly a fuckload easier when my team essentially gets to have a free go before the round even starts, possibly after having run crying to mum and dad, even more so when you enter the traditional latter stage of the XCOM playthrough when you've unlocked the really OP skills and once per mission isn't that big a handicap when half the missions are 10 minute runs through enemy occupied drive through Burger Kings, my go-to strategy eventually became get the big muton dude who looks like the shape of water got a protein powder sponsorship and let him run around behind enemy lines double fisting everyone, the enemy would keep targeting only him and he'd keep getting bonus attacks from the berserk rage response, then I'd just get my hacker lady to heal him up with her zero cooldown infinite range healing drone every round. It was like taking my pet land shark for a walk. But easier isn't necessarily lesser, the missions certainly flow a lot better when you don't have to spend half your time creeping through all the hidden crevices of the map wiping up the last couple of hidden dingleberries, and there's still the management stuff between missions, although that's been a bit simplified as well, reducing threat in a region now boils down to pressing the make everyone shake hands and promise to stop being naughty button, which does have a pretty long cooldown but it's no 20 day satellite manufacturing process. The management phase plays even more like a board game than usual, one of those really complicated ones with event cards and time tracks that your board game liking friend keeps trying to get you round their place to try out, and then they get huffy because you drank all the red wine before they finished populating the encounter deck, but you fucking promised we would just be playing Scrabble this week, Doreen! So the reason why there's no permadeath is that your squad members aren't random but fixed characters with unique personalities and skills. It reminds me of Agents of Mayhem, as does the art style, rather hauntingly at times, makes you wonder if the two games had designers in common or caught something off the same toilet seat. There's a diverse pack of human characters and then one token representative from all the main alien races, and long-time XCOM players might find this a bit of a lurch considering all the time prior games spent hammering home that the aliens are a right nasty bunch and you should lock them in a small room with your resident mad scientist and a My First Autopsy kit and laugh at their abject staring terror. To suddenly want to bang tambourines in the name of cultures living in harmony seems a bit insincere, but then again, all the aliens have normal human voices, personalities and American accents and wear normal human jumpers, the point I assume being that aliens have been invading Earth for long enough to go native, but for a game ostensibly about the benefits of diversity, there's no culture clash here. Everyone's just a human with a weird face, nobody's got a beef with each other, and some of your dudes were true believing enemy competence during the occupation, probably went to at least one human baby fondue party and all that means now is that they're a bit of a grumpy dick. And the enemy isn't much of a presence, character-wise, oh we certainly get told about the enemy faction leaders and the various puppy dogs they've brutalised, but it might have been nice to cut away to them smoking doobies with Skeletor now and again to establish that. The first we actually interact with them is as they look up in surprise when their backdoor deadbolt whizzes past their head, so the whole story aspect feels insipid. It reminds me of how they used to make toothless Saturday morning cartoons out of R-rated films like Robocop or Aliens, where the sidekick is a friendly alien who wears a propeller beanie and keeps getting their head stuck in things. On top of that there's a generally unpolished feel, a flickering graphic here, some poorly formatted text there, maybe Fireaxis had their B team working on this or they took the Red Bull machine out of the lobby and everyone lost morale, but in summary, if anything's going to sell you on XCOM Chimera Squad it's the gameplay. As I say, it's like XCOM but different and not necessarily worse, so I guess there was a positive message about diversity in here all along. Whether you're unique or randomly generated, all of us can unite over the fact that missing a 97% chance to hit is total fucking bullshit. The connecting theme for this week's double bill is dystopias and places that are generally shitty to live
live in, which isn't much of a theme, I admit, because that's every game. A game set in a place where everything's going swimmingly wouldn't have much of a game to speak of, and sometimes you can be set in a dystopia and still not have much of a game to speak of, which masterful segue brings us to our first title, Cloudpunk, a story-focused science fiction DoorDash simulator. Cloudpunk is a game that makes for some very impressive screenshots, it's set in a layered and detailed cyberpunk city all built out of voxels, yeah, ask your dad about those, kids, and a recommendation is probably going to come down to how many times you personally feel like you could watch the first five minutes of Blade Runner, because the scenery doesn't change much. We play as Rania, a wide-eyed newcomer to the city who gets a job for an illicit delivery service and actually gets a vehicle which puts her one up on that mirror's edge chick. Through a predetermined sequence of deliveries to various quirky characters throughout the course of a single night shift, Rania and her trusty sidekick, an AI hover car that thinks it's a dog, embark upon an epic quest to find some fucking gameplay. For every delivery mission boils down to go to icon on map, talk to person. Occasionally we dip into advanced mode, or we have to go to icon on map within a generous time limit, or go to icon on map then hunt around for parking space on map. You earn money, but the only things to spend it on are refueling every hour or two, or buying entirely cosmetic furniture to fill the apartment you visit like three times in the course of the game, so it's either pointless or an unsubtle satire on modern living. I suppose the driving around is slightly challenging when you have to weave three-dimensionally around traffic on the road, but you're in a flying car, you're only obliged to drive on the roads if you feel like role-playing as a sperm in a giant robot fallopian tube. You do go faster on roads, but outside the very occasional timed mission there's not much point in getting to Icon on map quickly, as half the time I'd get there and have to sit frigging myself with the handbrake waiting for the unskippable mid-journey conversation with quirky passenger du jour to finish, so I could trigger the quest completion and then frig myself with the handbrake for another three minutes waiting for the unskippable conversation that sets up the next mission. But this all indicates that Cloudpunk is intended to be a story game first, and to sit here whining about gameplay is to demand sausage rolls at the vegan buffet. Through a linear series of encounters with unique characters, Cloudpunk builds a well-realised world of human AI tension, inequality, corporate oppression, and all the usual bollocks cyberpunk goes on about. And at various times, Rania has to make moral choices which have the usual long-term effect on the story, i.e. little if any. But the story really falls flat for me around one major central point like a six-inch nail in a souffle, I just don't like Rania as a character. She's come to this city she knows little about and openly hates, from some kind of small nation of hipsters that you probably haven't heard of, but trust me it's much better. Half the characters she meets are obnoxious in some cartoonishly overdone way, just so she can get all judgy at them, and they keep foisting important missions and major life decisions onto her because they watched her drunkenly banging into lampposts and doing very unpleasant things to the handbrake for two minutes, and decided she had the wisdom of the ages. I might have preferred Cloudpunk if it were Euro Cyber Truck Simulator and just had me randomly deliver stuff while I listened to podcasts, and it told its story more covertly through background details rather than make me sit and listen to what Rania thinks about something that's none of her sodding business. But let's move on to our second game, Streets of Rage 4, which in stark contrast to Cloudpunk has loads of gameplay, to a fault almost, for you see it's an update to the classic Streets of Rage arcade brawlers set in a dystopian city where the standard form of greeting is the roundhouse kick. And when I say update, I mean they made the graphics really nice, and bugger all else. Really, really nice, mind, it's all hand-drawn and beautifully animated and your gaze slides around it like balls on a greased-up pool table, but your dude still animates like they're walking to the side when they're moving up and down. So it's your standard arcade brawler stuff. You play as the dude who's strong or the lady who's fast, or the dude who's really strong or the lady who's really fast because they got twice as much dude stroke lady energy. You go from room to room beating up predetermined clusters of backup dancers from a Michael Jackson video, and there is nothing more nourishing and restorative than scarfing down an entire greasy chicken that you found in a bin. Oh yes, and you have three lives to beat each level and if you run out it's all the way back to the start. Which was only ever reasonable back when these games were designed to steal quarters and even then only to shareholders. You've got my fucking money, Streets of Rage 4, you don't need my blood and teeth as well. I ended up having to play through every level at least twice because it's hard to get a feel for the boss's attacks and weaknesses on your very first attempt while they're relentlessly smashing you in the face so hard that bogeys shoot out of your ass. so I'd run out of lives and the game would get very fucking cute and say would you like to replay the level with one additional life in return for taking half points? Firstly, feet of strange roar, why didn't you tell me that was an option before I went out and embarrassed myself? And secondly, save your charity for fucking tax season. I know myself, and I know exactly what would happen if I had one extra life, I'd get overconfident and swiftly lose it from something stupid, like falling off a ledge or forgetting to breathe. My problem with Streets of Shade 4 is that it's a game designed for confidence 
thousand people. Your devastating special moves cost health to use, but you get the health back if you can land the next few hits without getting hit yourself, meaning that you become more effective the more confidence you have in your skills. And I doubt that this is the arena for a breakthrough where several years of therapy and alcohol abuse has fallen short. But I'd replay the level enough times, memorize enough encounters, and dodge enough devastating enemy attacks by moonwalking six inches downwards, and I'd eventually struggle through and defeat the boss, whereupon the status screen would usually very grandly award my performance a D rank, which is always a buzzkill. It's like I finally collapsed into my tent after a long day of successful arctic exploration, whereupon one of the huskies trotted over and pissed on my head. And this was only normal difficulty, talk about a skill ceiling, this is the Sistine fucking chapel. Still it looks good and the hits are nice and juicy, and if you are a fan of the old arcade brawlers then it's aimed squarely at you with a laser dot and a sniper scope. As for broader appeal, it's either a little too late for the nostalgic retread of the 16-bit arcade era, or a little bit too early for the nostalgic retread of the nostalgic retread. Let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. Way back in the aughts, when live service was still just a term travelling business people used to put back alley suck jobs on their expense reports, there was a little game called World of Warcraft. It's not so popular these days, now all the kids are wearing ironic hats and giving each other live services in Fortnite. I'm sure some people are still playing WoW, but I'm afraid to look it up for the same reason I don't want to lift one of the big rocks in my garden for fear of what might crawl out. But back in the day, WoW was the frontrunner in the field of games that are second jobs where you have to pay to come to work. And you can't be that popular for that long and that full of fancy twats like a cosmetic gynaecologist's example catalogue without generating a few jolly interesting moments in gaming history. Like that time someone tried to hold a funeral for a real person and it got invaded by trolls. Because what the fuck did they expect? Hey Mr Troll, here's an opportunity to be the most inappropriate you'll ever be in your life, Pinky promised not to take it? It's like asking the school bullies to please not kick you in the balls because you have a tendency to make very embarrassing squeals. And then there's the subject of today's video, a suddenly relevant incident from 2005 in which World of Warcraft had to deal with an insidious globe-scarring plague other than itself. <laughs> On September 13th, 2005, players joined the server of Archimond World of Warcraft had this thing where they named servers from a 19th century book of baby names for very out of touch upper middle class people, and spawned in their preferred hub city to bask in the glow of patch 170. Then all of a sudden one of them coughed, then coughed again, then their health bar turned inside out and all their blood exploded. Soon every player in the near vicinity was turning into an Ebola fountain as the unkillable NPCs smilingly plied their trade awash in infected phlegm, ensuring that not even constant mass player genocide could stop the breakout. What the fuck was going on? An unannounced world event, the fanboys began dutifully praising Blizzard's innovative spirit and chiding the complainers for not getting it as they died in helpless agony over and over again, and meanwhile the Blizzard offices became ankle deep in anxious urine trying to figure out why this was happening. The answer it turned out lay in a newly introduced raid instance called Zulgarub, which you'll notice an anagram of buggers up if you spell it completely wrong. The infection was in fact a debuff called Corrupted Blood, intended to spread from player to player but not intended to exist outside of Zulgarub's final boss fight with Hakkar the Soul Flayer. Yeah, everything in World of Warcraft was named like that. Yeah, you have to remember, Fortnite players, that this was before your generation invented irony. The disease was supposed to go away after the subject died or killed Hakkar the bull fondler, but like an irresponsible holidaymaker, Blizzard forgot about the fucking pets. Players whose pets contracted corrupted blood during the boss fight would despawn the pets before they died and said pets would be preserved in stasis infection and all until the next time they were let out to go plop plops in the overworld. But knowing where it came from didn't help much once it was out there and turning all the major population centres into oceans of skeletal corpses on a scale rarely seen outside fashion model conventions, Blizzard suggested that players observe quarantine protocols, but not enough people took them seriously. Presumably because they had nine panther clitorises for a quest giver in Ironforge and no public health order from the actual all-knowing gods of the universe was getting between them and their slightly better pair of adventuring trousers, goddammit. But when it became clear that the plague wasn't stopping anytime soon and it began spreading to other servers and players were faced with the hideous prospect of having to log off for a while and perhaps even leave the house, god forbid, the really interesting behaviour started. Players started channeling their inner white suburbanite and fled the cities for the relative peace of the countryside. With no apparent organisation, cordons were formed to 
advise others away. Healers coordinated to keep people alive. Higher level players with enough health to ride out the infection voluntarily went into the cities to see if they could get a handle on things. All of which might give one optimism for humanity, were it not for two things. One, it was in World of Fucking Warcraft, and two, it was ultimately as much use as bubblegum toilet paper because of all the other players. On the one hand there were the rubberneckers, people logging in who wanted to see all this interesting carnage they'd heard about because this was only four years since the 9-11 attacks and there'd been nothing since then that had made for quite as good television. And then there were the trolls, the griefers, and oh boy this was like all their snow days had come at once and they were going to do everything they could to keep it going. Some of them started hiding out in the mountains, continually reinfecting each other so at the first sign of the infection clearing up somewhere they could run down and lick all the doorknobs. So between them and the tourists it was clear that the plague was never going to get a chance to clear up. And so Blizzard had no option but to contact one of the figureheads of the quarantine effort and have him construct a giant wooden boat in which he was directed to place two of every monster so that they could send a rainstorm for 40 days and 40 nights. Now nah, I'm fucking with you, they just hard reset the servers. Bit anticlimactic, really. But Blizzard were inspired by this debacle, and in 2008 orchestrated a deliberate, not quite as contagious global plague of zombie virus to promote the Wrath of the Lich King expansion, whereupon the player base agreed in one voice that global plague events are actually kinda lame. Bit anticlimactic, really. If you enlightened viewers in the modern age of less blurry screenshots are seeing some eerie parallels between the corrupted blood incident and certain real life current events, you aren't alone. In fact, academics took an interest in the incident for what it might tell us about real life pandemics, particularly the sociological effects. But others argued that it taking place in a video game with zero real life consequences limited the usefulness of the data. After all, it's not like people in the real world would just casually blow off an official quarantine order when there's honest to goodness life and death on the line. Dear me, no! And as for the people who'd get the infection and try to pass it to others deliberately, why that would require nothing less than a fundamental breakdown of education and governance. Surely people understand that there are no hard resets in real life, unless you count tactical nuclear strikes. Yes, I suppose this episode is more of a let's all laugh at a humanity that never learns anything tee hee hee, but for me it's nice to see something confirmed that I could have told these academics at any time. That if they want a case study for the most irrational behaviour of which human beings are capable, then a good place to start might be the people who willingly pay a monthly subscription to waste their free time scraping up imaginary murloc bellends. Well, Doom and RE3 and Final Fantasy were probably the last few squirts of mung we're going to get out of AAA Gaming's gas-bloated corpse for a while yet. It's been a right pain in the ass finding things I want to review this week. I thought about just typing the word fuck 8,000 times, but I need to save genius ideas like that for the end of year roundups. No, I think we're just going to have to go super cash this week. Hey, did you play anything interesting or relevant, Yahtzee? Not really, I spent most of the week leaning on jukeboxes and making double finger guns at the sexy honeys. Hey, that's cool with me because I'm super cash. So what did you play? Well, I did play quite a bit of Void Bastards because the title drew me in with two of my favourite things, nihilism and swearing. And it just came out on consoles, so hey, this is almost relevant. Void Bastards is a first person shooter with retro style graphics complete with sprite based enemies, the kind of thing we'll probably keep seeing a lot of in indie games until nostalgia trends move on from the retro FPS era to the age of post 9-11 neoconservatism. Ah, but Void Bastards has something else that helps it stand out and different to all the other indie games, it's also a roguelite. I almost said that with a straight face. Void Bastards concerns a prison transport ship lost in some distant armpit of space where an AI voiced by the bloke who narrated the Stanley Parable, who really seems to be cornering the market on faintly sinister budget Stephen Fry impersonations, thaws out a succession of prisoners to go aboard derelict vessels and loot them for resources and crafting materials, while fending off a variety of insane mutant humans that keep yelling at them in overdone comedy voices. So tone-wise it's what you'd get if you locked Borderlands in a succession of small restrictive maps and forced it to listen to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy audiobooks while smashing its fingers with a hammer every 20 minutes. And at first I rather liked it. I liked 
liked the cynical comedy tone and the way it effectively created this sense of being trapped in a forgotten sub-sub-butthole of a vast hideous interstellar bureaucracy, but after playing for a while I had no idea what I was working towards, story-wise. The narrator makes a search the network of derelicts for the specific crafting items that will advance the plot, and the plot usually advances to find another bunch of specific crafting items. It makes me think of when people told me to give Pathologic a chance, and I said it made me bored and confused, and they said, that's the idea, it's a game designed to evoke the banality and confusion of being a sad Russian doctor that everyone wants to punch. In which case I congratulate the excellent job it did realising those intentions, but I'm still not going to play it anymore. And I wonder if Void Bastards has a similar thing going on, that it might be trying to evoke the central theme by making you feel like you're trapped forever in a repetitive bureaucratic purgatory. Because well done if it is, but I rapidly get sick of it, the procedural levels get very samey, and after the difficulty ramps up I turn a corner and somehow six dudes would have all very procedurally decided to hang around the same coffee machine. Whereupon the you done fucked up music kicks in, everything starts darting about yelling at me in hilarious regional accents, I get flustered, cock-ups keep cascading, I blow my own legs off with a cluster bomb, and frankly I just don't want to keep playing, as it's upsetting to be constantly reminded of my last disastrous attempt at a workplace massacre. And that's why I didn't play it long enough to review it properly, but I'm sure you'll forgive me because we're all super cash here. Hey, so let's talk about another game I still haven't finished, Ion Fury. Hey, that's also a retro-style sprite-based FPS, and it also just came out on consoles. Is this a theme? No, we don't need a theme, we're super cash, fuck you. I mean, hey. And besides, playing a retro FPS on consoles is like driving a car in high heels and with socks on your hands because you needed somewhere to put them after you changed into the high heels. Ion Fury used to be called Ion Maiden, but then the band Iron Maiden got shitty and made them change it to something that doesn't mean anything. I think they were worried, perhaps reasonably, that their fanbase are too old and or drugged up to notice an R going missing. So do you remember that god-awful bombshell game from a few years back where 3D Realms were trying to make up for all those female characters in the Duke Nukem games whose tits had higher billing than the rest of them by making a top-down shooter with a female protagonist whose entire personality was still based around being a female protagonist and then stood around looking pleased with themselves because they finally solved gender relations. Well, they thought that character was worth hanging on to because here she is again in a Duke Nukem 3D style FPS about fighting an evil scientist in a cyberpunk city or something. And by Duke Nukem 3D style I mean literally made in the same engine as Duke Nukem 3D, meaning that the full game has a file size smaller than, say, a really high definition image of my left bollock. So we have the classic build engine environments that so effectively recreate urban cityscapes made out of giant cereal boxes, the usual fast-paced no-frills shooty action of retro style FPS, and most importantly all those wonderful dated pop culture references that speckle build engine shooters like itchy red spots on a dose of the clap. On top of that, I fully endorse 3D realms of all game creators turning back the clock 20 odd years to try to get a sense of what the fuck's been going wrong since then. Ion Fury brings back lovely nostalgic memories of my youth when I would stay up long into the night carefully airbrushing the nipple tassels from a screenshot of a pixelated stripper. So in theory it's a game I should like. But then again, in theory my dog's butthole has no nutritional value and doesn't taste very nice, but he seems determined to test this theory every chance he gets. I think I like playing Ion Fury, but I still haven't finished it, and every time I load my last save I advance one corridor and decide I haven't recatalogued my porn folders in a while. Why is this? My conscious brain goes, this is fun and quite visually impressive for an engine that looks like paper cutouts sliding around in cereal boxes, but maybe that's it. Making a game in an obsolete engine is rather blatant gimmickry, like making a sex doll out of toast. Impressive, yes, but a more fitting material wouldn't leave so many crumbs under my foreskin, and build engine games have plenty of qualities that I'm quite glad we've left behind, like maze-like samey levels based around key hunting and the inability to look down at things from above without the graphics bursting into tears like an prepared spelling bee contestant being thrown manoeuvre at the end of a long night. Oh dear listeners, it seems that throughout the course of this video I suddenly became over-nostalgic shooters. That's how quickly it can happen, kids. One moment you're innocently playing with your stuffed badger thinking girls are icky, the next BAM! You're waking up to a sticky patch on the bedsheets, and your mum angrily demanding to know what you did with all that toast. Uh-oh, here she comes. Watch out boys, she'll chew you up.
There, now you've got that song stuck in your head too. You're fucking welcome. So do you want another masterclass in giving your opinion away in the very first sentence? Here goes. Maneater is a concept that feels like it could have worked. It's a game where you play as a shark that has a beef with humanity, which it has chosen to process by turning humanity into beef, as it were. Tons of potential in the concept of playing as one of the stealthy assassins of the deep. I picture a game that's the diametric opposite of the Batman Arkham Predator missions, in that you're picking your targets from below rather than above, eyeing the legs of oblivious swimmers like they're a baby mobile covered in chicken drumsticks, before luring away select targets and eating them one by one to avoid panic the rest or attracting the fish police. That's not what Maneater is. Maneater is a game in which you as a shark beat yourself and then lollop around a sandbank like a space hopper full of custard, chowing down on screaming ambulatory kebab after screaming ambulatory kebab, who are so utterly helpless to stop you they might as well douse themselves in garlic sauce and get it over with. I think the developers were banking on the spectacle of a shark biting a dude in half somehow never getting old, and granted watching someone's son or daughter's hopes and dreams for their existence vanish in a screaming cloud of gore and teeth is fucking hilarious, but as the core activity of a six hour open world game, after a while I need more context. Who is this random fat person paddling across the surface like a blob of cum in a municipal pool? Do they regret their choices in life? Are they swimming in the sea because the day had finally come to turn things around and get some exercise? That might add some poignancy to my reducing them to my morning protein smoothie, but no, it's just another copy-pasted human silhouette to add to the body count. About the only person with any character beyond a terrified scream cut off by the sound of someone sitting on a plate of nachos is the main villain around whom the plot revolves, a shark hunter who killed our shark mum, who was in fairness being a real dick at the time, and to whom we give the full Captain Ahab treatment, gradually trimming down his limbs like a fucking human bonsai tree, until he's reduced to an insane, hate-ridden shell of a man, and honestly I felt bad for the guy, mainly because his boss fights were so fucking easy, and sold much the way I solved most of the challenges in the game, by pointing my shark at it, pressing forward and attack, and then holding onto the controller for dear life. By the end it was just sad. I was feeling like this shark hunter who gets another bit of himself chewed off every time he fights a shark probably missed his calling, as literally anything other than a shark hunter. Come on dude, this isn't funny anymore. And speaking of things that aren't funny, the tragic element of the story clashes somewhat with the general tone of the game as a goofy comedy strung together by a faintly smug narration by that bloke who plays the dad on Rick and Morty. Which I assume is why all the mission names are puns. There's this mission where you have to go into a cave, right? And the mission is named, brace yourself, Third Cave Feminism. I mean, I think the shark is established to be female, but she eats just as many women as men. So really they just took a random phrase with a word in it that rhymes with cave. And that's not a joke, that's the smear on a bedsheet that a joke left behind when it died. But let's get back to the gameplay challenge, or lack of same. Progression in Maneater is kind of World of Warcrafty. We complete grindy quests to eat ten of such and such to increase our level and move on to the next area. But at least in World of Warcraft, the things you're killing arbitrary numbers of would show some token unwillingness to be murdered. These quests either have you eat completely harmless prey fish that are just nonchalantly floating there in a big mass, like the free buffet at a dieters' convention with about the same life expectancy, or eat certain numbers of humans, which human society will naturally frown upon, but you can freely eat about six or seven of the buggers before your threat level raises enough to summon the fish police. And even then, if they shoot you dead, your quest progress isn't reset, so you just respawn, come straight back, and inhale four more dudes unmolested. About the only time things get interesting are when you have to fight other large oceanic predators in this game called Maneater, no less, but other shark eater probably didn't scan so well, because that's actually got a bit of skill and nuance to it. Can't just press forward and attack on these assholes, because they'll press forward and attack at you straight back. You have to be smarter, keep your distance, dodge their lunges, and then close in to nosh on their undefended buttholes. This is probably the highlight of the game, although it is slightly annoying that you can't permanently lock the camera onto your target, because when you're chasing each other around three-dimensional space, keeping track of where they are is like trying to have oral sex in a tumble dryer, but whatever. The game's so lacking for challenge everywhere else, I ain't gonna complain about the strand of pubic hair on its one successfully iced cupcake. Actually, even the Apex Predator fights get a lot easier as you go, when the environments advance from cramped swamps and inland lakes to clear ocean where you can see what you're doing, and when you figured out the dodge and nosh butthole strategy, and discover through trial and error what the fuck the game is even asking you to do when the bite down and shake quick time event comes up. Overall, Maneaters are a game that starts out boring and easy, and gets easier and more boring. You gain abilities and buffs by acquiring and swapping out different body parts, which doesn't even try to make sense in context, and once I had the teeth that restored health when I bit things, it was all over. Newsflash, I'm a fucking shark, my flipper 
workers can't hold up IKEA assembly instructions, so biting is the only thing I do all day. Suddenly the fish police can't reduce my health faster than I can get it back, but they still infinitely respawn, so my encounters with them only ended when I got bored of mashing forward and attack. If you want to be charitable, and I mean really charitable, like massively profitable corporation two weeks before tax season charitable, you might say Maneater is offering a power fantasy, in which you, the unstoppable, all-powerful apex predator, glide unchallenged through the deep, and all those self-important little swimmers up above live only by the grace of your satisfied tum-tum. That being the case, I wish someone would explain this to the fucking barracudas and every other low-level predator that keeps wanting to start shit, no matter how large and horrifying I get. Look, the health and XP I get from eating you are a pittance at this point, just go home and jerk off and yell at your barracuda wife if you want to feel better. I am swimming away to try to be the bigger man. Not that I need to try, because I'm the size of a fucking bus. Actually, there is an unlock that makes weaker enemies non-hostile, but this, game designers, is the sort of thing you shouldn't have to unlock, because it's common fucking sense. It's like needing to unlock the ability to wipe both ways. So after Microsoft bought Minecraft, they must have said, Haha, it's mine, all Minecraft. And we got it away from Notch before he went too weird on us. Now what shall we do with it? And in reply, the thought waves of the Microsoft corporate hive mind emitted only cricket noises. Telltale Games came along and said, Hey, I know, let's make a choices matter except not really episodic adventure game. Oh, piss off, Telltale Games. You tried to turn my last colonic endoscopy video into a choices matter except not really episodic adventure game? Choices matter except not really episodic adventure games are not the answer to everything, especially not questions like how is Telltale Games going to unfuck itself? So the question remained, what to do with Minecraft? Minecraft is a pure sandbox creativity game set in an infinite number of randomly generated functionally infinite worlds. What you gonna do? Make a sequel that has twice as much functionally infinite content? Or built of slightly larger cubes? This isn't like Halo or Gears of War, you can't just slowly fade in the logo with an incremented number on the end and watch an auditorium of fanboys drench each other in cum. Minecraft is a hobby, it's the model train set of the 21st century. Minecraft fans don't want sequels that just repackage what they've already got and fuck up all the mods. They just want the odd content patch to add slightly taller iron fences and giraffes and pastry lamination, and that's a difficult thing to cut a pulse-pounding hype trailer around. But you can't just buy something and then keep it as it is forever, this isn't a fucking art gallery. And so Minecraft Dungeons had to be made, a game that is the equivalent of moving your hand in a circular motion and going eh, because you feel obliged to say something, anything, to fill the silence. In case I wasn't making this clear, I believe there's a fundamental issue with Minecraft Dungeons on the conceptual level. It's an isometric hack and slash dungeon crawler for up to four players, and while yes there are swords in Minecraft, and yes there are things you can hit with the sword in Minecraft, it was never more than an incidental hassle to make it all the more satisfying when you finally finished your roller coaster shaped like Nicky Minaj lying on her back, or whatever your project was. To base your spin-off around something so incidental to the point of Minecraft is to spin right off it, out the garage, and down a storm drain. Essentially all Microsoft has done is slap Minecraft's art style onto a completely unrelated game, and I'm pretty sure part of Minecraft's identity lies in how it looks like absolute shit. Oh, the style functions as intended, sure, but there's a reason why Minecraft projects only look impressive once they go past a certain size. Cause close up, everything looks like it's made from family pack sized boxes of ricicles. And the art is literally the only thing connecting dungeons to Minecraft, you could swap out everything for Monopoly board pieces and retitle it the day Uncle Pennybags finally snapped, and it would work just as well. Not that this precludes Minecraft Dungeons from being a fun and interesting game, no, it's everything else that does that. Let's start with the plot. In the peaceful land of Microsoft's Minecraft registered trademark, a bitter and vengeful villain randomly finds a Triforce, I mean Cosmic Cube, I mean generic all-powerful MacGuffin, invariably taking the form of a simple geometric shape that glows a bit, and then a numberless horde of generic monsters pour out of his armpits, and now you, the hero stroke heroes, must fight to liberate the innocent residents of whatever they're calling this place. And all of this is established with what I can only describe as a sense of disengagement inevitability. The story is set up with a very bored sounding narration, and very little time is wasted on establishing how or why we, the heroes, found ourselves in this situation. You are heroes, and there are baddies currently standing around being alive and not asphyxiating on their own teeth, and that's all the motivation you're getting. What I wonder is if the human minions of the villain ever look at the zombies and skeletons and kamikaze hedges they're forced to work alongside and regret dropping out of higher education. But don't worry about it, this is the tokenist of token plots to add token context to an extremely token game. Not a particularly long game either, just eight or nine token levels in token biomes before a token final boss and a token ending. It is a better embodiment of token than a Chuck E. 
Cheese Arcade with one black employee. So it's definitely trying for the co-op focus, it's got all the signs, online is the default mode and single player offline mode you have to opt into with that air of tacit disapproval multiplayer games always project, like a waiter in a posh restaurant when you ask if you could just have a side without an entree. You have to go back to the hub stroke matchmaking zone between every level, and every cutscene shows three extra dudes mysteriously accompanying you like they're the documentary film crew. But I played the whole game solo and never once felt I was missing out. There are no classes or much in the way of support abilities that emphasise cooperation. Every level is just getting funnelled along a path and stabbing a number of dudes large enough to be stimulating to fight in an escaping from a room full of balloons kind of way, but not large enough that extra help was needed. In fact, with Minecraft's box ottoman space program art style that means every character has the exact same silhouette, having three other blockheads running around could only make things more visually confusing, like dropping your last watermelon Jolly Rancher into a box of Lego. As for the core gameplay, you pick a weapon, the Minecraft sword, the Minecraft axe, the Minecraft pickaxe or the Minecraft halberd if you don't mind completely breaking down the already thin facade, and then you go from room to room swatting it at anything that moves. And yes, I have been putting off bringing up the core gameplay, well deduced Inspector Poirot, because frankly there's nothing particularly wrong with it. It's a competent enough combat grind with all the right impacts and balances, it does present a difficulty slider before each level, which usually for games like this would strike me as developer shorthand for please balance our game for us, we couldn't be bothered, but I rarely felt the need to tweak it. If you are determined to have fun with Minecraft Dungeons like it was the only thing your mother got you for your birthday and she's going to break out the wire coat hanger if you don't seem appreciative, then you might well find fun, or at the very least distraction from what sounds like a very unhealthy home environment. But the point is, the inoffensiveness of the gameplay makes it as substantial as a puff of air. And Minecraft Dungeons is as much Minecraft as a balloon with a Minecraft logo printed on it. Potentially amusing if you let the air out so it makes a farting noise, but still just a big ball of air with fuck all to do with the original. Even that Telltale Adventure game remembered to put some crafting in it for fuck's sake, it was a join the dots version of a Da Vinci masterpiece but it was something. I don't know what you could comfortably add to Minecraft Dungeons to make it more like the authentic Minecraft experience. Replace the main villain with an aggrieved little brother holding a bucket of lava. Shantae and the Seven Sirens, as well as being a title tailor-made to get the maximum amount of spit all over my laptop screen, is a retro-style platformer by WayForward Games with an art style reminiscent of a certain genre of Japanese anime, the kind that projects a wholesome, upbeat, innocent vibe but is somehow at the same time unrelentingly horny. Shantae's thesis statement is made in the very first frame of the opening cinematic, which is a zoomed-in shot of the main character's bare midsection as it writhes about like a freshly neutered cat trying to lick its own balls. But while anime-styled, I had a hunch that it wasn't actually Japanese, which one quick Google search later was proved correct, WayForward are based in California. What gave it away is, while the horniness of Japanese anime isn't in dispute, in the family-friendly sector at least it's always had this air of plausible deniability. If you told the animators of Sailor Moon, for example, that people were jerking off to the transformation sequence, you might expect them to at least feign surprise. Shantae has no such subtlety, not when all the female NPCs are wearing bikini tops and stand around jiggling like they're desperate for the loo, as do about 50-60% of the monsters. The very first major boss fight is against a giant girl in a bikini top, whose attack cycle involves yawning and throwing her arms up a lot. But hey, maybe this says more about me than Shantae. Sure, every pose Shantae adopts during dialogue sequences in some way involves stretching or leaning forward, but maybe her back hurts. Maybe I'm just projecting the horniness I brought to the table, so let's talk about the game. It kinda sucks. Oh well, back to the tits. Shantae is a half-genie girl, presumably the top half, who comes to a tropical island resort along with several other half-genie girls who all it seems independently decided to show up wearing about two dish towels apiece, which must have been embarrassing. In short order, all the other half-genies get mysteriously abducted and Shantae has to venture into an undersea labyrinth to rescue them from the monstrous Seven Sirens who all wear bikini tops, while also dealing with a redoubtable pirate queen with her own agenda and a bikini top. Maybe there was a fabric shortage, and everyone donated their sweaters to be made into nightgowns for underprivileged babies, and that's why they're jiggling around so much because they're really jazzed about the nightgowns. Sorry, yes, gameplay, I remember that. Seven Sirens is the first Shantae game to be a true Metroidvania, that is, set in a single interconnected world. Previous Shantae's were more hub-based, Metroidvania-adjacent, metroid fane ear if you will. You get new abilities from saving the other half-genies that open up more areas in the world map, but ironically for such 
such a titty game, the environments seem kind of flat, as in dull and without much variety beyond colour scheme. As for the core gameplay, it's really quite amazingly off balance, and I'm not talking about the jiggling. For your basic attack, you whip your hair back and forth, whip your hair back and forth, which can be upgraded to do a whole three more damage and go from quite fast to instant severe spinal injury fast. And that's about it as far as evolution goes. A lot of the boss fights involve the boss standing in one place for long periods because anything else might require work or something that doesn't involve jiggling in a bikini top, so you spend a lot of time just standing in place, spamming attack, whipping your hair back and forth, whipping your hair back and forth, until your neck bones are reduced to a handful of gravel that your head sits on. Then there's magic spells and dances. Hair attacks and dance attacks? What is this, the Bayonetta Saturday morning cartoon? You buy combat spells like a fireball and a homing missile that do about the same damage as your hair, assuming they land, but the thing is, not long into the game you unlock a lightning summoning dance for free that does more damage to everything on screen for about half as much magic, which seems a bit unbalanced. Yes, the dance takes longer to do, but not to the point that it stops making sense to use, just to the point of making gameplay slightly more annoying. I say dance, you hold down a button, Shantae stands like she's balancing a plate on her head for a bit, then you press another button and a thing happens, accompanied with a picture of an unrelated girl in a bikini top in case you forgot the game's thesis statement. But I digress, when the electric dance subtracted any reason the spells had to exist, I was offended. Spells were just about the only things worth spending money on up to then. If I hadn't bothered, I could have maxed out my money capacity way earlier in the game. And I liked having that 999 in the corner, it was reassuring to know I'd always have a reminder of the British Emergency Services number. Yes, you can also buy health potions, but I never did, because the enemies drop food items like a cereal shoplifter getting their coat caught on a door handle. To the point that I eventually stopped bothering even trying to avoid being hit, just to get some use out of the stack of sandwich tuna that was spoiling the line of my harem pants. All of this goes together to make an almost insultingly easy game. The only bit I found remotely challenging was the final boss, against Mecha Girl in Bikini Top. Because all the platforms were moving, so the usual pro strat of stand in one place and whip your hair back and forth, whip your hair back and forth, didn't work so well. Even then, the main skill being tested was my ability to know when to strategically duck into the menu and inhale another cream bun from my trouser pantry. Pantsry? No, maybe not. The shitty balance and dull environments give the game an amateurish feel, and there's not a lot to recommend it. I suppose the animation's alright if you could never get enough motion tweening, but that word amateurish made me wonder. I'd seen Shantae games crop up before on Steam, and I assumed it was just more retro platformers from new indie developers to add to the pile, with the one unique selling point that it was apparently being drawn one-handed. But no, I looked it up, and the first Shantae game came out in 2002. It was on the Game Boy Color, for fuck's sake. Shantae's nearly 20 years old, which does make me feel better about masturbating to it. Wayforward games, it turns out, have kept the lights on over the years knocking out shitty licensed games, with Shantae being just about their only original IP, and this really threw me. If you'd worked as a cake decorator for 20 years, I might expect you to know how to do joined up writing by now, so what the fuck happened here? In the spirit of inquiry, I tried the previous Shantae game, Half Genie Hero, and you know what? It's not bad at all. The environments were lively and interesting, the gameplay was challenging, the first couple of bosses were jiggling bikini girls, yes, but incredibly, the next one wasn't. Also, Shantae's dancing actually looked like dancing, and not her exaggerating her fishing accomplishments. So Seven Sirens is apparently a developer getting lazy rather than not knowing any better, but man cannot live on horn alone. What happened to the ambition, WayForward Games? What happened to the creative drive that brought us, uh, Silent Hill Book of Memories? Wait, what? That was you? Well, fucking forget I said anything. Less ambition, please. Bikini tops all round. Of all boyhood fantasies, the ones before a certain age at any rate, before the hormones kick in and they all start to centre around your most attractive female teacher wielding a metre stick, there are none so enduring as the frontier cowboy fantasy. Who among us has not hooked their thumbs into their jeans while waiting for a bus, or tried on a long duster coat they found in a charity shop and then looked at themselves in the reflection off a window and thought, man, I would be so much cooler if I smelled like shit, 24-7, without having to move to downtown San Francisco. Oh, if only I could have been born in that wild, romantic age of the American frontier, when too many people had guns, minorities were oppressed, and people died constantly 
constantly of preventable disease. Whoa, let's leave that thought precisely where it is. I had a similar fantasy back in the day. It sure would be cool to be a cowboy, I thought. But you know what would be even cooler? Being a bodiless essence floating about a hundred feet above a cowboy, giving them really bad advice and watching them die over and over again. And that fantasy has finally been realised by Desperados 3, which can probably lay reasonable claim to being the best isometric real-time tactics stealth western game to come out this year. It is nice to see the series go back to the old name after the previous game in the franchise was named Hell Dorado by someone who I can only hope got the help they clearly needed, though the characters established in previous games all talk like they've never met before in Desperados 3, so if you were of a mind that a title with an incremented number implies some kind of continuity, then maybe you should fuck off back to Sensibleville and elect a competent person as president, asshole! Maybe it's a prequel yard. Oh shut up viewer, nobody likes you! Continuity doesn't matter when the cliches are this thick on the ground, nobody cares about the established canon of generic cowboy protagonist A. Plot-wise, generic cowboy protagonist A has rolled into town for the usual reason, he's looking for the man who shot his pa. Turns out the man who shot his pa is an enforcer for a villainous railroad company, which is pretty fucking lucky. If he'd been a local boy scout leader, things might have gotten morally complicated, but as it is, he's able to enlist a whole pack of western stock characters with their own grudges against the company. There's the no-nonsense hired killer, the spunky southern belle, the gruff hunter, the magic spellcasting witch who got lost on her way to another genre. So it's a mission-based isometric click-the-place-to-go-to-the-place sort of arrangement where your small group of characters must complete various objectives on a map while avoiding the visibility cones of patrolling hostiles by using the environment and your special skills. There's a sort of lost Vikings aspect in the way your characters have different abilities and have to work together. Southern Belle, for example, has the special skill of being seductive and can distract a single enemy, and then cowboy protagonist A can sneak up and slit their throat using their unique special skill of owning a knife. A helpful tutorial walks you through the basics. Here's how to move. Right. Here's the quick save button. Yep. Here's how to toss a coin to make someone look the other way. Classic stuff. Here's the quick save button. You already mentioned that. Did I? Yes, in those gigantic flaming letters over there. Oh, just making sure you know. Well, I know now, thank you, Desperados 3. Desperados 3? Yes. Why is there a dirty great counter smack in the middle of the screen? Oh, that's just showing how long it's been since you last saved. In case you forget. Have you saved lately? Maybe you should. Why the obsession with quick saving? What are you? A drive-through evangelist? You remember Cock-Up Cascade, right? The term I came up with for an unfortunate feature of many stealth action games where the slightest misstep means getting caught in a pylon of escalating fuck-ups, so you might as well just reload the instant you get spotted. Well, Desperados 3 is the patron saint of cock-up cascade. The cocks barely have a chance to come down again. The enemies all have visibility cones spread wider than your mum's legs when she hears a bottle opener, and you can only see one guard's cone at a time. On top of that, a lot of guards who look like they're staring straight ahead are in fact glancing back and forth like a nervous gazelle at a tennis match, covering an area the size of a conservatively proportioned aircraft hangar. So half the time you'll settle into the nice long slitting a throat animation and only then be informed that someone off screen is looking at you from their table at a delightful Parisian-style street cafe on the surface of Mars. And thus the cascade begins. Everyone in the map is alerted and rushes your position, more guards spawning on top of the existing ones is like the fucking fight scene at the end of the original Casino Royale. And while you do have a gun, you fire it once and then can't fire it again until you've remembered all the lyrics to the British Grenadiers and your special power to pause the game and queue up your next few actions at this point provides nothing besides the chance to take a moment and really drink in just how completely fucked you are. So don't kid yourself about making a stand, you're just gonna fucking quickload. It's not so bad in the early game, but before long levels are absolutely packed with enemies and overlapping patrol routes and it all turns into a sort of ultra-violent puzzle game, where the objective is to figure out the precise sequence of actions to pick off every enemy in a ascending order of gregariousness, quick saving with every inch of progress. An experience like untangling a huge ball of Christmas lights, turning it over and over, picking on loose bits, occasionally pulling on the wrong thing, getting electrocuted and making all the children scream. And the way the game very unsubtly highlights the quick save function indicates that save scumming is the intended method. I'm sure that was a much easier solution than tweaking the difficulty that meant the developers could get down the pub quicker, but I don't really like trial and erroring my way through a game. It doesn't make me feel smart or powerful, and all suspense is lost. Ooh, can you succeed in this challenge using only your wits, your cunning and your infinite 
zero consequence restarts. Yes, of course I fucking will, given enough time. I'm monkey typewritering this shit. So I'd finally drag myself across two miles of gravel to beat a map, and the game would tell me about all the extra challenges I might like to attempt. Beat the map without using hiding spots, without quick saving, in less time than it takes YouTube video essayists to get to the fucking point. And I'd say piss off, game. Becoming good at these maps seems like it'd be a matter of rote memorization. And that sounds even less fun to me, not being a speedrunner or similar flavour of nutcase. Yeah, I think not finishing this one isn't gonna haunt me. Let me fondle my crystal balls and predict the ending. Revenge is had on the man who shot our pa, the family ranch is saved, and at some point everyone lines up abreast and walks very slowly towards or away from something. There's a veritable pile of new ZP merch over at the Escapist Teespring store, so check it out if you haven't been there lately. Also, if you like these videos, remember you can support us by subscribing to the Escapist Plus and get to watch without ads amid other benefits. Or if you prefer YouTube, join the Escapist Channel Cool Kids Club to be able to watch these videos a week ahead of all the plebs. Alright, now we can shit all over The Last of Us 2. The Last of Us 2, then. Title's still not accurate, because there are quite a lot of people still alive in the Mumblecore apocalypse, although in fairness, the main characters seem to be doing everything they can to rectify this oversight. Now, don't get me wrong, viewer. Playing The Last of Us 2 was a pretty miserable experience. Kinda sounded like you were gonna say but there, Yahtzee. Mm, no. It's really fucking miserable and depressing, and I would have enjoyed my weekend more had I spent it teasing out my bum hairs with pliers. I used to think the Uncharted games rubbed me up the wrong way because they were too smug and quippy and didn't give all the murdering its due seriousness, but I guess that couldn't have been it, because Last of Us dialogue is mostly sad people mumbling very serious things in between five minute dramatic pauses. So it must be something else about Naughty Dog games. Is it that the enemies always pursue the protagonists far beyond the point where it makes any sense for them to do so? Probably not, because that's only because they hate the protagonist so much, in which case, hey, we've got something in common enemies. Let's ditch these losers and patrol the local bowling alley. Oh, it's a perfectly well-made game. Even if it is a stealth action adventure with crafting and collectibles, which is to say the same as every finger-blasting generic AAA single-player game now, since I can only assume the corporate games industry finally tracked down the last creative person in it and replaced them with an algorithm, but it is pretty good stealth action. There's a skin of your teeth desperate sort of thrill to it. It's not difficult to lose the enemy if you do get spotted so the cock-ups don't cascade. The AI is surprisingly dynamic. They even all have individual names, which they cry out in horror whenever they find a corpse, a feature that I assume exists to make the protagonists seem even more like bastards. Especially when the dudes with adorable sniffer dogs show up and after you murder them everyone yells, NO YOU KILLED DR SNIFFYBUM! AND HIS DOG! In the non-stealth action bits, however, gameplay is a bit of a slog. Quite a large percentage of it essentially boils down to press forward to continue, and usually the game indicates the direction in which forward lies by having someone point to the skybox and say, you see that? That's where the next plot event is. You see everything leading up to it? That's all the meaningless fucking filler you're going to have to slog through to get there. No doubt there'll be at least one infected hangout. You'll know you're there when you get insta-killed by a zombie you weren't ready for because all the pushing forward to continue was putting you to fucking sleep. Actually, there's a token open world section early on, perhaps because of algorithms again, but the side objectives only really provide optional loot and very little in the way of extra challenge or story, so it's only there if you feel like putting off the rest of the plot. Which you might, if you hate watching horrible people take the most irrational course of action available. Well, that's as far as we can go without spoilers, so only continue watching if you've stopped caring, you aloof, disenfranchised zoomers, you. Here's the plot. Protagonist of last game gets murdered by group seeking revenge for thing protagonist did in last game. Adopted daughter of protagonist goes to group's home base to get double backsy revenge, which happens to be in a really shitty holiday destination. And no, it didn't escape me that this is the same plot as Silent Hill 3. Now, Joel in the last game was a basically relatable gruff hairy dad learning to love again who made one very questionable decision at the end, but Ellie in Last of Us 2 seems to be of a mind that the best way to commemorate gruff hairy dad would be to beat his questionable decision speed record as many times as possible. And already I hear the same people who gave me shit about not liking the last game slithering out from behind the fridge to make the same argument. You're not supposed to like or agree with the characters. It's complex and challenging drama. Yeah, thanks professor. I got we weren't supposed to be entirely on Ellie's side around the Dr. Sniffy Bum incident. But the message is muddled by everyone 
everyone in Ellie's conventionally attractive mumblecore support group, assuring her that revenge is the tops and totally justified, and the villain's equivalent act of revenge against Joel for doing something a lot worse was totally not justified, because they hadn't had nearly enough screen time. Which is presumably why, just as the plot is starting to look like it's wrapping up, the game suddenly flashes back and makes us play as the main villain for way, way too fucking long, to show that ooh, they have redemptive qualities as well, and from their perspective Ellie is basically a less eloquent Jason Voorhees. So we have to slog through more endless hours of get to the thing in the skybox filler gameplay before we can have that promised plot resolution, and none of it's necessary because it was already perfectly clear that nobody's in the right on all this, and the end result is that I don't sympathise with anyone. Yahtzee, you don't need to sympathise with the characters for a plot to work, you like Spec Ops The Line and everyone in that game is a drawstring shitbag. Can I do a spot of disabusing here, the kind I always have to do whenever they put out a David Cage game, or anything else presenting a facade of dramatic depth? The following things do not make a character deep or compelling. 1. Getting hurt a lot, looking at you Tomb Raider reboot. 2. Being sad. 3. Doing morally questionable things. And we might as well tack on 4. Being a member of a minority, just because I've already given up hope for this video's comments section. What does matter is the characters at least be interesting to watch, and these aren't. The banter between Ellie and her girlfriend as they adventure together sizzles like a flask of slightly tepid water because they're too similar in personality, background and motivation to have good chemistry. But the most important thing is growth. Walker in Spec Ops The Line slowly becomes a monster as he's twisted by the constant backfiring of his good intentions, and that's why it's compelling. Ellie has no character development. Villain Lady does a little bit for stupid reasons, along the lines of suddenly realising that the enemy faction she's been genociding unquestioned for months are also human beings with families and would rather not be genocided, thanks. But Ellie just sets out to do something shitty and remains a shitty person. In fact, the game keeps droning on for about two hours after you think it's finally ending just to continue establishing Ellie's shittiness. And corporate game dev being what it is, when I think of the developers almost certainly being exploited and overworked to make this miserable game so unnecessarily long, I wince, viewer, I wince at the pointless suffering. Because you could strip four or five hours of gameplay out of Last of Us 2 and lose nothing, then use the money you saved to make a low-budget platformer on the side about a funny cartoon dog on a quest to sniff all the butts, whose character grows when he realises he doesn't have to define himself by sniffing butts. Bam! Compelling plot. And we didn't even have to retroactively make him a lesbian. Long-term viewers will know there were a lot of things standing in the way of me liking Persona 5. It was a JRPG for one thing, and even for a JRPG it was anime as dicks, being set in a high school and centred around characters slightly too young to be constantly giving off the vibe of wanting to bone each other senseless. But against all odds, I loved it, and it was suggested I try out Persona 4 Golden, previously a PS Vita game but recently out on Steam, which is like a goldfish moving from a bowl to a nine-acre sewage treatment facility. And the first thing I need to say is that P4G achieves something very rare. It has an intro cinematic that I want to watch all the way through without skipping every time I boot up the game. Because in contrast to the Shantae intro movie that made me feel like I was being beaten to death with a wank pillow, the P4G intro is breezy and colourful and kicks things off with just the right setting of tone. Here's some happy music, some dancing anime kids, several corpses strung up from telegraph poles, and oh look, now everyone's riding scooters, what fun! I should probably warn you all ahead of time that I'm going to be comparing Persona 4 to Persona 5 a lot. Is that fair? No. Persona 5 practically just came out, and Persona 4 was a PS2 game. The graphics looked like a load of Playmobil figures got scattered across a D&D &D monster manual. But on the other hand, Persona 5 is superior for a lot of reasons besides having improved technology. Soundtrack's much better for a start. I know this because every time I try to remember the Persona 4 battle music, all I can think about is the Persona 5 battle music, shouldering it out of the way in my memory like an older sibling in a family photo. Persona 5 also had a much better plot. The protagonist Joker starts out on probation for a crime they didn't commit, the world has given up on him, he forms the Phantom Thieves from fellow outcasts and underdogs to defy corrupted authority figures that threaten them directly. It's compelling, it's got higher stakes than a dead cow on a flagpole, and it actually means something when Joker overcomes his social handicap to make friends. Right 
adolescent status, implicitly bone his hot teacher. In contrast, the protagonist of Persona 4 moves out to a small town for no important reason, shows up at school on day one, and immediately befriends the three nearest named characters, most of whom immediately imply they want to bone him. From there, the usual Persona arrangement is gradually established. We discover our unique ability to access a parallel shadow realm, where we must explore dungeons and fight monsters conjured from the darkness of the human soul in order to prevent a disaster in the real world. Specifically in this case, our protagonist puts on a pair of old lady spectacles, which along with his grey hair make him look like a middle-aged columnist for a lesbian arts magazine, and must battle some rather on-the-nose metaphors by using a television to visit a twisted exaggerated version of reality, where people are represented by evil shadows of themselves. And this being Japanese, and therefore repressed all to buggery, when they say evil shadow self what they usually mean is considerably sexier version. As with Persona 5, I'm not terribly enamoured with the combat dungeon side of things, again I turn the difficulty down, because when the challenge starts getting overwhelming I always get the sense that Persona expects me to compile a fucking spreadsheet and mathematically calculate a general and special theory for optimally efficient Persona crafting. And to grind! A lot more than I'm inclined to. Persona 4's dungeons are procedurally generated and fair's fair, they weren't to know in 2008 that indie games were going to collectively drive procedural generation into the ground hard enough to pitch a tent on, but the dungeons are still very repetitive and boring, and then half the side quests in the real world ask for specific items of vendor trash that certain monsters drop and which you probably unthinkingly sold because that's what you fucking do with vendor trash. So I hope you devoted part of your spreadsheet to which of the ten identical dungeon floors specific monsters hang out on, and their preferred brand of lube, or it's back to the grindstone with you. Suppose you prefer the life sim part of the game yards, parceling your time and choosing your preferred waifu. That's the funny thing, listeners. Without the JRPG dungeon stuff, Persona would just be an elaborate visual novel about a dude with shitty time management skills and really needy mates. It's the interplay, the juxtaposition between mundane life and secret JRPG adventures that draws me in. Maybe it reminds me of when I'm at the store looking at all the strangers and thinking, if only they knew that this random person before them is moderately well known on the internet for making up naughty words. Plonk fondle. Oh, there's another one. So as much as I struggle with, well, the JRPG part of this JRPG, I kinda need it to be there. Persona Persona 4 Golden has a couple of unique online features. In dungeons, you have something called Rescue Request, where players can help each other, ostensibly. In practice, a prompt comes up, you press a button, it disappears, and you go about your day assuming you have in your own humble way made the world a better place. Then, sometimes when you start a battle, a thing says that someone is helping you, and then you get, like, two health points and a half-sucked Jolly Rancher. All in all, as vital a feature as a digital clock built into a walking cane for the blind. More useful is a thing during the life sim part that tells you what activity a majority of other players are doing at the same moment. It can feel overwhelming when there are so many options and only one time slot, it's nice to be able to defer to majority vote and blame everyone other than myself for my problems, as usual. This is also a good way to know that new, obnoxiously well-hidden side activities have become available. If you're looking for the fishing minigame, give a specific soda to a child in return for a bug, give the bug to the lady shopkeeper during night time to get a fish hook, put the fish hook in a baguette sandwich and push the entire thing up your ass before five o'clock on a Wednesday, and then you get a fishing rod. Oh man, I was so close, I was putting it in a quesadilla. Part of Persona 5's appeal was that it's such a stylish game, even merely cycling through menus is like using a kaleidoscope made out of what remained of a teenage artist's homemade zine after the dog got at it, and the seeds of that style are there in Persona 4 but not yet hitting the mark, walking the line between the notional anarcho-punk aesthetic and just looking a bit of a mess. Especially the combat GUI, which looks like the designer was trying to justify buying way too many fucking fonts. Forgive me if this seems obvious, but Persona 4 is Persona 5 minus 1, as in every single aspect of it is similar but not quite there yet quality-wise. Visual design, soundtrack, story, combat, main character's haircut, general quality of waifus, it's like a perfectly diagonal line on the graph, and therefore you might as well just start with five, as I did. Feels like Persona's the same game every time, just with all the character names changed and slightly closer to the complete vision. In theory, a Persona 6 might be even closer. Maybe it'll cut to the chase and just have a boss fight against a giant vagina, while all your female party members flusteredly refuse to admit whose it is. 
So the PS5 is going to be a souped-up PS4 that looks like someone sat on a giant licorice all sort, and the Xbox is just going to keep adding X's to its name like a serial divorcee. But who fucking cares? Why are we still tethering huge plastic bricks to televisions like millstones around the neck of the future? It's 2020 for fuck's sake. We should be downloading multicolored tech dreams from cyberspace to our holographic skateboards. That's why, now we're between big release periods, I felt it was time to give Google Stadia a go. A console without a console, where all you need is a net connection and a login and games are streamed to you with no installation required. Which you think people would be more excited about. Having to own a console is kind of a pain in the ass when they're expensive and ugly and you could be using the shelf space for your child's yearbook or a charcuterie board. And as for high-end gaming PCs, it's like they took the monolith from 2001 and decorated it for Christmas and now I have to figure out how to arrange my office around it. But then again, it's not like there's no console at all. You're just not allowed to touch it. It's in a basement at Google somewhere and they use the heat coming off it to dry their socks. So maybe Stadia isn't catching on so well because people find it hard to get invested without being able to choose their console's colour or cover it in unicorn stick. At any rate, I signed up for the Stadia Pro first month free trial, for what is modern life if not one first month free trial after another, remembering to put a reminder on my calendar because 90% of the income these subscription services generate comes from people forgetting to unsubscribe before the month is up. In Stadia's case it certainly can't come from selling games, because there's only like 9 on there. Incidentally, having to pay 60 bucks on top of the subscription to pay Doom Eternal does feel like a taking of the piss, jaded consumer drone though I am. Not sure why, maybe it's because we never get to be so much as in the same postcode as the data, and if our internet goes down we essentially paid 60 bucks to sit imagining how much fun it would be to play Doom Eternal. Fuck, don't give them ideas. You ever take a look around and think about what your entertainment options would be reduced to if your internet was down and your hard drives were wiped? I'd just have to watch my Columbo box set over and over again. Or read a book. Like a fucking caveman. Whatever, there's still a bunch of free games thrown in with the pro subscription, so I tried some of those and hey, no installation, straight into the game. It's like a corporation didn't lie to me for once. No significant controller delay that I noticed. I tried it on my main PC with a cable connection and on my laptop with Wi-Fi, and while the latter was very choppy at times, I was still pretty jazzed to be playing Serious Sam on my laptop without it melting straight through my legs, there was a fair bit of artifacting. Almost as if all we're essentially doing is streaming web video. So this won't be your system of choice if you're the kind of person who won't give a game the time of day if it can't manage 120 FPS and more pixels than there are atoms in the universe. But for everyone else the games are playable at least. You might be at a disadvantage if you're playing PUBG and are trying to keep track of a distant sniper through a haze of image compression, but for the most part even if you get knocked down to 320p you can still have some fun as long as you can tell which blob is you and which blob is everything other than you. So while the general quality could be a problem, I fear the main one, my little velvet fuck socks, is games. I know, it's such a bore, isn't it, having to sucker people into a subscription service and provide them content. It's like running a dairy farm would be so much easier if you didn't have to keep feeding the cows and making sure they don't die and shit. Right now there's just a limited selection of AAA titles that everyone stops talking about around the same time they stopped talking about Russia annexing the Ukraine, and as for the all-important exclusives, there's little more than what meagre scraping of indie titles could be snuck out of the Epic Store's shopping basket. Guilt is about the only one worth dwelling on, it's a stealth horror adventure where you're a little girl in a red coat. In the world of arty indie games, a character wearing a red or hooded coat goes right next to the free space on the bingo card because ooh, Red Riding Hood lost in the scary woods, I got your clever illusion Mr. Writer, let's rub our massive brains together in neutral recognition, who goes looking for their missing cousin who was being bullied and ends up in a dark spooky version of their high school full of monsters unsubtly themed around bullying and it'll probably turn out that the bullies was you the whole time. Hardly a spoiler, the game's named Guilt for fuck's sake, not generally feeling pretty okay about things. So in brief, it's Silent Hill 2 meets the magic school bus. It's certainly got the Silent Hill level structure. You explore a cluster of rooms looking for the bird statue or tin of baked beans that opens the very obtusely locked door that prevents you from moving to the next cluster of rooms. Also, monsters. 
But the game's major flaw is that it's just way too easy, and therefore not scary. Hide from the monster, it will kill ya! Oh shit! Wait, here's a flashlight, it kills the monster if you aim it at their weak spot. Well, I guess that's still pretty skillful. Is it? Sorry, here's an instant kill stealth attack as well. No, I wasn't criticising, I mean- AND here's an instant stun attack! And a freeze attack! Oh god, there aren't enough chest-high walls around, are there? Here's ten billion more! Jesus. I know this has a kiddie vibe, but for most of the time I was using health items for idle mid-afternoon snacking I had so fucking many. So not much else to say about guilt, it's hardly a hot app. I do wonder why the main character was looking for a younger cousin when it could easily have been a younger sister. That makes me think the story writer was working through some unresolved issues they had with their own cousin growing up, but didn't want to air the dirty laundry in too public a forum, and so signed up to be a Google Stadia exclusive, thus ensuring it would never be heard from again. The only other exclusive worth mentioning is Crater, a game creation tool kinda like Dreams, but if you thought Dreams' problem was that there was just a little bit too much incentive to do unpaid work to prop up someone else's IP on a delivery system you have no stake in that might not exist in two years, then here's all that with less features. Crater's fundamental issue is that you cannot possibly expect amateur developers to care when Google themselves do not. And that's the impression that fully surrounds Stadia, like family pets around a wobbly dining table. Google could put up more games and advertise more and post more updates about when they're gonna make it less choppy, but they don't seem to care presumably because they're Google and don't have to. If this were Nintendo, the senior staff would be lucky to have any fingers left to hack off in shame. But Google? They probably made their losses back in the time it takes to search for Larry Page burnt in effigy. Usually when you say cult hit you mean reviewed well, sold like garbage. Deadly Premonition was an interesting case of selling like shit and reviewing like shit, but ending up a cult hit regardless. Because if you could push your way through the dense hedge of janky graphics and horrible design, there was a discarded porn mag of uniqueness and character there that made it worth the brambles. The creator, Swery, is like the poor man's Hideo Kojima got together with the poor man's Suda51 and had a very undernourished baby. But he's been able to carve an identity for himself, making games usually themed around an outsider's view of American culture as seen through the lens of TV. And that began with Deadly Premonition, which was basically Twin Peaks, Sounded like you were gonna say butt there, Yars. You keep falling for that one, don't you, viewer? No, Twin Peaks about sums it up. But with Deadly Premonition 2, Swery is telling us that he's moved on from Twin Peaks and started watching True Detective instead. So, FBI Special Agent Francis Zack Morgan, who is also Francis York Morgan, is old, dying, and drugged to the follicles when a hotshot young FBI agent comes to interrogate him about how he solved some of his old cases, forcing him to awkwardly talk around the fact that he solved them by slipping into a monstrous shadow realm and taking down the suspect's confession just before they turned into a nightmare demon and he shot them 50 times. Oh, by the way, Swery don't believe in no recap for the latecomers, so you'll have a 0% chance of understanding this plot if you start with number 2. Play through the original first, and that might take you as high as 5 or 6%. Anyway, the bulk of the game consists of a flashback to Francis Something Morgan in 2005 in a small town in Louisiana, investigating a series of occult murders and the insidious influence behind them which hangs over the town ensuring that it can't go above a single digit frame rate. Deadly Premonition 1 was so fucking janky it kept all its money in Barclays jank, but I had hopes that, having been away from the franchise a while, that Swery would have learned a few things from their other games. JJ Macfield and the Load of Old Bollocks, and D4 the world's best game named after a piece of tabletop role-playing equipment. But no, the jank remains, and while DP1 was adorably janky, DP2 is patience-tryingly janky. The game runs like a pig in high heels, on a sandy beach, in the rain. Every time you go outside you stare at a loading screen for five minutes and then the sandbox world chuggingly fades into view at 3 FPS. It's like watching a dump truck slowly inch its way into your driveway and methodically deposit shit in your face. The world map is flat and dull and looks like a PS2-era sandbox where features pop in worse than your least favourite neighbours, and part of why it runs like the above-discussed pig in high heels is the size of the sandbox and the sandbox is unnecessarily big, with too much empty space in between the important bits, so it's like the game is struggling under the weight of a hundred pound bag of Yorkie bars it brought for a two mile hike, and they're not even my favourite kind of Yorkie bars. But then the game needs to provide a fast way to get around the sandbox, so it opts for a skateboard. And honestly, I kind of love that it's a skateboard. It's quick to pull out, more manoeuvrable than a car, and it's just hilarious to watch Agent York gliding along at full speed in his business suit, having a very placid and reasonable conversation with himself about his favourite Charles Bronson film. If I were going to point a finger at where Deadly Premonition's appeal lies, it'd probably end up right up the protagonist's nose. 
Rose. Francis York Morgan is a fascinating character, self-assuredly eccentric and mysterious but eminently likeable. Yes, a lot of him comes from Dale Cooper from Twin Pigs, but he comes into his own when he calmly and smilingly enters the nightmare world to battle his suspect to the death as they grow seven pairs of mutant death tits. The characters and dialogue lend the games this very quirky tone that allows one to forgive little things like, say, everyone animating like their limbs are held on with elastic bands and looking like they built their facial expressions from very poorly translated assembly instructions. I suppose the main takeaway of this video is that if you're one of the people who liked Deadly Premonition and are among the subset of those who are allowed to leave the house and own sharp objects, then you will find more of what you liked in Deadly Premonition 2, albeit not as much of it. And if you were able to forgive the technical flaws, atrocious game design, and Swery's trademark dramatic shifts of tone about as smooth and natural as biting down on a hitherto unnoticed caterpillar in a sandwich, then your forgiving muscles are going to have to work overtime. The game is a sandbox action adventure if the sandbox was a hundred yards wide and half a centimetre deep, with a Dead Rising-esque in-game clock defining when certain shops and missions are available. But the clock just runs too fucking slowly! I got up at nine, skateboarded across town to do a crime scene analysis, skateboarded all the way back, did four more story missions and shot nine squirrels, the next mission didn't unlock until 6pm, I looked at the clock, it was only 9.15. There just weren't enough activities or enough hate in my heart for the squirrels of the world to fill the time. Then it got worse. Story progress is suddenly gated by some viciously arbitrary fetch quests, and one of the items needed is only sold from one of the shops on a Monday. I looked at the clock, it was Wednesday. And so FBI Special Agent Francis York Morgan went back to his hotel room and proceeded to sleep to a degree that would imply either severe depression or coma. And if the grindy fetch quests in the critical path weren't enough and you're still waiting on your sharp objects license, you can also grind up a bunch more random objects to craft charms that upgrade your skills. Except a feature that improves your skill kinda hinges upon the gameplay requiring any. Every combat section can be very easily beaten with no charms and the starting gun because all the enemy monsters are slow moving with no ranged attack, and a single ammo box contains enough bullets to assassinate every US president, even if you need to use two on the fat ones. Still, the combat's improved since the last game, which had more of a melee focus and melee combat hinges on good character animation and Deadly Premonition has the character animation of three deck chairs in a whirlpool. Also, the GUIs are better and no longer look like a web page from the late 90s got kicked down a spiral staircase. But in the end, Swery is no Hideo Kojima, in that while both men write stories the way a candy floss machine assembles a ship in a bottle and that's kinda what makes them interesting, Kojima seems to have a grasp of game design fundamentals, and Deadly Premonition 2 indicates a complete lack of such. Swery's appeal may lie in his outsider art style defiance of convention, but some conventions exist for a reason, like having a frame rate that I can't count on my fingers. You have to master the conventions before you can defy them. Look at Picasso's early work, he didn't start out sellotaping noses to foreheads. I think Paper Mario might be my Sonic the Hedgehog. Every time they bring out another one I go, maybe this time it'll be good again, and dutifully jam my dick in the beehive, and I'm beginning to think that the one time I didn't get stung on the piss hole might have been the outlier. The first three Paper Marios was like there was this one really cool teacher at Nintendo High School, then one time he showed up a little the worse for drink, and after that he mysteriously vanished and his classes have been taught by one poorly informed substitute after another. Okay, apparently you were working on this thing where everyone's made of paper, I guess you were doing stationery? No, we were doing a party-based RPG based around fun, interesting characters. Uh, I don't have any notes about that, let's just do stationery. So once again we're basing the game around one of the fundamentals of papercraft. Sticker Star was glue, Colour Splash was paint, now Origami King is about paper folding, and I seem to remember calling this in my Colour Splash review. I also made a silly joke about fighting a boss fight against a hole punch. Well guess what? In Origami King, there's a boss fight against a hole punch. No really, there actually is. And if the games industry is taking ideas from my sarcastic exaggerated examples of things that would be stupid, that would fucking explain a few things. Anyway, might as well recount the plot, he said, with the air of a bored local newsreader who once had bigger dreams. Evil origami comes to the paper mushroom kingdom, people get folded into evil brainwashed origami versions of themselves with an actually kind of disturbing invasion of the body snatchers vibe, Princess Peach gets done over, Mario has to go on an epic journey to save her, teaming up of course with the usual glorified mouse pointer support character who does all the talking, which has been a particular creativity vacuum zone of every Mario game for some time. They take an object related in some way to the game's theme, stick eyes on it, have it float next to Mario's head and knock off for lunch. Mario Odyssey had a hat, Colour Splash had a paint bucket, Origami King has an origami thing. So far you're probably picking up on a negative 
negative tone to this review. Oh, perish the thought, Yahtzee, I just assumed you'd eaten the wrong end of last night's kebab for breakfast. But I actually liked Origami King a bit more than the last few Paper Marios. Original Paper Mario still not showing up to class and was probably walled up alive in the school basement, but he managed to dictate a few more notes through the brickwork this time. So again, 90% of the characters are generic toads and monsters and whatever else hasn't yet been deleted from the Art Acid Dropbox to make room for more Bowsette lewds. But oh, it looks like you were doing sidekick characters with your old teacher, so let's have some of those. In the second chapter, for example, you partner with a Bobom. Not a unique quirky Bobom, just a Bobom. And you don't control them in combat and they don't have special abilities that open new areas and they just sort of drop out of the game the moment the chapter's over, but it does superficially resemble the old partner system enough that the trailers might sucker some old fans out of their money. Still, it's a step in the right direction. There's something nasty on the step, but it's a step. Also, there's generally a bit more energy and vitality in the design of the world and the set pieces. It's not just Grasslands Desert, Ocean Jungle, etc. There's also Shogunate Japan Land in there to completely fuck up the rhythm. Speaking of rhythm, the game has an odd habit of breaking into energetic musical dance numbers every now and again, which I find it impossible to be grumpy about. It'd be like going to an orgy and worrying about the state of the carpet. Frankly though, I don't know if Paper Mario is good again or if it just finally wore me down. It did at least ditch the god-awful combat from the last two games based around disposable single-use items, which was both annoying and probably bad for the environment. Now there's a rather odd combat system in which Mario sets up a giant dartboard-come-lazy-Susan, gets the enemies to arrange themselves on it, rather obliging of them actually, especially in the heat of the moment, and then has to rearrange the board in a set number of moves to line the enemies into rows or blocks so you can then attack them all at once. It's more of a puzzle game than an action or tactics thing, in which case I wish it had gone the whole hog. When I line up four gems in Bejeweled, they all very swiftly and politely fuck off and let me get on with things. I don't have to go through the rigmarole of select the jump attack, select the row, press A in time with each bounce as we go along the factory production line. I guess they felt it wouldn't be Paper Mario without the timed button presses, but it's clear to me now, cool teacher Paper Mario wasn't fired or immured in the basement, he's being imprisoned in the biology lab to be the subject of Nintendo's cruel gameplay experiments. That would explain the way the game's generally a dog's breakfast of ideas. One chapter turns into a full-on open-world ocean exploration out of nowhere, cause hey, Wind Waker was good. Feels like something like that could have been running through the whole game, connecting all the locations, but whatever, I don't dislike it, it's the combat that continues to overseason my ring piece. Cause it doesn't fix the main issue with the sticker system, no character levelling means there's no benefit to getting in combat. Yes, our attacks aren't single-use items anymore, but after a while the monsters have more health from all their paper crossfit, and you pretty much have to use the stronger versions of your attacks, which are equipables that degrade with use. So yeah, getting into random fights is still a net loss. I don't know why Nintendo's gotten so sniffy about character levelling. Feels like fight more, get stronger is pretty much perfect as formulas go. It means even random fights progress as forward in some way, and if you ever need to unwind, you can go back to the starting area and laughingly cut a swathe through once difficult enemies with a single swing of your titanic trouser turnip. It's not exactly pioneering, but some things don't need further experimentation. Cheerios has been using the same recipe for decades because it's fine. It works. They don't need to see if it works better with the oats taken out or mixed with push pins. Actually, you do get coins from getting into combat, but coins are everywhere. It's the fucking mushroom kingdom. People insulate their fucking houses with the things. You can spend them on equipable accessories that improve your character in some way. Oh, I see you were doing a nuanced and interesting badge system with your old teacher. Let's have some token accessories, like five or six of the buggers. So yeah, it's an improvement on the last two, but still the clueless substitute teacher. My main takeaway is that they used my idea for a hole punch boss monster, because I didn't realise I had that kind of power. I think the next Paper Mario game should have a boss fight against a giant battery-powered dildo that can only be defeated with a legendary special move, send Yahtzee Crozier the password to your checking account. It's official, you're getting too old if you can remember any of the following. Jerry O'Connell, pop music where they don't sing like they just banged their foot on a coffee table, and tentpole games by Western AAA developers being capable of more than one genre. I'm so fucking sick of open-world stealth action games with crafting and collectibles. Remember when Far Cry was a shooter, Tomb Raider was a precision platformer, and God of War was a high-octane hack-and-slash? All of them have now been pulled into open-world stealth action with crafting and collectibles, like paper boats to an open sewer. I'm so fucking bored of squatting in a bush like a hiker who didn't go before he left, of having to nose around every shelf and drawer, hoovering up crafting materials, so I might one day make a new man purse that could hold more than four paper
clips. So if you're waiting for the next electrifying sea change in AAA games, Ghost of Tsushima ain't it, mate. It's the same shit with new wallpaper. Nice wallpaper, granted. None of your default Sims house rubbish. This is the classy stuff you put behind a respected historian in a documentary about the Renaissance, but wallpaper nonetheless. Felt like I should put that up front, along with this. The standard crafting resource in this game is supplies. And every time I saw that word while on shelf safari, I'm ashamed to admit I kept thinking about a very racist joke I once heard about a Chinese person at a birthday party. But anyway, Ghost of Tsushima is the story of Jin Sakai, a samurai in medieval Japan who is the last survivor when every other samurai gets trounced by Mongol invaders because the samurai were bound by their deep-seated code of honour and chivalrous combat and the Mongols just, you know, wanted to win. Jin is rescued by a peasant thief who teaches him about mind-blowing new concepts like hiding, sneaking up on people, and generally not being killed. From then on, Sakai mounts a campaign of guerrilla warfare against the occupying Mongols during which he is constantly torn between two worlds, his former life of noble Bushido and stiff unyielding principles, and his new life of not being fucking useless. Ghost of Tsushima does offer an interesting take on open world stealth action with craft- I'm sick of saying all that, I'm just gonna give it a nickname. G of Tsushi does offer an interesting take on Jiminy Cockthroat. Normally how it works is that you start with stealthing and resort to open combat once you fuck that up, but Ghost of Tsushima almost tries to shame you for taking the stealthy route. In fact, the game flat out prompts you to march right up to the front door like a Karen wielding an expired coupon and take out the first couple of lads in a little dueling minigame before getting stuck into the rest. Not that there are any actual gameplay consequences for opting instead to sneak around the bushes building a new sprinkler system out of slit throats. At most it's implied that you'll learn the disapproval of grumpy uncle dad and you do that anyway from actions the story campaign railroads you into. After all, letting the player do things their way is the watchword of Jiminy Cockthroat. I mean, giving us any kind of obligation or like establishing the theme through the gameplay mechanics smacks a little bit too much of actually having to design a game rather than resort to the same fucking templates as always. I mean, how can anyone possibly get bored of blocking light attacks and dodging heavy attacks? It's a useful metaphor for so many things like dieting and conversation and correct umbrella usage, which might as well bring us to the combat. At first I found it annoying, my kingdom for a fucking lock-on button, especially in big open fights with multiple targets, and especially especially when the camera doesn't seem quite sure how to act when we back into walls and furniture, and half the time opts to give you a moment to really appreciate the intricate texture work as axe-wielding mongols turn you into a flesh slinky. But the combat felt a lot better some ways into the game after you unlock a few different stances, as it turns out that certain stances are very specifically intended for use against certain enemies, and if you're using the wrong stance you might as well be dusting off their health bar with a pastry brush. So the combat is better once you've unlocked the things that make it work, almost like they should have been unlocked from the start, but no, everything has to be unlocked through one of the nine different upgrade systems, because that's what the template says to do. And we outsourced all our independent thought to Eastern Europe. Alright Larry, start the clock. Go to Tsushima is a very beautiful game, contrasting an environment full of stark cinematic colours against an atmosphere of serenity and emotional coldness to striking effect, babbling Mongol hordes trying to split you up like a Terry's chocolate orange notwithstanding, and the plot, while showing a lot of the usual sandbox game bloat full of inevitable lulls in the pacing because we spent half an hour grinding iron pickups to craft a new twat hinge, is paid off at the end with a rather hauntingly good final boss fight in which all the game's themes and conflicts are paid off in a single duel between two central characters who have absolutely no desire to kill each other, but have reached a final impasse by an untenable difference in philosophy, and it's tragic and intense and moving and then of course they completely fuck it up by forcing you to meaninglessly pick one of two options from the ending Tron 3000 to get a very slight variance in the last few seconds of the game. Yes, alright Larry, I suppose I couldn't do 30 seconds of uncomplicated praise, here's your 20 quid. All the cherry-picked good bits in the world can't separate Ghost of Tsushima from the usual issues of committee-driven big money development. Yes, there's some great Kurosawa-esque boss fights, but there's also an optional grainy black and white video filter named Kurosawa Mode, which is the sort of idea that probably sounded cool to a committee room full of Danish pastry-fueled sub-producers, but in practice comes across a mite flippant. The bottom line is that all of Ghost of Tsushima's good qualities lie in the superficials. The visuals, the soundtrack, even the plot, all the stuff that eventually gets mentally shoved aside when you end up going down the usual never-ending checklist of copy-pasted collectibles and sub-objectives, picking one icon off the map after another like you're using tweezers to clean rabbit turds off the rug. It really illustrates why games like Doom 2016 that have some kind of unique identity based around refined game mechanics are such rare gems in today's Western AAA market. If Ghost of Tsushima had been named Assassin's Creed Samurai, I wouldn't have questioned it for an instant, and that's not good. Why don't you try to fix this?
this the way you fix hoarding. Take all these templates and algorithms and standard practices that make up the Jiminy Cockthroat model, go through each one, and if you can't say how it specifically improves the gameplay, chuck it in the bin. What's this one, flower collecting? Oh yes, you collect flowers to give to the merchant to craft clothing dye so you can make your armour red instead of black in the brief moment before it's completely obscured by mud and gore effects and that's going in the bin. It's going in the bin, yes. Nothing better than a nice fresh hot indie game, except perhaps two nice fresh hot indie games standing on top of each other and putting on a big coat to sneak into a bar. So let's have one of our double bills. Starting with Carrion, a rather unique pixel art metroidvania that asks the question, what if prototype but the main character didn't even keep up the pretense of being a human, and just lolloped around the environment as a great big cloud of teeth and pancreases, acquiring upgrades as you go that allow you to carry on into new areas and turning all the humans you find into carry out. There's something hypnotic about the animation of what I hesitate to call the main character. I guess we have to call it something. Let's go with Harold. Harold squelches and flutters around the various semi-industrial environments like a pile of wet laundry descending a staircase, and it feels as viscerally satisfying as peeling dried glue off your hands. But movement looks a lot more complicated than it is. Harold throws out tentacles to pull himself around, but he does it with such efficiency that all we're really doing is pushing in a direction to go in that direction, and it's about as complex and nuanced as using a giant sticky blood smeared mouse pointer. So you start out with 100% unhampered free movement, but that's because you're role-playing as the horror movie monster that the camera never gets a proper look at lest the viewer notice that the prop department threw it together out of chamois leathers and tinned beetroot, and you need to be able to rapidly cram yourself down the nearest vent the moment your bipedal breakfast burritos pull out the flamethrowers. From there you can enact hilarious cinematic moments by waiting for the humans to think you've gone and say things like, everything's going to be okay now, before you send out a grabby tentacle and yank them into the vent to help you rework the interior design. Or more likely, accidentally grab the end table next to them and spill everyone's martinis. Because in contrast to your basic movement, directing your grab ability is like grandpa's first fishing trip after the stroke, at least with a controller. Harold, you are basically 90% mouth, it should not be this difficult to get you to fucking eat something. I can fucking sit Harold on top of a pile of ripe torsos and it's like introducing a new food to your fucking cat. You have to get off and grab them with a tentacle in order to pull them to the mouth they were already right next to in the first place. I found the best way to deal with most enemy encounters was to burst in, grab whatever or whoever is closest to hand, and to use the technical term, spaz the fuck out. At which point physics does most of the work. And I feel the game would have done better to more emphasise the stealthy predator approach. There's a reason why there was never a bit in The Thing, where a giant blob of bloodstained phlegm flung itself around a room, gaily spinning Kurt Russell around its head on the end of a fleshy lasso. And one final massive bleeding point to mention, I really wish there was a fucking map. I get why there isn't one, we're a barely sentient pile of ground pork lost in a facility designed for humans rather than meat clouds, and we lack the limb dexterity to work the buttons on a GPS, but the level design isn't exactly intuitive to navigate. Mixing up the scenery might have helped, have us devour the contents of an elementary school or blockbuster video, as well as the 19 decrepit industrial areas. I actually had to restart the whole game at one point because I couldn't find the way forward and I'd forgotten where I'd already been. Yes, we got by without auto maps in the olden days, but some would say we got by without the polio vaccine, it's reasonable to expect a few perks these days. Still, the game's length makes it inoffensive assuming you're not offended by humans getting pounded under flailing vent covers like tomatoes under a potato ricer, and it's worth checking out if, say, you enjoy the sensation of sticking your hands in a bucket of warm rice pudding. But let's move on from an ambulatory dish sponge overindulging in human canapes to me overindulging in nostalgia, because the other game I played this week was Beyond a Steel Sky, sequel to 90s point-and-click adventure Beneath a Steel Sky that about nine people were demanding. But me and 90s adventure games had some good times. We were at high school together, he watched me jerk off in the shower once, and Beneath a Steel Sky was a fun little yarn about a dude in the futuristic Australian Outback, who gets brought to a diesel punk city to liberate it from an oppressive AI, and perhaps even learn why he's clean-shaven and dressed like a Gestapo officer when he was ostensibly raised by nomads in a wasteland. The plot was decent, and the art was pretty great, and the writing had a sense of humour, and the gameplay was, well, it was a 90s point-and-click adventure game, so it was about as fun as looking for your car keys in a backpack full of forks. In Beyond a Steel Sky, Robert Foster is now rocking a sort of Bruce Campbell does Mad Max look, and must return to Union City to get to the bottom of why it keeps kidnapping children from the wasteland, and why all its residents are addicted to social media all of a sudden. Ooh, is it because clumsy topical satire? 
because it sounds like clumsy topical satire, I would grade Beyond a Steel Sky with a very solid C+. The 90s adventure game's inventory puzzle-based gameplay, which to reiterate is generally about as dynamic and interesting as picking raisins out of your bran flakes, is augmented by a rather nice hacking system based around rewiring the logic of machinery that adds a much needed extra dimension to the puzzle solving, even if it's not quite used to the fullest. The story is quite intriguing, at least early on, with Foster stealing the identity of a dead man and following a breadcrumb trail of clues to what they were getting up to while also having to pretend to be them, but it kind of drifts apart by the end, with one too many things not getting explained well enough. Why were there two Joeys? Why did the people of the city remember the end of the last game as some kind of mythic religious fable, when it was like a few years ago and most returning characters haven't even visibly aged much? That'd be like someone today talking about the election of Jeremy Corbyn to Labour Party leader the way they talk about the crucifixion of Christ. And it ends on a disappointing note too, with an exciting final climactic sequence of very easy sliding tile puzzles. But I'm most let down by the visuals. It's got that borderlandsy, cell-shaded but in an open relationship and can still see other graphical styles thing that looks like arse and chips, and the animation is very jank. Every time the engine has to none too subtly glide Foster into place to interact with something, it's like he's standing on a tea tray on a string. The real tragedy here is that back in the days of 2D art and animation, Revolution Software were fucking killing it! Beneath a steel sky, broken sword, for their time they were like tongue kisses for the eyeballs. Then suddenly they decided they had to do 3D graphics like everyone in their greengrocer, and it was like a master violinist feeling like they had to take up the ukulele. I mean, fuck me, Dave Gibbons worked on Beneath a Steel Sky, a really good 2D artist, the artist of Watchmen for fuck's sake. They brought him back on for this one, and then did most of the game in 3D. That's like hiring Professor Stephen Hawking to make YouTube essays about how Ray should have porked Finn. Boy, isn't Battle Royale great. Squat in a bush for 20 minutes before getting forced to move on and sniped by a dude who might as well have been on the fucking moon. It was only the whittling of many people down to one like a truly devastating fart in an assembly hall that was the interesting part, so I'm surprised it took as long as it did for gaming in general to start applying it to gameplay models other than whoever finds the sniper rifle first wins. Here's some ideas just off the top of my head. Battle Royale Euro Truck Simulator. The winner is the first to get nine tons of baby nappies to Leon. Or Battle Royale LA Noir. 100 detectives in a living room and all the ones that failed to notice the 1940s housewife guilty breaking eye contact get kicked out. Well now Fall Guys is doing its bit by giving us Battle Royale Mario Party. Well, sort of. More like just all the Mario Party minigames most guaranteed to provoke screaming arguments between nine-year-olds. The premise is you are one of 60 ambulatory sex toys being whittled down to one by a series of Takeshi's Castle stroke total wipeout style elimination challenges, all dressed up in brightly coloured foam padding like we're all trapped forever in the sadistic dreams of a disgruntled bouncy castle. The attraction of the profoundly unnecessarily subtitled Fall Guys <laughs> ultimate knockout is its accessibility. No more worrying about snipers with 4K monitors and Twitch mouse reflexes and literally nothing to do all day but practice and wait for the conveyor belt to deposit chicken nuggets into their mouths. Here you can run around and jump and wobble your little sex toy head and know that nobody can wobble any better than anyone else. Well having said that, it might take you a few games to realise you can press X to dive while jumping and get a little boosty over certain hazards, but that's not much of a skill ceiling, as like economy class passenger cabin ceiling at most. And once you do figure it out you'll have more fun, dunking on all the noobs that pile up under the slightly trickier jumps like the reject pile at the butt plug factory. But maybe that's the wrong attitude. I came first on precisely one occasion in my time playing, thank you, hold your applause, and can report that the grand prize on offer is a whole one token, five of which I needed to buy one of the fancier hats. Bit stingy, but it means there's no reason to get into a competitive mindset, is my point. Yeah, I know, telling multiplayer gamers not to get too competitive is like telling Stabity Jack the stabbing fiend of Stab Street to maybe rein the stabbing in a bit. One time I was in the final round and someone got declared the winner when everyone else was still halfway up the hill. Don't tell me people are actually hacking this fucking game, or finding physical 
physics exploits. That's like rigging up a sophisticated concealed vacuum device to cheat at hungry hungry hippos. Seems like a lot of misplaced effort to win something that other people win fairly reliably just by flinging themselves at the controls for long enough. But there is still a very large luck component in succeeding at the game, especially when you're one of 19 butt plugs trying to squeeze through the same passage at once, and every time the game randomly pulled out the fruit matching memory game, it was pure chance whether or not I'd keep playing or roll my eyes hard enough to permanently blind myself. Cause it's shit. All the chaotic fun is replaced with staring at a monitor waiting for the Simon Says prompt. It's like having to hold up the soggy biscuit game for five minutes because the loser insisted on looking up whether or not spunk is kosher. Actually, the longer I played, the more minigames got added to the provokes a sigh of annoyance every time it pops up, like a cat who wants head scratches while you're trying to perform urgent brain surgery pile. I grew to hate basically all the team games because while the other games test your individual platforming and fruit recognition abilities, the only thing being tested in team games is your ability to randomly get grouped with people who know what the fuck they're doing. I didn't say tail touch, whether or not I diligently keep my ass to the wall like a nervous drama student in a Greek bathhouse means precisely fuck all for my prospects of qualifying for the next round if everyone else on my team is parading around like a pack of ticket dispensers. And I dread every game that involves pushing giant balls around, partly for the obvious sense of testicular inadequacy, partly because manoeuvring those things as a team is like trying to navigate a shopping trolley full of unwilling fat people into an aerobics class. But there I go again, letting the competitive mindset take over and making me actually want to try to win like some kind of sport-liking person or similar freak. Taking a broader look, Fall Guys could do with some stronger theming. Theoretically this is a game about spectacle, so it's a bit lame how your character just vanishes when they fall into the slime below. I'm pretty sure 90% of the appeal of shows like Total Wipeout is watching dumb plebs fall into the water with a big spectacular splash and laughing as all their aspirations for a better life are washed away with the pond water they are forced to spend the afternoon wringing out of their chafing jock straps. So yeah, some kind of splash animation or the option to do a swan dive wouldn't have gone amiss. And perhaps a little more context. The implication is that we're appearing on a game show but there's no host, no audience, no little cutaway interviews with the contestants to add some extra emotion to their upcoming ritual humiliation. I wouldn't have minded penning a few remarks that could appear in a speech bubble as a giant comedy boot kicks me out of the tournament. It's more like they took one of those game shows and cut out everything but the action. Which sounds good on paper, but were I a cynical man I might say Oh, hold on, I read that wrong. I, a cynical man, might say the game is entirely built around flogging cosmetics from the micropayment shop. I wish this shit would cunting well fuck off, if you'll pardon my dense academic jargon. I guess it's not as bad as in some games and it only stands out so much because the game is so generally contextually vacuous, but I still remember a time, gentle viewers, when we hoped for things to be nice, not for things to be not quite so awful for once. With all that in mind, there's a lot of rather depressing metaphor going on in the subtext of Fall Guys. Here we are, a shapeless blob amid a field of identical shapeless blobs, struggling over each other and pushing each other down so we can be the one to be marked out as special and granted a special hat, but your new hat and esteemed status goes unnoticed as the other shapeless blobs are too busy striving for their own hats to appreciate it. Only the people running the show truly gain, and the only way to become one of those is to have been one all along. For the rest of us, this struggle only begets more struggle, until the day we finally give up and drop unmourned into the slime forever. The slime in this metaphor representing an enormous ocean of stale cum. Oh Yahtzee, have we got a surprise for you? A surprise games industry? Is it a PC release of Infamous 2? Nope. Is it Silent Hill entering the public domain? Nope. Oh, did the entire management team at EA contract cholera from giving each other rusty trombones? N I don't even know what that is. No, the surprise is a game that's an awful lot like Dark Souls. Oh Jesus fucking Christ! I thought you liked Dark Souls, Yahtzee. I did! I also had a nice time at Disneyland when I was 10, but I never wanted to fucking live there. I might just be over the whole Souls-like thing. Lovely meditations on the inevitability of entropy and death as they are. I feel like I've meditated enough. 
I'm confident if I'm ever in a sinking ship or a crashing plane I could probably be philosophical about my impending doom now, and I'd like to move on and meditate on some other things like prawn cocktail flavour crisps. So the game is Mortal Shell, and this is normally the point where I'd summarise the plot and the setting, but I think it is a Dark Souls clone that will do the job well enough. You're a walking husk of a person in a dying dark fantasy world and everything else in the world has apparently been led to believe that if they hit you hard enough that prizes will come out. I feel like Mortal Shell doesn't do enough to set the scene. Hello, we're like Dark Souls, is all it seems to say. Dying fantasy world, inscrutable plot, you know the drill, bish bash bosh. But Dark Souls at least gave you something to go on, an intro movie that wouldn't start making sense till around the second playthrough and the instruction go ring the bells of awakening which didn't do a whole lot of justice to the several hours of ultra-violent directionless urban exploration between you and that goal, but it was something! Mortal Shell seems to be trying as hard as it can to out inscrutable Dark Souls, the game won't even tell you what consumable items do until you consume one. And that's the kind of learning process that got me kicked out of medical school. You're a white ghosty dude who looks like Pepsi Man contracted the Ebola virus and you're in a forest and before long you discover you have the ability to inhabit certain dead bodies. Oh, Mortal Shell, I see. There was me thinking the title was about the plight of the oil industry. So while the plot and setting do very little to discourage comparison to Dark Souls like a Chinese bootleg toy that somehow got through the entire manufacturing process without anyone noticing that Batman was misspelled, Mortal Shell offers some unique twists on the gameplay formula, most uniquely the body inhabiting thing. Instead of constructing a custom character to cathartically carve a chasm through the cartilage of countless craven creeps, you have to take a character off the peg, as it were. No customization, no levelling, every shell you can wear has fixed stats and armour that can't be changed and which has probably gotten very whiffy. Not that you can occupy any corpse mine, this isn't the Dark Souls clone in which you can get revenge on those fucking poison swamp zombies by possessing one Mario Odyssey style and running around telling all its relatives its embarrassing personal fetishes. Amazing an idea as that sounds. There are four highly specific bodies scattered about the starting forest and that's your lot. Really it's more of a class switching mechanic because there's the one dude with lots of stamina, the one dude with lots of health, the one dude with lots of that third kind of stuff that you do special attacks with, and the default all-rounder dude who wonders why he doesn't get invited to parties. To the usual Dark Souls style combat of long wind-up stamina management and rolling like a cannabis dispensary just before the bank holiday weekend, we add the unique ability to press a button to very quickly think about Jenny Agatha, make yourself go rock hard and deflect the next attack. And importantly you can do it at any moment, so if you've mistimed your swing and the next enemy attack is going to hit you first, you can say a quick prayer to Jenny Agatha, let their attack bounce off, unfreeze when you remember Jenny Agatha's getting on a bit now, resume your swing and biff the enemy while they're still reeling from their failed attack on your invincible stiffy. It's enough of a twist on the usual Souls-like blow trading to require a shift in thinking, and it's probably just as well we have the advantage because there's something faintly off about the general handling. There were times I pressed the dodge button and my dude just didn't dodge, overdoing the Jenny Agatha fantasies perhaps, and there's this one regular enemy early on that I swear can go from sitting bored by the campfire to a sprinting charge attack with no animation in between, like you just saw his dog go over to the new shank pile carpet and start making retching noises. So what with Mortal Shell trying to out inscrutable Dark Souls, you don't even start off in whatever the local equivalent of Firelink Shrine is. You get dumped in a swampy forest full of paths that all look the same, and receive a vision of where to go next, a random part of swampy forest that looks like all the other parts. But I made it to Not Firelink Shrine and received a whole bunch of more visions showing me where I could go next, all of which were also random parts of a swampy forest that looked like all the other parts. So if I were to summarise Mortal Shell in one word it would be Jenny Agatha. Then after jerking off I'd update the word to demoralising. Not that one ever plays a Souls-like for a positivity boost and a biscuit, but I find very little about Mortal Shell drives me to keep playing it. The fixed character stats and lack of levelling or ability to change equipment beyond four fixed weapon styles make it hard to give me any sense that I'm progressing or improving or that one day I might return to a starting area and take revenge on all the level 1 assholes for making me think I had a chance with Jenny Agatha. Whoops, need to jerk off again. The eternal paradox of copying Dark Souls is that copying things is what a lazy person does, but making a game like Dark Souls is actually really hard, turns out. I'd say Mortal Shell gets full marks for atmosphere, loses a few for general gameplay feel, and gets them back for its interesting twists on the combat, but at the end of the day, high difficulty, inscrutable plot, and a general sense that this would be a bad game to recommend to anyone on Suicide Watch do not a Dark Souls make. The relevant point I think is that Dark Souls is an incredibly majestic game as well. Yes, you spend a lot of time in gloomy tunnels playing sword patty cake with people in burlap sack 90s, but every now and again something will hit you like an unexpected pair of buttocks in a ball pit and you'll go, blimey, I'm in a cathedral-sized room fighting a gigantic inside-out roast chicken, and it feels like the worst guilt-ridden anxiety nightmare Colonel Sanders 
has ever had. Whereas in Mortal Shell, when I took a moment to reflect, I'd usually go, yep, still surrounded by confusing dreary environments and smelly dudes, all the poignant majesty and introspection of walking home from the pub in the north of England. Sometimes I like to picture game developers watching these videos. Ooh, look everyone, that weirdo on the internet did one of ours! Let's all gather round to good-naturedly laugh off his exaggerated criticism and bask in the occasional qualified praise. Come on, Steve! Bob! Fiona! Adolf! Lionel! Big Smelly Janet! I wonder if the developers of Battletoads are doing that now. Well, developers of Battletoads, here's the thing. I hate your game. In fact, I don't think I've ever realised I hated a game quite as fast as I realised I hated yours. I'm trying to avoid swearing here so you understand how totally sincere I am when I say I played five or six levels into Battletoads and decided I would rather spend the afternoon cleaning out the shower drains. But hey, I don't hold it against you. At least I didn't waste my time, and I've got a really clean shower now. Battletoads is a remake come soft reboot come deferred sequel come stain to the notoriously difficult early 90s brawler Battletoads, a blip from the era when the media latched onto the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing. Badass archetype plus mundane animal equals profit somehow. So also biker mice from Mars. Yeah, I know it sounds like a mad lib, it was actually a thing. In New Battletoads, Zitz, Rash and Pimple, don't ask me which is which, I reserve my trivia remembering brain for Red Dwarf quotes, wake up in the future to find themselves forgotten has-beens and the story and dialogue has the tone of one of those Rick and Morty style animated comedies that is the current thing the media has latched onto, and that's why we keep seeing big franchises bring out their own versions of that to desperately put a facade of trendy self-effacing irreverence over the mechanical bean-counting machines they have instead of souls. Battletoads bears the mark of a bad one of those in that the prevailing attitude seems to be that if they just keep talking they might eventually say something funny, like panning for gold in a bowl of porridge. But relish the cutscenes while you can, I suppose, because it means you don't have to deal with the fucking combat which is awful. And I think the game is inclined to agree, the amount it tries to put it off, with random mini-games and driving sections, but sorry Battletoads, there's no escaping your primary gameplay loop, you can Mexican hat dance around this puddle of sick you made all you like, we're still going to have to scrape it up before it soaks into the carpet. If you're not holding down the run button, your character moves like they're dragging their hairy balls across a velcro floor, and that's just breaking the top of this expired mayonnaise creme brulee. The root problem is this adherence to a distorted cartoon style where everything animates with zany madcap flamboyance and the simplest button combination will lock you into a ten second animation where your toad of choice turns into a motor scooter with a vagina for a headlight and drives around in a circle spraying jam sandwiches or whatever, and the most basic enemy attack will interrupt it and knock you on your warty bum for half an hour. Very few of your attacks have any satisfactory feel or impact, and that's assuming you can even get the fucking hits to land because the collisions for dog shit as well. I can be close enough to carve my initials into the enemy with my nipple piercings and still not hit them. And why are there three different buttons for grab thing with tongue. If my dude is repeatedly failing to eat a desperately needed health fly, why am I not sure if it's because the collision fucked up again or because I pressed the wrong tongue button? There's an oral sex joke in there somewhere. Battletoad's awkwardness gives it the kind of difficulty that some people might consider a badge of honour to master, but for me it'd be like mastering the art of ricocheting marbles off a tea tray so that they hit me square in the testicles. So I played something else. I played No Straight Roads on the Epic Store, which might best be summarised as the most double finiest game to ever not be made by Double Fine. In a city full of people with a very double finey art style, you know what I mean, kind of like the Muppets crossed with a webcomic from the 2010s. All power is generated by electronic music and other forms of music are banned. An indie rock duo consisting of a hyperactive red guitarist and a cautious and zen-like green drummer, which is funny because they're like the opposite of how a traffic light works, vow to retake the city from the evil corporation by hijacking the concerts of six quirky musicians in a No More Heroes-esque series of colourful boss fights. So the author's either making a point about the oppressive stability of order versus the dangerous freedom of chaotic expression, or got dragged to a few too many dance clubs after their garage band failed and now has a serious axe to grind. No Straight Roads has rather wonderful presentation, it's like Brutal Legend but for indie rock, and without more crowbarred in cameos than an episode of The Simpsons during one of the struggle seasons. It's got that same aesthetic reminiscent of rifling through vinyl album covers in a second-hand record shop you know perfectly well you're not going to buy anything from, but you've got four minutes to kill before the nuke hits. The plot presenting indie rock as the dangerous voice of youth that the man wants to keep oppressed might seem a little bit tragically quaint now that the kids these days express their feelings with memes and mass shootings, but there's humour and artistry and creative visual design and there's a sense of depth to a lot of the characters of which our brief exchanges 
just only scratch the surface. So after all that, how does the game actually play? Shittily, as it happens. Oh well, now you know the true connection between this week's two games, besides the fact that their titles rhyme. Nice presentation, shame about the gameplay. No Straight Roads does a pretty bad job of explaining its mechanics, but essentially it's hack and slash melee combat with a musical twist, where the enemy attack in time with the music and you defend against it by paying attention to the rhythm. But that rhythm tends to get lost in the chaos of sound and visual effects, and the balance is generally kinda fucked. You can be riding high and then get all your health stun locked away by a repeated attack like a speed bag with a really stupid look on its face, and again, your hits just don't have any sense of satisfying impact. It's a trick thing, combat feel, it's all about little details. When you stomp on a person's gonads, it's not the sound it makes or the betrayed look on their face or the little jets of unmentionable fluid that squirt out, it's all of that together, and if any of them fall short you might as well just be squeezing the air out of a sandwich bag full of used tissues. But of the two games reviewed today, No Straight Roads takes the thanks for trying look who's daddy's big boy now award, because it had enough charm and creativity to push me through its dodgy design. Pretty buggy game too actually, that fellas was where you needed to stop imitating Double Fine. You know, Robert Downey Jr deserves more praise for his portrayal of Tony Stark in the Marvel movies. Yes, I know he's made more money than a glazier in the Gaza Strip, but he did a really quite impressive job playing a character who could be simultaneously abrasive, charismatic, and sympathetic. I was thinking about this while watching Tony Stark as portrayed in Marvel's Avengers, Square Enix's new shiny chrome-plated hamster wheel for the micropayment masses. Because if all of his dialogue lines had been cut out and been replaced by Tony Stark getting clipped around the ear by whoever was standing closest to him, then that would have earned the game at least another star. It's still confusing to me that this game that is obviously trying to crib off the success of the Marvel movies deliberately replaced all the leads with their poorly received spin-off low-budget TV show versions, but maybe it's easier on the kiddies this way. They don't have to watch their heroes repeating an infinite cycle of copy-pasted combat missions and resource grinds and ask their parents, Mummy, why is Iron Man trapped in a hypothetical tenth layer of Dante's hell? Speaking of hell, the AAA trend for games is live services primarily designed to sucker players into infinite meaningless grinds and milk them for their money and souls can obviously go to it, but Marvel's Avarvels puts an almost admirable degree of effort into not resembling a live service game for some ways into the campaign. It starts with a bunch of linear story missions focusing on Kamala Khan, the amazing human diversity quota, attending an Avengers convention and just totally impressing the shoulder pads off of several poorly dressed smug white dudes with her obsequious fangirling. It's about as excruciating as it sounds, and not a little Mary Suey, but I leave that discussion to my frothier correspondents. Then there's a big disaster, funnily enough immediately after Tony Stark's introduction, and the Avengers get blamed for it and shunned and ostracised for no greater crime than wanting to wield literal godlike levels of power and resources with zero regulation or oversight. Evil Corporation takes over and starts oppressing people and it's up to Kamala to reunite the Avengers and remind them that being a hero isn't about glory or power, it's about having ready access to a cosmetics retailer. These first few missions mostly play like running down one corridor after another, but hey, they're nice corridors, there's an actual story focus, and at the end of some of the corridors there's colourful boss fights against Marvel supervillains like Taskmaster registered trademark and Abomination registered trademark. But then the live service shit starts insidiously to creep in. Funnily enough, immediately after Tony Stark rejoins the crew. You really are the fucking monkey's poor curs on this game, aren't you, Tone? The lovely approachable face flakes off bit by bit to reveal the cold eyeless skull underneath. You unlocked the confusingly laid out mission hub area. You unlocked the gear crafting station, the cosmetic crafting station, the faction missions, the storage lockers. Your next mission objective is to talk to all the gear vendors. We will literally hold up the plot until you fucking do that. And every single one of them has a line of dialogue specifically designed to guilt you if you leave without buying anything. Oh, you don't want any new emotes? Well, better tell the kids that it'll be sawdust porridge for dinner again. Then all those story-focused corridor missions are replaced by missions in which you go to one of a handful of pocket sandboxes, are directed to a specific location, and all the way there, copy-pasted side objectives appear all around us like we're dodging mortar shells in fucking no-man's land. There's a treasure box near 
nearby. There's a group of bland copy-pasted enemies nearby. Why not kill them before you kill the group of bland copy-pasted enemies you actually came here to deal with? It's like being trapped in the IKEA showroom when all you want is a fucking egg whisk. I just ran straight to the objective every time and was never the least bit underleveled. Can't say I felt like it was worth slowing down for a new cod piece with plus 4% chance of critical parry against custard damage, but then not everyone's a pro challenge runner like me. Does it really not bother you, target audience of Varvels and Ninjas? How this game fucking reeks of algorithms? How opening the in-game menu is like sticking your head in a dumpster full of shredded accounting documents? Because there's like five gear menus and 17 different currencies? And it feels like it's been workshopped to oblivion by marketing experts refining the most efficient system for making you want things that have no value? Oh, those tactics don't work on me, I'd say I am a savvy consumer. Yeah, we all think that, that's how they get you. I didn't particularly want those level 9 uncommon underpants of facetious example, but then my gear inventory filled up and the game said I couldn't have them till I cleared a space. Why the game thought I wanted to hold onto my old level 2 underpants I found in a bin, I did not know. Nor why it needed me to laboriously hold down the dismantle button to get rid of every unwanted item one by one, until I realised that they'd done it. They'd made me want the new underpants I didn't want, just by slightly withholding them until I had proved I knew how to efficiently pack a suitcase. How else have you rewired my brain, games industry? Are these even my thoughts I'm having? Do I actually fancy Jenny Agata? What? The combat? Oh yeah, that thing. I guess it's inoffensive enough to not put you off the all-important grind. It is a bit glitchy and unresponsive at times, and I did run into a repeating bug at a point where I was supposed to kill five generic dudes to proceed, but they kept disappearing into the floor where I couldn't reach. Can't fault their combat strategy, but I still had to reboot the fucking game. As for how the primary loop feels, it depends on what character you're controlling. Players the Hulk or Kamala Khan, and your blows have a satisfying enough impact to them. The player's Iron Man, and it feels like we're attacking the enemy by very aggressively shining flashlights at them. Yes, I'm ripping on you again, Tony Stark, but it's your own fault for still being in this game and not choking to death on your own cum. In summary, Marvel's Avengers is exactly what it always seemed to be, a game designed not to engage or electrify but to take up space inside your head, on your hard drive, in human culture in general. But the plot takes on a deeper meaning if you look at the Avengers as an analogy for the Disney Corporation, assembling a team of franchise and media companies in order to fight against an oppressive government-backed regime bent on corporate regulation, taxation, and the dreaded Monopolies Commission. So in this metaphor, Kamala Khan as the protagonist represents an approved citizen of the corporatocracy, who buys all the merch and dutifully wets her Stanley autographed knickers over the right brands, and then each Avenger represents one of Disney's acquisitions. Thor represents Pixar, old-school fantasy hero popular with the kids. The Hulk represents Fox, a veneer of respectability over an instrument of total societal destruction. And Iron Man represents Star Wars, used to be good when better actors were involved, now deserves to choke to death on its own cum. It's always nice when a random game really grabs me. It's like hitting it off with an attractive stranger in a bar who doesn't keep an eye on their drink and doesn't question my unmarked van. And I thought it might be educational to list some things it didn't do to grab me, games industry. It didn't put out a pre-rendered trailer six years before release showcasing all its crazy characters with magenta-coloured partial buzz cuts. It didn't use an aggressive levelling system system to increase engagement the way a drug dealer increases engagement by cutting the blow with laundry detergent, and it doesn't have Batman in it. No, what it did was, it made me emotionally engage with it. I play a game like Gears of War, I'm in constant life or death struggle with snarling monsters that want to exterminate humanity, and I'm more emotionally engaged with the cheese and pickle sandwich I'm taking sneaky bites of between reloads. It kills off a main character, I feel more remorse when my wife notices pickle stains on the dog. In contrast, I played Spiritfarer, got to the part where an old hedgehog with dementia remembers who I am in the brief moment before she disappears, and I cried. I actually did, fuck you. I played Spiritfarer at E3 and I remember it did a really fucking shitty job of bringing across what the fuck it was, so let's see if I can do better. We play as Stella, a constantly smiling young girl with a hat slightly larger than she is, and a second player can optionally play as Stella's cat. I'll take completely unnecessary multiplayer modes for 200, Alex. Ooh, what is Mario Odyssey? Stella has been appointed as the new ferryman on the River Styx, possibly as the result of a heavily exaggerated resume. Her job is now to pilot a houseboat around a sea of fantastical places and creatures, giving rides to the spirits of the newly dead in the form of animal people, and helping them finish off their lives 
last few concerns before taking them to eternal rest, and it seems that an awful lot of people's unresolved issues in life revolve around fetch quests. We might as well categorise Spiritfarer as an arty indie game, but for once we play as a small child in a not-scary world, quite a nice world actually, all hand-drawn in a lovely clean art style that reminds me of Franco-Belgian cartoons, full of light and wonder and melancholy humour which does rather juxtapose against the underlying knowledge that our job is essentially to take our passengers one by one into the woods and ice them in the back of the head. I'd also group Spiritfarer with Gris and Sea of Solitude under the subheading of very metaphorical arty indie games, but here's how it doesn't fuck it up like those two did. One, it never beats you around the head with its underlying meaning, Sea of Solitude. Two, it has a deeper and more poignant underlying meaning than main character is a bit sad, Gris. Three, it treats its gameplay as a way to establish its themes and add greater weight to its emotional moments rather than a bunch of meaningless checkpoint flags to fill the space between the metaphors, Gris and Sea of Solitude. And four, Meta, Meta, Four. The main point is, Spiritfarer has both underlying and surface meaning. If you want you can forget all about the metaphor business. I'm certainly fucking sick of saying the word. If you want it could just be a story about a little girl on a magical adventure making a bunch of animal friends, hanging out, doing their side quests, hugging them with the dedicated hug button, then icing them in the woods. And then you feel sad because you're actually sad about never getting to see your friend again. Not because there's a huge symbolic statue of the main character telling you to be sad. Gree. Again. Let's head down to the core gameplay in my magic diving bell. It's a 2D platforming base building exploration crafty way up the tech tree I'm up, structurally reminiscent of say Subnautica. Craft upgrades to explore more of the map to find new resources to craft more upgrades. How it differs from Subnautica is that you carry your base around with you on your ship, and all the sea monsters actually sincerely want to be your friend and are just saying that to get you into devouring range. There's also some Stardew Valley in here, since you have to grow crops, cook meals, and feed your passengers the things they like to keep the ungrateful dying bastards happy. The primary gameplay loop is a workaday routine that your passengers are woven into just enough to get you used to seeing them around, and that's why it's an emotional lurch when it's time to take them behind the woodshed. Because when you get back from seeing off Dennis the Slug, for a while you're not harvesting lettuce anymore, you're harvesting the lettuce Dennis the Slug used to like. You can't do the stud farm minigame without thinking about how Dennis the Slug taught you the optimal method for bringing off a horse. And of course that lovely house you built for Dennis the Slug stands empty on your boat for the rest of the game, and by the end your ship is struggling to stay afloat under the weight of countless two-story tombstones, just as our souls are burdened with the memories of times past, both good and bad, until the day we let it go. Metaphors! Oops, I think I heard the bell. That means it's time to qualify that praise. Spiritfarer might be a little bit too proud of its hand-drawn animation. A lot of the workaday activities have animations that go on just a bit too long. Endearing as it is to watch Stella boggle in wonder as her magic oven gloves appear. 300 times later I wish she'd fucking get over it at last so I could just have my fucking cheese sticks. I'm also annoyed by the way the game insists that we go to sleep at night. Yeah, I'd say that's when most people go to sleep, genius. But there's no exhaustion meter or any particular reason to go to sleep except your boat stubbornly refuses to move when it's dark, and I'd really rather be getting on with shit. The cited reason is that Stella can't navigate when it's dark, but during the day she seems to manage perfectly well, even when milking in the cowshed, with her head halfway up Daisy's ass. Also, while the story is brought across by the atmosphere and visuals is very effective, it falls short in the dialogue. It's a bit overwritten. Yes, the final monologue before a character gets iced is usually a bit of a knee in the feely parts, but at other times there are too many characters whose quirk is that they talk too much. Accidentally press talk instead of buy while interacting with the merchant, and you're locked into the mash message skip mambo for 30 seconds. Finally, Spiritfarer fails to stick the landing. Once you've iced enough motherfuckers, you get a sequence that reveals a significant truth about Stella, and it's the high point where the game should have ended. Sadly, the nature of the beast means it instead goes, right, when you're done finishing off your last few grindy side quests, come back here to end the game properly. And then Stella's journey inevitably dribbles limply to a conclusion at the point when you get bored and decide to pack it in. All the emotion in the process of resolving your last passenger is lost as you're thinking, yeah, just hurry up and have a fucking epiphany, asshole. Some of us have places to be. Nevertheless, I recommend Spiritfarer. In this numb, unsympathetic world, anything that makes me feel something is worth celebrating. That's why I don't take the price tags off my underpants. Regular viewers will know that 
that unnecessary colons in titles make me want to evacuate my own colon onto the games in question, and a related issue that equally deglazes my skillet with piss is what I like to call the non-abbreviated abbreviation, as seen in DMC Devil May Cry or FTL Faster Than Light. Ooh, let's use a cool three-letter abbreviation as our title, says Johnny Game Developer. That way it will be remembered just as fondly as the film LXG League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Good idea, says Susie Game Developer, no relation. And on that note, just in case people don't realise what it's supposed to stand for, we should put the full sentence somewhere nice and subtle and barely noticeable like on the end of the same fucking title. Yes, that way we will enjoy the dual benefit of abbreviating, i.e. shortening the name, while simultaneously making it slightly longer. We are both screaming twats. If only more people had the self-assuredness that MDK had back in the 90s. Still, I guess BPM bullets per minute can justify it, because most people would assume BPM to mean beats per minute, or bid more precision motorcycles, or, uh, bollock piss mimsy. Beats per meter squared is a game best summarised as Quake 1, crossed with the Binding of Isaac, crossed with Crypt of the Necrodancer. To make one freakish triple-parented mutant baby, they can all argue over who has to raise. You're in a series of procedurally generated first-person shooter dungeons that all look like they were lovingly crafted from delicious chocolate, that's the Quake 1 influence, and your task is to clear out the monsters room by room and level by level and hope to Christ that this time the gods will smile on you and randomly drop a gun that feels more effective than jerking off a sleepy pig in the direction of the enemies before you get more than two levels deep. The main gameplay twist is that you can only shoot, dodge, reload and masturbate your sleepy pig in time to the background music, and your score multiplier goes up the more you keep to the rhythm. Last week you may recall I reviewed No Straight Roads that was sort of trying to do a music-based combat thing but fell flat because the rhythm tended to get lost. Well, there's absolutely no risk of that happening with this game, since you boot it up and the rhythm immediately starts smashing you about the face and neck, with a driving bass drumbeat and screaming guitars, although the game has a Norse mythology theme, so I should say the music's relatively tame compared to most Scandinavian metal, as it doesn't mix in the sound of goats being slaughtered, or feature people singing like emotionally repressed camels who've been putting up with their riders' bullshit for years and finally have a chance to give vent. BPM, bombastically pounding music, is a good example of a game that's like 90% primary gameplay loop, and honestly, it kinda kicks ass. The music is perfect, it's exactly the kind of heavy driving rock that makes you want to appease all Father Odin, the kind you hear in your head when you and the boys are strutting into town to terrorise the ladies and tear shit up at the Mario 3D All-Stars Midnight launch event, and it's enormously satisfying to clear a room full of enemies without missing a step. Even having to reload as part of the ballet seems to enhance rather than interrupt the action, rhythmically pelvic thrusting as you slide bullets into the chamber one by one, and then spinning and one-shotting a fiery bat out of the air with perfect timing. I finally get what you were talking about, Mr. Ocelot, but with the game being 90% primary loop, there's not much room for anything else. There's only eight levels to a run and no plot to speak of unless you count the story of several bullets and their amazing journey across a room into the body of a giant spider. So good Good core combat and that's about it, not much else to say so might as well move on to the second game I played this week. There was no second game this week, Yase. If you'll recall, you spent the whole week playing BPM because you enjoyed the core combat so much. Did I? Yes, you were planning to find something to double bill it with, but then you got lazy and decided to keep playing BPM until you found some things that annoyed you about it. Hmm, well that does sound like me. And I did find a few things. Most prominently, while shooting to the rhythm is fun, there doesn't seem to be any benefit to being good at it. You get the same treasure whether you flawlessly clear the room or were moving like your trousers around your ankles. The only thing an unbroken combo gets you is a points multiplier. Points? High scores? What year is this? You're gonna ask me to enter my initials next so I can enter bum and make all the other little snipes in the arcade laugh before we run home and watch saved by the bell, so as long as you have the basics down of pointing at the enemy and shooting at the enemy, and not being in the places where enemy bullets are, then the main factor that affects whether or not we're having a successful run is almost 100% luck. Par for the course in a roguelike perhaps, but every time I got to the final boss the motherfucker rolled over like a dog in a tumble dryer, because if I'd gotten that far it was always because I'd picked up one of the random power-ups or weapons that completely break the difficulty, like the regenerating shield or the grenade launcher. I am behind a shield and cannot be attacked head-on, crows several late-game enemies. What are you gonna do about that, dipshit? Ha! <laughs> you missed. Oh, I'm dead, as are all my 
my friends. I think there are a lot of items that need a rebalancing. There just isn't enough con to balance the grenade launcher's pros. It needs a smaller clip or a more complex reload, or a little bar that pops out and hits you in the balls between each shot. It is very short range, Yahtzee. I'll piss off. Who keeps the monsters at long range? I'm trying to kill these motherfuckers, not take artful photographs of them. And while we're on the subject, the minigun sucks my big fat drinking straw. It's a minigun that can't fire rapidly. That's like owning a Dixie's Midnight Runners album that doesn't have Come On Eileen on it. The monsters could use some rebalancing as well. I don't know about you, but in my daily life, if I'm ever in a room with a giant lava spider and a small bat, I think it'd be reasonable to expect the giant lava spider to be the larger threat. But no, the most intense battles in the game are against the tiny flying enemies that the bigger enemies hire to carry their suitcases, because they're faster and hard to hit and fling projectiles that knock a quarter of your health off. Also, the first dungeon boss is the hardest in the game, because it's fast and got patterns and every other boss is a variation on hurl things at the big fat dude, like you're a Subway sandwich artist who completely stopped giving a shit. I think that's all my nitpicks. At the end of the day, BPM Bullets Prime Minister is a perfect illustration of why the primary gameplay loop is so important, because despite lacking much substance, the sheer catharsis of the combat made me want to play it way longer than I wanted to keep playing, say, Last of Us 2. Perhaps as many as 12 seconds. In these uncertain times, is it me or is the phrase in these uncertain times starting to supplant the word hello? It's important to focus on the stabilities of life. The earth will continue to turn, the sun will continue to rise, if partially concealed by a haze of orange smoke like the face of a loved one appearing briefly at the surface of an unsanitary piranha tank, and the new Serious Sam game is going to play pretty much like all the other ones. God bless you, Crow Team, for being as reliably unmoving as a donkey on a staircase. So Serious Sam 4 then, before, before First Encounter. Yet another prequel to the original Serious Sam, a game that required context the way a chimp requires a degree in molecular biology. You are a big strong man who can carry more guns than a military-grade attack helicopter and run backwards faster than most ordinary men can sprint. Here's 10 billion monsters in a series of open environments, piddly-bam, pimply-bum. There is very little backstory that would meaningfully enhance it's such a purely cathartic experience, although you might distract from it. Gunning down 9,000 zombie soldiers might lose some appeal if we know that Sam's doing it instead of picking up his daughter from hockey practice. On a contemporary Earth not quite as ultra-buggered by alien invaders as it was in the last prequel, there's still enough of an official military around for serious Sam to have a little tag-along brigade of quirky friends, so he can live out his dream of reenacting scenes from Predator, but more importantly so he can have a couple of nice, convenient, warm bodies to knock off every time a new monster needs to be established as particularly nasty. In the course of a rather nondescript quest to recover a generic powerful MacGuffin that could save the Earth but we already know won't, Sam attempts to set a new record for most action movie cliches in a single plot. So Sam has an abrasive relationship with a no-nonsense commander who's jealous of Sam being more popular despite wearing considerably smaller sunglasses, there's a rookie on Sam's team who needs to prove himself, Sam has to win over a foreign resistance group who distrusts his brash American ways and Big Mac's ended farts, and then he has to team up with an alien soldier who's joined the good guys and who he initially distrusts. That last one shows up for all of about ten minutes and then mysteriously vanishes from the plot. I guess a full story arc in which serious Sam confronts his own prejudices would be a difficult thing to squeeze between all the casually murdering more aliens than a border patrol officer who hasn't jerked off in weeks. All of these cliché demi-plots are handled fairly ineptly and the tone is all over the place. Logo t-shirt wearing kooky loudmouth serious Sam Stone finds himself having to be haunted and sad over the death of an ally, and it's like watching Barney the Dinosaur trying to play Macbeth. Then two seconds later they're doing that running gag where they're constantly struggling to come up with good one-liners after killing something. A running gag that runs a little too long for my taste, it's running in the sense of goodness there's a lot of pus running out of these open sores. The story of serious Sam 4 is a janky construct of awkwardly animated stock characters and badly established subplots, and the main point I take away from it is that Crow Team are a bunch of complete dorks, and Serious Sam the character is entirely what one should expect from a badass action hero as envisioned by a bunch of complete dorks, muscle-bound, violent, and about as socially adept as a sperm whale at a birthday party. The gameplay, as I say, is Serious Sam again. Basically the same enemies and basically the same weapons. Open environments, spray fire, hold down S, try to remember what you learned about bunny hopping at speedrunning school. The phrase, if it ain't broke don't fix it, appeared prominently in the marketing material, which 
which is fair enough, but it seems Crow Team's other guiding philosophy is if it don't need fixing, you can still cover it in unicorn stickers and make it wear a silly hat. Because there are some new features that don't so much integrate as float on top of the core gameplay like spider eggs on a birthday trifle. The feature that most gave me the foreboding belly squirts was the skill tree. Oh serious Sam, the creepy boundary overstepping boy scout leader of modern trends touches the genitals of even the best of us. Skill trees are a defining part of the Jiminy Cockthroat experience and at worst they can give a game the Ghost of Tsushima problem where you have to unlock nine things before the gameplay actually fucking works. Well fortunately you don't have to unlock the ability to run backwards or reload both barrels of the shotgun at once. Actually skill points are kind of rare, they're tied to special items you have to find that I only found like five or six in the whole game. You'd probably find more if you do more secret hunting but I know what you're like with secrets Crow Team. Having us go to random building number 871, jump off a bollard onto a lamppost, onto an air conditioner, onto a sparrow's erection, and then do the obscure physics exploit jump that shimmies you along a wall and transports you to Narnia. And after all that the skills you can unlock are mostly pointless extra mechanics like the ability to dual wield pistols and fire the game's shittiest gun at a slightly faster rate, in case you're hoping to make the enemies feel bad about attacking someone obviously mentally disabled. But one skill you can get is the ability to ride certain monsters. When I saw that I said, Jesus, that's the kind of new feature you want to put front and centre, Crow Team. Not buried five upgrade points deep. I want to burst onto the scene riding a Syrian werebull and go, knock knock motherfuckers, who's ready for the Gymkhana? In practice though it's kinda lame. It's only useful if you want an extra health bar to soak up while you're getting the fuck out of dodge. See, it and most of the new features have the common problem of not enhancing the core gameplay but just making it easier. Spectacular as the black hole grenade is, it's really just for hoovering up a horde you don't feel like dealing with, because you sprained your ankle wall shimmy Narnia jumping out of the map to find one small armour pickup. Oh yeah, and you pilot a giant mech more than once. Which plays much like giant mech games always do, like a standard first person shooter except you can only move like your balls have been stapled to a coffee table. And then my mech blew up and I had to finish off the horde on foot, only to discover that I couldn't advance because I needed the mech to blow up the barrier to the next area, so I had to reload a save. Bit of a clumsy oversight. Ooh, clumsy, that's a good word. Everything about Sirius Sam 4 that we haven't seen before, from the new gameplay features to the all over the place plot, feels like it's been clumsily attached, like a cape on a dog that threatens to fall off every time it chases a squirrel. But if you're after more of that Sirius Sam horde shooter action in all new bigger environments, Sirius Sam 4 obliges, and maybe that's all you wanted to know. In which case, sorry it took me five minutes of your time to say that, but what else were you gonna do with it? Have sex five times? This month we're asking for your support for our premium programmes via the Escapist Plus and YouTube memberships. Your support allows us to continue making the content we want instead of chasing algorithms or the latest trends. Plus you get a bunch of perks like ad-free viewing via the Escapist Plus on our main website, early access on YouTube via YouTube memberships, and bonus content like our monthly Ask the Creators video series where we answer your burning questions. Thanks in advance for your continued support. Guilt, guilt, bat eyelashes, bat eyelashes, etc. Ah, uh, ancient mythology, the wonderful gift from our ancestors that ensures pretentious writers will never be shy of a free idea bucket. Hey, is there any reason we can't make up more mythology? Like if I wanted to invent Maurice the god of consumer electronics, or Rumblecrag the god of small utensils that get jammed in the kitchen drawer? Can I do that, or do I have to paint them on a vase and wait a thousand years for it to count? Video games have always got a lot of mileage out of mythology, but it's disappointing how it only ever seems to fall back on either Greek or Norse. I already know way too much about Greek and Norse mythology, why don't you ever make games about Zoroastrianism? I don't know anything about Zarathustra. I know that he spake once. Hades is a new game, fresh off the fiery grill of early access, and as the title suggests is themed around Greek mythology, boo, but it's by Supergiant Games, yay! So I guess I can forgive it. Supergiant Games have a very distinct style, you know you're playing a Supergiant game if it's got colourful hand-painted graphics, isometric gameplay, very strong writing focused on world building and characters, and all the voice acting sounds like it's coming from very sexy people. Hades is a roguelike, boo, but again I can forgive it if Supergiant Games, yay, does it. Supergiant one of my blue-eyed boy teacher's pet indie developers because they're always exploring new ways to tell stories through the medium of video game. 
They're not content to just fade out to cinematic every three rooms so Marcus Phoenix can pulsate his neck at someone. They're generally not my favourite games to play, however. The combat usually gets a touch grindy when there is combat, and the less said about Pyre, the amazingly well-written high school basketball simulator, the better. But they're certainly some of my favourite games to talk about. Hades is about Zagreus, the son of the titular deity who has gotten sick of kicking around the depths of Tartarus playing Halo, and very deliberately pretending not to notice the pamphlets for vocational schools his dad rather unsubtly keeps leaving on the coffee table, and so he decides to pull what's known as the Reverse Orpheus and journey out of the underworld for the first time in his life. And there's nothing you can do to stop me, dad! Um, I literally rule over legions of immortal warriors with nothing to do all day but try to stop you, Zagreus. Shut up! You never bought me a car! Hades is a hack and slash roguelite, and you know how that goes. Death resets you to the start and re-randomizes the map, so get ready for an inexperience like attempting to penetrate a brick wall by jabbing it with a sewing needle an n plus one number of times. And since there are so many roguelikes now, they can be subcategorized up the arse. Roguelikes and roguelites and rogue lionels and rogue patricias. Hades is of a rogue legacy sort of flavour, where you do have to start from the beginning if you die, but you have upgrades and resources that you keep from run to run. And so success is basically inevitable, because if you just keep trying, eventually you'll be powered up enough to plough across the Grecian afterlife like a combine harvester in a petting zoo. Always the same brick wall, but eventually your sewing needle is made of titanium and the size of a tent peg, and you know exactly where the mortar between the bricks has gone all crumbly. The rogue-like purists among you might get sniffy, but the inevitable success model is more fitting for what Supergiant is trying to do here. That is, tell a story with an ending. Specifically a mythic twist upon the ever-relatable tale of wanting to go out and play, but Dad won't let us until we finish the washing up. See, since we're dealing with immortal gods of the underworld, nobody dies for good and everyone's aware of that, which is a natural fit for the whole roguelike many deaths thing. You die, and you show up back in Hades's vegetable garden, traipse back through the house, say hi to the first boss you killed who's now kicking around the lounge, waiting to tell you to piss off. Hades himself, the end boss, is there, just sitting in his armchair watching Inspector Morse, and rolling his eyes at you because he said you'd hurt yourself if you went sledding at the quarry, but you didn't listen and now you've hurt yourself and he's not mad, he's just disappointed. There's a whole bunch of interesting dynamics at play that are continually developing from run to run. It's got more contextual dialogue lines than a frat house laundry basket has mysterious smells. And when you finally leave the house to start your next run, it's like having to leave the party early so you can get back to shoveling snow out of the driveway. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with the core combat, unless you're using the gun weapon, which is about as satisfying to use as a spring-loaded tampon. But every other weapon has a good feel, it's well animated and got all those little effects and flashy bits to make your blows really pop and land. But, well, I hesitate to say it gets samey, that's kind of the point. Zagreus' entire mission is to break free of the cycle. It'd be like complaining that Lord of the Rings spends way too much time on all this ring business. But twenty-odd runs down the line, I was getting the sense that the combat had become something I was more slogging through than enjoying. The enemy health bars get a bit spongy, and your button pressing gets a bit mashy, and the action gets hard to follow amid all the swishy effects, and altogether it becomes a very potato salady experience. There are enough elements in play between six different weapons, three kinds of attack, and multiple varieties of power-up that the core combat can feel quite different from run to run, but with that comes a sense that success comes not from getting good, but from randomly stumbling upon a combination of power-ups that best suits your style, or breaks the difficulty in half like a Kit Kat. Just as I played Pyre on easiest difficulty because I liked the characters but really couldn't be asked to brush up on optimal dribbling strategies, I ended up turning on Hades' optional easy mode that allegedly is for players who want to focus on the plot, but all it does is increase your defence 2% every time you die, accelerating the process of inevitable success but not by much. You still have to slog through a lot of repetitive combat to progress the story, because it turns out the slog is the story, or at least part of it. As I said, Supergiant are very big on integrating narrative with gameplay, and that's very much what's going on here. If Zagreus could just cruise through the underworld first go on a surfboard made of skeletons, then you'd never get the intended sense of hopelessness. But even knowing that, the obligation to grind running past the point where it starts feeling samey is what just loses me at the end. Still, Hades succeeds in an awful lot of areas. The art, the design, the story, it all fits together like a hideously complex clockwork machine. Perhaps to be expected, since it's been fiddling with itself on early access for so long that its palms have got calluses you could open beer bottles with.
It must feel weird when somebody else makes a sequel to your franchise, like when the babysitter insists on being called Mummy. It must be doubly weird when you thought your franchise died years ago and the babysitter has just shown up at your door at the dead of night with a shovel and a weird smile. I think it's fair to say that Crash Bandicoot didn't exactly leave loose ends untied, it wasn't the fucking wheel of time, it was pretty thoroughly explored out as a concept. You don't bring out a fucking kart racing tie-in game when you can't see the bottom of the idea bucket. And yet here comes Toys for Bob, 20 years down the line, clutching its big shiny shovel, going, don't worry Naughty Dog, we will continue the great work in the original spirit you intended. And meanwhile Naughty Dog moved on years ago and are now more concerned with making terribly serious and important games about very unpleasant people fucking each other on smallpox blankets. Toys for Bob did the Switch port for the Crash Bandicoot and Same Trilogy remasters and maybe they felt they could make something new with the assets they already had lying around. It's like when you make the Lego Star Destroyer according to the instructions but then get bored and make your own custom spaceship out of some of the parts and the corpse of the family cat. Crash Bandicoot 4, It's About Time's plot, concerns all of Crash Bandicoot's old villains doing their usual thing, i.e. trying to take over the universe, and Crash Bandicoot has to stop them by doing his usual thing, i.e. failing to land on a narrow perch and falling to his death like a drunk sparrow with no legs 900 million times. On the whole it plays very much like Crash Bandicoot's 1-3 with their signature linear semi-3D platforming, so congratulations Toys for Bob, despite coming decades after the fact you have successfully evoked the spirit of the PS1 platformer by creating what feels like a cheap sequel hacked out inside a year. Well that's unfair. There are a bunch of new masks you can get that apply a handful of new platforming mechanics, slow motion, gravity reversal and a couple of other things very kindly donated from Mario Galaxy's recycle bin, as well as a bunch of different playable characters you control at various times, one of whom is Torna, Crash Bandicoot's girlfriend from the first game, who mysteriously vanished from the subsequent sequels. Probably because she had legs you could ski down and tits like two coconuts in a furry orange pencil case and confused more burgeoning sexualities than the Cadbury's caramel rabbit. Which was in its own way cluttering up the problematic, but the Torna in Crash Bandicoot 4 is such a massive oversteer in the opposite direction that it's frankly ridiculous. They've dressed her up in every imaginable cliche of the badass action girl of modern standards, complete with brightly coloured partial buzz cut and biker jacket and general independent spirit, and she looks like she got hit in the face with a bucket full of the early 90s. But neither version of Torna has any actual depth as a character, although they do both have an arse like two bald men trying to escape from a sack. Torna and the other non-Crash characters feature as part of a series of optional missions in which we're invited to experience a parallel story from their perspective, but the problem is there's barely a story, let alone a multifaceted one that benefits from alternate viewpoints. All that happens in these missions is, character inexplicably appears by magic, character does a thing, character inexplicably disappears by magic, not exactly a Christopher Nolan screenplay. Crash Bandicoot 4 is the kind of game I take to a desert island, because with nothing better to do but seek 100% completion it'd keep me nice and occupied all the way to rescue, and for a good chunk of the boat ride home, and I'll be able to subsist on the froth coming out of all my facial orifices. You can reach the final boss inside like four hours, then look at your mediocre ending and paltry handful of unlocks and use the time you saved to call your dad and tell him how right he was to be disappointed in you. You want your money's worth, you have to repeat every single level over and over again, to break all the boxes, to find the hidden gems, to beat them without dying, beat them while balancing an egg on a spoon, then do all of that again in the inverted mode, which appears to be exactly the same level, just with a weird graphics filter over it. It'll keep you occupied, but then so will alphabetizing the contents of a tin of baked beans, and that's not a great deal of fun either. The gameplay is full of little mounting frustrations, and the main thing driving you to complete it will probably be spite. You'll want to finish so you can finally lean back, breathe free, carefully remove the hard drive and punt it through a closed window. The main problem that has always stuck out of fixed camera 3D platformers like a traumatically botched nipple piercing is depth perception. Sure, Crash Bandicoot gets a nice obvious shadow under him, but why doesn't anything else? So if I'm trying to land on a hovering crate or enemy I'm once again playing bottomless pit Russian roulette. If you're going to demand consistent perfection from me, it'd be nice if the mechanics could be fucking consistent in return, is me point. Torna's unique mechanic is a grappling hook gun, because of course it fucking is, but it's contextual, and more than once I was in mid-air and the grapple prompt apparently decided I was a couple of nanometers off for its tastes, and so I was cordially invited to eat shit. Man, I thought, if I'd been going for the no deaths run then I'd be frothing like a poorly supervised coffee machine right about now. Fortunately, I long ago came to terms with my own mediocrity, as it seems of most of my viewership. At first I thought the checkpoints were too far apart, but then I noticed that new checkpoints appear if you die enough times. So I guess it's like the American healthcare system where they'll give you the baseline amount of necessary 
necessary care, but only if you can prove that you're oozing out of at least three places. And it's not just a matter of high difficulty, because the loading times on the PS4 at least are slow enough to qualify for handicapped parking. So if you're having to restart a level a lot, then you'll spend a lot of time alone with your private thoughts, and that's how we get serial murderers. So in summary, again, I must congratulate the developers for successfully recreating what feels like a late 90s PS1 platformer, with absolutely none of the conveniences, design innovations, and quality of life improvements we've come up with in the meantime. And hey, Crash Bandicoot as a franchise is still doing a hell of a lot better than Sonic the Hedgehog. But that makes me wonder where the difference lies. I mean, they're both 90s mascot platformers about an edgy forest animal in comically oversized shoes, fighting a mad scientist with vaguely ecological themes. They both at various times featured female characters that left very confused feelings in developing minds. So where did Sonic put his comically oversized foot in it? I've thought about it, and I think it's because Crash Bandicoot never nicked any ideas from Dragon Ball Z. Third law of the universe, guys. Light speed, the gravitational constant, and anime ruins everything. It's been so long since the last Amnesia game, I almost forgot it existed, ironically. LOL! And even longer since the last instalment by Frictional Games, A Machine for Pigs was of course developed by the Chinese Room, and had all the gameplay of a supermarket conveyor belt covered in pork products, not to mention a rather off-putting subtitle, but I remember saying at the time at least it didn't go for some incredibly generic one-word sequel name, inevitably beginning with the letters RE, in which case, oh dear oh dear oh dear Amnesia Rebirth, you left the starting blocks and one of your shoes has already fallen off. Between this and the Paper Mario Hole Punch boss, I really need to figure out a way to exploit my power to make exaggerated terrible ideas real. Hey, wouldn't it be crazy if the post office stopped delivering letters and instead delivered free money to my house? But I digress. In Amnesia Rebirth we play as Tazzy Trianon, a French archaeologist around the turn of the previous less fucked up century, who heads out into the desert with her husband and expedition team, but after their plane crashes she wakes up in the wreckage with no memory and everyone else mysteriously gone. So in the grand tradition of Amnesia games, we as Tazzy must figure out what happened by descending into somewhere that's very dark. And brace yourself, it'll probably turn out you can't remember because you did a bad thing, and everyone's gone because you ate them, or turned them into camels or whatever. Minus spoiler alert, one of the central plot elements concerns a couple trying for a second child, which I suppose you might call a rebirth if you're a robot from space. It's just about the only rebirth on offer, as rebirth implies evolution and this is mainly a return to the gameplay of the first Amnesia The Dark Descent, in that it actually has some gameplay. You explore spooky environments while using your limited supply of oil and matches to minimise the amount of time you spend in pitch darkness, where you run the risk of suffering a major trouser accident and lethally bankrupting yourself with dry cleaning expenses, and you have to balance all that while solving inventory puzzles and hiding from gribblies, which it turns out you're only in actual danger from about 5% of the time, but you don't know which 5% ooh, And of course there's still that trademark Frictional Games physics interaction, where you open doors by clicking the mouse and then moving the mouse and realising you should have moved it the other way, dumb twat. None of which should be a deal breaker if you did like the original Amnesia, this game even features the triumphant return of the jam that comes out of the walls. But at the same time, Dark Descent is ten years old. It'd be in middle school by now, swapping its Aether inhaler for Pokemon cards. It was one of the progenitors of the first person atmospheric survival horror mystery subgenre that has since evolved to new heights with games like Resident Evil 7 and PT, and simultaneously devolved into new shit smeared depths with the 900 million horror walking simulators out there that still think that the door you just came in now leading to somewhere else like we're in Willy Wonka's fucking chocolate factory is the height of clever mindfucks. And Rebirth hasn't really moved with the times in either direction. I think it's on the same engine as Dark Descent, it's certainly quite graphically dated, and the physics is still rife with issues. It'll stop you dead in the middle of walking just because it's scandalised by the sheer audacity with which you're attempting to navigate a gentle slope with a small cardboard box on it. The story, on the other hand, has taken a couple of cues from horror games in the intervening years. Specifically, it's latched onto Outlast's idea of kicking the absolute snot out of the main character from start to finish. Tazzy has apparently been binging on the same donuts Lara Croft likes because the floor has a tendency to collapse beneath her big fat ass at about the same rate, which might be due to the machinations of the various evil Lovecraftian monsters that chase her, but one suspects is actually the work of evil Lovecraftian game designers trying to pad the runtime out. I think what we've learned in the post Five Nights at Freddy's world is that horror games actually benefit from brevity, unless they can keep pulling new surprises out of their non-Euclidean buttholes. That's why short concept horror games bloom in the gardens of indie gaming like cigarette butts in a public park. While I liked Amnesia The Dark Descent, in retrospect I only remember 
remember a handful of moments from it, mostly the story beats towards the end, and everything else is a forgettable haze of samey rooms, and having to change my trousers every time I saw something move. Similarly, while the plot of Amnesia Reloaded is intriguing enough and may hit particularly hard if you yourself are the parent of a young child, or if floors tend to collapse under you for no reason, it's mainly the last few hours of the story that stand out in my memory, and there are a lot of gameplay sections on the way that could have been removed to no great loss. I can tell from my pristine trousers that the monsters just don't command the same terror that they did in Dark Descent, probably because in this case you get a good look at them enough times that you can see they're just generic zombie dudes, and suspense only lasts as long as the mysterious snarly thing lurking in the dark could be anything from a gelatinous cube to a hungover Orson Welles. The general problem is one of demystification, I think. In The Dark Descent we only learn scripts and scraps about an evil Lovecraftian other dimension that's causing all the problems, but in Amnesia Recalcitrant, Tazzy gets to physically go to one. In fact, she pops in and out of it every ten minutes, like she's never quite convinced that she locked the doors properly the last time she was there. At one point she takes the public subway train in the evil Lovecraftian dimension and misses her stop because the map was confusing. No, really, this happens. It's one of the things that draws out the runtime, like your mum's waistband at the cock buffet. So maybe it's the Dark Descent's stronger grounding in reality that made it more effective. Remember the rhyme? Monster in a scary world, that's just where monsters come from, girl. Monster in your living room, better sense of creeping doom. So as for whether or not I recommend Amnesia Revengeance, hmm. I suppose I have a hard time pointing to any specific deal breakers, despite having its head a bit too far up in Magic Land, there's still enough of a human element that the story lands with effective emotional impact, and everything else is functional enough. It's just that Amnesia the Dark Descent was such an influential game of its time, I guess I was expecting more. Dark Descent brought us to an interesting place and other games have since explored that interesting place further, but Amnesia itself seems to just want to stay in the car listening to Radio 4. Hey everybody, it's October, the time of writing. The month when all the ooky spooky games pop up like rigor mortis erections at an open casket funeral. And hey, it's also 2020, the year of shit, where everything is shit and human civilization circles the toilet bowl like the latter two thirds of last night's sweet corn burrito. So what better way to mark the occasion than with a really shit horror game? Step forward, the Remothered franchise, which began in 2018 with Remothered Tormented Fathers, a unique survival horror IP that collectively made a lot of people go, wow, that's the most awkward fucking title I've ever seen outside of Japanese games and Philip K. Dick novels. I didn't even do the dry heave because I feel the title is dry heave enough. And then the developers said, oh, you think that title's awkward, do you? Well, I'm sure we can beat that record. So here's the sequel, Remothered Broken Porcelain, which sounds like something you'd find on a label in an antique shop owned by someone for whom English is a second language. It's not secondhand, it's remothered. Don't worry, it still pours tea as long as you don't lift it by the handle or any other part. Remothered Tormented Fathers was a stealth survival horror in the tradition of games like Haunting Ground on the PS2 or Clock Tower on the SNES. Yeah, it goes that far back. You, young horror-making whippersnappers, think you invented running away and hiding in cupboards, don't you? Not to mention monsters that think one searches a cupboard by standing in front of it and staring really hard at the door. The idea being that you're trying to explore the usual survival horror environment full of really securitously locked doors, while being hunted by a monster that can't be permanently killed, but can be temporarily knocked down with items or traps or some technique or other, so that you can run off to find a nice cupboard in which to void your bowels in safety. I must admit, I didn't go out of my way to try the first one, because it was one horror game among hundreds, and who the fuck knows anymore what IPs have got staying power, and which are just going to burst on the surface of steam like passing zits. I'm like a bloke who runs a uranium mine who doesn't bother committing the names of any workers to memory until they've survived at least three shifts. So when a sequel to Remothered came out, I thought, ooh, guess it was worth at least four-fifths of a damn, let's check it out! Well, it's a good thing Remothered Broken Porcelain doesn't work in a uranium mine, because it'd cause severe morale issues with the horrible things it leaves in the communal latrine. It's a bad one, friends. So bad I want to bend it over my autopsy table and really work out what the fuck happened. It's a continuation of the plot of the last game that gets summed up for us in a story so far video, whose principal effect was to get me completely lost before we'd even fucking started. Apparently some lady was looking for a missing girl and got trapped in a house with a murderous old man and an evil nun and there was a conspiracy involving evil science and a convent burning down and some or all of the characters were being hypnotised by some or all of the rest of the characters. Got all that? Good, off we go. And then we get dumped into gameplay like I've just been given a blanket party at boot camp and I'm now dazedly blinking into the darkness wondering if I should burst into tears or not. From there we play as a teenage schoolgirl with a British 
British accent of mysterious origin, who lives in a hotel where the staff members keep going insane and trying to braid her hair with a fire axe. If I were to describe the visuals of Remothered Talking Bicycle in ten words or less, I'd go for murky murky murky, murky 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 murky, contextual button prompt. Most of the action takes place in murky corridors, each containing at least one chest of drawers, which are the natural habitat of the contextual button prompt. Press 1 to open a drawer, and then do a little limbo dance with the camera to see if there's a contextual button prompt over one of the nondescript murky objects inside, while trying not to press the contextual button prompt that opens the other drawers. But don't worry too much about that, because your inventory will be full after about two rooms. You'll know, because every new item you pick up causes something to slide out of your trouser leg like an inadequately pinched turd. At that point, you'll be ready to take on whatever monster is currently stalking the halls, repeating the same three lines of dialogue, and who tend to instantly spot you regardless of what you think you're crouched behind. Pro tip, stick to just distracting them with noisy objects, because throwing a bottle at their head stuns them about as much as an insincere marriage proposal. You can also use ropes to stop them coming through doors, but the one time I tried that it also prevented me from going through the door, and I had to reload a save, although not before declaring a moral victory. But you might as well not bother with items, because you can run away easily enough, and even if they catch you there's a good chance they just want to shove you about, like bullies trying to push you into the opposite gender bathroom, until your health runs out and they shove a dessert fork up your nose. Actually the most reliable strategy is to wait for their AI to fuck up. One time I saw the chasey monster just standing there in the middle of the murky corridor, they ignored all my distraction objects, so I just awkwardly tried to squeeze past them, thinking, this is either a bug or there's a very cunning jump scare coming up. Spoiler alert, it was the first one. As if remothered trombone pederast could ever successfully be scary. All impact the chasey monsters could have is lost when you've run away from them and hid in the same cupboard five times, because you still don't know what the fuck you're supposed to do. And it's even odds whether you just haven't figured it out yet, or if the game's bugged out again. I probably gave remothered solipsist hairdryer more time than it deserved. I made it all the way through about nine confusing plot developments to a puzzle where I was supposed to open a voice-activated safe. Now I could hear one of the villains talking to his sock puppets in a nearby room, and I had a tape recorder. I felt like I was ready to put all the pieces of this mind melter together, so I stood where the dialogue was loudest and pressed the use button, and my big-titted Jodie Foster look-alike protagonist got out her sound recorder and sort of waved it a bit like she was using it to check for ghosts. So did that do it? I went back to the safe and I pressed use on it and the lady said BINGO and then nothing happened. I gave up at that point. I'm not gonna stand here being made to feel silly because you gave me a square peg and a square hole and then stretched cling film around the latter, remothered audacious wallpaper. I took enough of that bullshit from 90s adventure games. Could the game be saved if they patch out the bugs, Yards? Well the design's bad and the story's a mess so that's like asking if I could suck a turd up through a drinking straw if it was mixed with water first. Possibly, but on the whole I'd rather just find a different juice box. I'll say one thing for the age in which we live. At least we might finally get that evil cyberpunk future we've always dreamed about. Yes, it'll mean an age of corporate oppression and rampant income inequality, but on the bright side, rollerblading might come back. Probably why everyone's looking forward to Cyberpunk 20 whatever it was, they're keen to get some practice in before Amazon starts reserving breathable air for Prime subscribers. Well, to tide you over while you're waiting, here's another cyberpunk game called Ghost Runner. Rather a generic name. If the word runner has been tacked on and there doesn't seem to be much athletics going on, you know you're dealing with cyberpunk. See also Blade Runner, Net Runner, Shadow Runner, Tech Runner. That last one I made up but you thought it was real, didn't you? That's my point. Still, I can't fault Ghost Runner's title for relevance, since it's a game primarily about running and making things dead. The plot is, you're a cyborg ninja in the cyberpunk future that was being run by an elderly scientist power couple until one of them turned themselves into Dr. Octopus because they were sick of playing Scrabble and watching Midsummer Murders, after being thrown down into the slums which are physically at the bottom of the city because cyberpunk's never been good at subtle symbolism at the best of times, our hero must journey back up to the top to challenge the villain to a final duel on behalf of all the oppressed citizens and Spider-Man. And the good thing about Ghost Runner's plot is that it's so fucking mind-numbingly 
predictable, it's virtually impossible to spoil. If I were to tell you that Mr. G. Runner Esquire has two voices in his earpiece, one a stern taskmaster who keeps downplaying our humanity and advising us not to stop to save civilians because piles of bodies are useful for reaching high shelves, the other a tearful bunny rabbit who dreams with glimmering eyes of a better world for all, who asks you to please save all their whittle forest friends because it'd be such a shame to waste all the lovely cakes she baked for tea. Which of those two characters would you think turns on us before the end? And without wishing to give any more away, I had a mystical premonition halfway through that the ending of the game was going to rip off the ending of Robocop, and funnily enough that's exactly what it did. But forget about the plot, the writers did the instant the first draft was turned in. This is a highly gameplay focused experience that I would best summarise as first person katana zero, with some mirrors edgy parkouring thrown into the mix to keep the wheels turning. We're thrown into a linear sequence of combat arenas where you tend to die a lot, broken up by platforming challenges where you tend to die a lot, but you're kind of expected to, it's the Hotline Miami thing where reloading is lightning fast and you can crack off one attempt after another like you're watching Groundhog Day on Fast Forward, which is just as well because things might get frustrating. It's first person, and what's first person good for kids? Ranged combat! What's it not so good for? Melee combat and anything that relies upon situational awareness! That's right! That's not Min's words, if you ever stop moving in a combat section, you're already dead. The message just hasn't reached your brain yet. And you'll probably never realise what killed you because you can only look in one direction and bullets will be closing in from at least five. And even if you haven't stopped, they'll probably hit you anyway if you aren't making liberal use of the slow motion power that lets you sidestep in mid-air. Christ knows how that works from a physics perspective. We are a cyborg, maybe we've got little queefing robo-vaginas under our armpits that function as thrusters. As with most games from the Hotline Miami stable, the fast-paced gameplay can be uvular pummelingly frustrating while you're struggling and Chesterfield sofa-buggeringly satisfying when you finally succeed. But there's a couple of slightly dodgy notes to the design that temper any praise I might offer. For one, at the end of the standard dash move, our character suddenly decelerates like he has to stop to have a little burp, and it kind of kills the flow for me, especially since this is one of the core traversal moves that we're generally using more often than we use our ability to breathe. You also acquire four superpowers along the course of the game that aren't exactly core mechanics because they take longer to cool down than the horniest cat in the furnace, and all of them are basically just for instantly deleting an enemy or two if you can't be bothered to deal with them properly. These abilities include kill enemies in a line, kill enemies with another enemy, kill enemies with a very unreliable projectile that half the time just sails right through motherfuckers without even ruffling their hairdo, or just splatter everything directly in front of you. Yeah, if I were you, I'd stick to the sneeze of doom. But whatever it's worth, Ghost Runner's gameplay is at its best in the basic combat because you have options. If the strategy of sprinting headlong towards an enemy headbutting their bullets out of the way doesn't seem to be working out, you can try new tactics, take a different route, we'll run along the knick-knack shelf, jump off the engorged testicle of a moth, and stone-cold uncoil a dude's flesh like he's the wrapping on a tube of biscuit dough. The platforming sections are more hit and miss because there's usually only one route, and then there are the boss fights, which are 100% miss, absolute no-hit zone there. The first one has you escaping from a gigantic game of kaplunk where lasers fire in all directions like stiffies at a nudist debutante ball, and your only choice is to add Mr. Trial and Mr. Error to your dance card, but it's still better than the second boss fight with Angry Girl Ninja where the only way to win is to parry all her strikes and the point when you press parry appears to be completely unrelated to the way her limbs randomly flail in all directions, like she's the fluffer at the nudist debutante ball and there's only five seconds to go before the big midnight jizz fountain, but even that is still better than the final boss fight with Dr. Octopus. You'd think the main advantage of Dr. Octopus tentacles would be increased mobility, so it's a little baffling why Dr. Octopus just fucking sits there like a pile of dodgy sauerkraut, challenging you to a rather humiliating game of Simon Says. So yeah, it's like working at a failing retailer, things are alright on the ground level but the bosses are all fucking terrible. Having said all that, I did find some fun in Ghost Runner but the design does seem to be rife with rookie mistakes. With that in mind, I looked into the creator's previous titles, and it turns out one of the developers was Slipgate Ironworks who brought us that god-awful bombshell game from a few years back amongst others. Well you know what, for all Ghost Runner's flaws it definitely shows improvement, so nice job lads. You went from giving us a dog poo sandwich, to giving us a normal sandwich with dog poo on the side, some of which still got on the sandwich but that was probably more the fault of whoever was packing the takeout box. What am I on about? Alright, I have to be professional about something. Don't worry, this won't last long. I need to disclose that I worked on Watch Dogs Legion. Not in a hugely significant capacity, they just hired me to punch up the dialogue for the AI support character who keeps making inappropriate jokes. And they didn't use all my lines, I think 
think they felt some of my inappropriate jokes weren't appropriate. Point is, it was just a bit of punching up and shouldn't preclude me from giving an unbiased review of the game, okay? Okay. Now, Watch Dogs Legion is the third instalment of the series that began with the gritty vigilante adventures of Aiden Pierce, the amazing magic tramp, and has now morphed into a light-hearted power fantasy in which we enter the corporate dystopia we're all looking forward to living in pretty fucking soon, and imagine that our smartphones essentially function like the magic TV remote from the movie Click. This time, jolly old London is stricken by a major terrorist bombing and is swiftly transformed into horrible new London by a cabal of evil power brokers while the blame is placed on the local branch of the DedSec hacktivist group. With the city under the boot heel of an oppressive militia, it's up to DedSec's last remaining member and a hyper-intelligent AI with, I must say, quite remarkably well-punched-up dialogue to recruit a new DedSec from the restless population and help the people of London get back to their natural state of football violence and faintly smug attitudes. Watch Dogs Legion has a significant gameplay gimmick, and by Christ does a Ubisoft sandbox need one of those fucking three-dimensional clouds of busy work that they are, that you can recruit and then play as any NPC in the game. If you want, you can build a new DedSec consisting entirely of elderly women, or enemy soldiers if you feel like putting the time in, or everyone with facial hair reminiscent of my old media studies teacher. On top of that, every NPC has their own agenda and has associations with other NPCs, so someone might get harder to win over because you flattened their Auntie Mavis between a bridge support and an ice cream van. As gimmicks go, I would describe it as courageous, the same way I'd describe someone trying to teach a room full of cats how to unicycle, because it means the game is going to be precariously perched on a very complex network of interlocking systems and that's probably why the AI bugs out so much. You can shake off pursuing cops by running through the gap between a fence post and a crisp packet and leave them vibrating in rage at your uncanny parkour skills. Also, while it ties in nicely with the message that everyone has the power to resist oppression, Rosa Parks, the Tiananmen Square bloke, that one pig who selflessly let David Cameron stick his knob in its head, and much as the main characters of the last two games both had knobs for heads in subtly different ways, the story does suffer from its lack of a specific protagonist with a central arc or direct connection to proceedings. It makes all the story moments feel a bit detached, I suppose. So you have uncovered my sinister plan, insert name here. No matter, I have a general sense that you can't stop me. It's painfully obvious that all your current characters' dialogue lines were recorded out of context, so the mixing and tone of voice usually feels weirdly off-kilter with the rest of the scene. And what certainly doesn't help is that there seems to be no setting for accents in this game besides cartoonishly broad. It's like listening to a Mary Poppins-era Dick Van Dyke doing a one-man table read for an episode of Captain Planet. But every NPC having different skills and weapons and specialties surely makes for interesting gameplay at least, oink oink. Well here's the thing, passing decapitated pig. For the vast majority of missions, it doesn't matter who you're playing as. Police officer, ice cream man, goldfish in a bowl on a skateboard. Because all of them can be equipped with a spider droid, and this game might as well have been called Watch Dogs Just Use the Fucking Spider Droid. The spider droid is fast, agile, hard to spot, and it can open doors, take down enemies, pick up collectibles, hack most systems, play audiobooks, dice vegetables, and in short can do everything a human can do, with the significant exception of die. Even if the enemies spot it and blow it up and start hunting around for its controller. As long as you're outside the building, you can stand in front of their windows with two middle fingers up and your knob pressed against the glass, and they won't do shit. So if you're the sort of person who just wants to beat the game's challenges as efficiently as possible, there's not much point in recruiting a range of talents, because everyone's equally talented at being a spider droid delivery system. In Ubisoft Sandbox tradition, every mission has a range of different approaches, usually meaning you can stealth it up or shoot it up, but there's always at least one method that makes things completely fucking trivial. Most of the time it's the spider droid, but I guess if you recruit one dude with an assault rifle for the occasional forced combat section, and one construction worker who can spawn a rideable cargo drone, who can drone straight onto the objective, grab it and drone straight out again, with two middle fingers up and buttocks mockingly exposed, that's pretty much all you need. And while I suppose it's somewhat entertaining to completely woody woodpecker the enemy and watch them shake their impotent fists at your detrousered undercarriage wiggling its way over the horizon, if you're after a challenge, it's as satisfying as winning a game of air hockey against a packet of Jaffa cakes. Nevertheless, I do think there's a lot of fun to be had with Watch Dogs Legion, it's just that a lot of it might be at the game's expense. Its expansive array of systems and dodgy AI mean that it's got a lot of potential for finding your own entertainment, probably more so than most Ubisoft sandboxes. As I said, the lack of strong characterization does hurt the story. I mean, I'm pretty sure most real people would respond to complete strangers asking them to join their best friends, no oppressive regimes allowed, treehouse club, with either bafflement or a face full of commercial 
single grade pepper spray, but it does mean it's easier to amuse yourself by making up your own stories for your characters. The game forces you to recruit a construction worker as part of the tutorial, and I ended up using that dude to complete the final mission because fuck. From token member hired only because we wanted to play on his rideable drone to champion of the resistance, this dude's had a motherfucking arc. Also, for the sake of extra challenge, I decided that he refuses to use any form of transport other than riding on top of double-decker buses because of a childhood trauma involving a model train set and a crab. Also, he strictly avoids violence while on missions because the sight of blood reminds him of Cheltenham FC, and when combat is required, he defers to his teammate, Crazy Mildred, the elderly nailgun murderer, who has to knock down every lamppost she sees to raise awareness of child leukemia, and who wears a really stupid hat. So you remember that Dark Pictures Man of Medan thing that Supermassive Games burped out, and how they were threatening to make it a full-on horror anthology series? Well, apparently their demands weren't met, so they've been forced to inflict another one upon us. Supermassive Games should not be confused with Supergiant Games. I know they mean the same thing, but Supergiant Games makes interesting games that push the boundaries of the interactive storytelling medium, and Supermassive Games makes interactive movies. A phrase which for me remains almost as foreboding as, hey, is your nuclear reactor supposed to be doing that? And for some reason, they always star one and only one TV actor who just barely enters the threshold of celebrity. Last time it was the dude from Quantum Break with the fat face, this time it's, uh, well you know that meme, the four panel one where the dude at the end says you guys are getting paid? It's that dude. What, the bloke with the face like a toddler who just smells something weird? That's the one! Anyway, the new Dark Pictures episode is called Little Hope, which funnily enough is also what Supermassive Games have for getting the promised eight game series out of this tosh before interest dries up. The story begins with a vehicle on its way to a small American town crashing after it swerves to miss a mysterious dark haired girl who appears in the middle of the road, whereupon the survivors of the crash go looking for someone who's missing and end up in a weird foggy version of the town, full of twisted monsters representing- wait a minute, this is just Silent Hill. Well at Silent Hill if instead of exploration and combat and masterfully crafted atmosphere you just got tied to a length of rope and dragged through a linear sequence of events, and if instead of Silent Hill it was called Five Abrasive Dipshits Who Never Shut The Fuck Up. Hill. Still, I suppose I can't fault them for their choice of influence. Man of Medan seemed to have been mainly influenced by Scooby-Doo versus the Ghost Pirates. After the crash, we then go through a second prologue sequence set in the 70s in which a family with hilarious retro haircuts all die in a house fire. Well, undeniably hilarious as those retro haircuts were, game, why did you show me that? Oh no reason, right back to the bus crash and scary town. Well, I suppose now we know that just like Man of Medan there's gonna be some reveal at the end of all this that ties everything together, and just like Man of Medan it will probably make the whole game feel like a complete waste of fucking time. And without wishing to spoil just yet, that's very much the case. But Man of Medan had a better sense of escalation. First you're on a boat, then you go diving, then pirates show up, then you go to the ghost ship. We start wanting to smack Sean Ashmore's character around the head with increasingly large and heavy blunt objects. It fell apart after you go on the ghost ship because it just becomes a sequence of disconnected set pieces as the characters randomly drift around on a wonderful jump scare safari, failing to advance the plot or any character arcs for about two hours. Little Hope's main issue is that it starts at the ghost ship. Or ghost town, in this case. Almost every chapter is basically the same. Our heroes blunder aimlessly through the fog, find some kind of building or location where something creepy happens, then blunder aimlessly out again. It's like watching blind puppies searching for a nipple on a shag pile carpet. You could put the chapters in random order and have precisely the same sense of plot development. That is to say, fuck all. And continuing the Supermassive Games tradition, I hate all the characters. The facial animation is having serious problems finding the exit ramp from the uncanny valley, especially with young man who isn't weird smell toddler face young man, who looks like he's getting slapped in the mush with a trout every time the camera's off him. Besides those two, the cast are rounded out by older professor man who thinks the best way to exert authority is to constantly do a Jack Nicholson impression, young student lady whose main role in the plot I think was to loudly disagree with whatever the previous speaker said, and older student lady who hasn't even reset her splintered bones from the opening bus crash before she starts getting catty about young student lady. So even if you did direct them to the exit ramp from the uncanny valley, I feel like they'd just argue over what lane to be in until they crash into a concrete divider and then argue over whose intestines are whose. Mind you, it's actually hard to get a feel for the characters since as before, the branching nature of the plot means their personalities change from one shot to the next, as well as their emotional states and physical positions, and the fact that the one being controlled by the player keeps switching 
certainly exacerbates that. And the other reason it's hard to judge their characterization is because 90% of the dialogue is some variation on the phrase, we have to find a way out of here. Blunder through fog, find a building, get inside, let's find a way out of here. Then why did you come in here, dipshits? At least sign the fucking guest book. I think I figured out my problem with this whole style of game, besides the terrible characters and bizarre editing. It's that despite being in control, I don't feel like I'm contributing, if that makes sense. There's this loose notion that our goal is either to keep everyone alive, or make them all dead, or keep only the ones you like alive and imagine them blowing things off to go party in Atlantic City or something, but whether or not our decisions will lead towards our chosen goal seems to be completely impossible to predict or intuit, and failing one of the action quicktime events only seems to have consequences about half the time as well. I feel like I might as well have just lined everyone up and played Russian Roulette five times, then take a long lunch and brush the dog. Well, I'm being unfair. The game does stumblingly create a certain amount of intrigue between mysterious flashbacks to the past and intense monster encounters, just a shame all of it gets squashed by the big reveal, like kindergarten chairs under the arse of a morbidly obese parent. So let's talk about the end. Ding. Can I offer a suggestion, Supermassive? How about, for the third Dark Pictures episode, you make the plot twist something other than it was all a hallucination? Maybe don't kill any desire I have to replay it after it turns out 90% of the characters we're trying to keep alive aren't fucking real! That Crypt Keeper narrated dude was being all like, ah, but remember that the truth might not always be as it seems, and I was like, oh fuck, it's hallucinations again, isn't it? Maybe I've misunderstood, maybe every episode will be hallucinations and the mystery is figuring out what's causing them each time. In Man of Medan it was gas, in Little Hope it's survivor's guilt, and next time it'll be, I don't know, someone drew penises all over the main character's contact lenses. My latest novel, Will Destroy the Galaxy for Cash, has been out on audiobook for ages, yes, but now the print and ebook versions are available from all good retailers, courtesy of Dark Horse Books. All the same words, but now you get to know how all the names are spelled. Ah, Vikings. Who doesn't like Vikings? English monasteries. Oh right. Anyone who's ever been forced to listen to Norwegian black metal? Yes, thank you. The point was, in the games industry it seems to be only a matter of time before you go full Viking. God of War did it, Assassin's Creed are doing it. That new Elden Ring thing that From Software are doing isn't strictly full Viking, I know, but it's definitely giving it some funny looks. Fair play to Assassin's Creed, it held out longer than a lot of series would. I mean, it did the fucking American War for Independence before it did Vikings. That's like forcing yourself to eat all the party napkins before you can have any of the birthday cake. But there's no putting off going full Viking forever as one of the points on the graph. Ninjas, pirates, Vikings. And I guess maybe cowboys. Hey, is that a Ubisoft drone? Oh shit, it's taking notes. Sorry everyone, don't know how they keep getting in here. If they announce Assassin's Creed Deadwood next year, I guess you can all blame me. Anyway, Vikings and Norse mythology have always been fairly prevalent in the world of video games. Not sure why, maybe it's because it hits all the right notes. It's not just that we get to cleave motherfuckers in twain for looking at us funny, is that we can do it with a silly accent and a nice beard. So everyone piles into the fun bus to enjoy some cleaving in twain, but Ubisoft, who let's not mince words, are all over the fucking place these days, stands in front of the fun bus to go, ooh don't forget, the Vikings were a nuanced people who also did a lot of trading and colonising when they weren't cleaving stuff in twain, historical accuracy, this game was developed by a multicultural team of extremely large beards and all that, and I can't help feeling there's a bit of wanting to have one's roast boar and eat it going on here, as we and our group of hairy tattooed raiders run up to an English monastery to smash all the windows and set fire to everyone's pubes, and then a monk gets caught in the melee between me and the poorly equipped Sanctum bodyguard who was just trying to do his job, and the game goes, whoops, don't kill civilians or you'll desynchronize. The implication being that killing innocent monks is in some way out of character for someone who is, at that precise moment, pillaging a monastery. But let's wind back a little. The plot of Assassin's Creed Valhalla concerns Eivor, a Norwegian warrior whose parents are killed by another Norwegian warrior, but who gets revenge before the prologue is over, which, much like most of the beards involved, leaves things at a bit of a loose end. For want of something to do, and in the wake of Norway being peacefully united under Harald Fairhair towards the end of the first millennium and becoming all lame and non 
murdery, Eivor decides to sail to medieval England to start a new life, this being probably the only era in history where people went to England to make their lives more interesting. Most other times that's like going to the Arctic Circle for the beaches. But fate has more in store for Eivor, as for some reason a couple of weird dogmatic fellas with hooded robes and a slight finger deficiency are hitching a ride. Let the record now show that while the Order of Assassins normally reserved their trademark hidden blades for the actual sworn-in devotees to their cause, it seems they also occasionally pass them out to randoms, if they seem even vaguely into the whole freedom of oppression thing, or if they just got dragged along to someone's party and forgot to bring a gift, because I can't imagine these assassins not feeling a little awkward after the monastery pillaging starts in earnest. So we have the second Ubisoft sandbox in as many weeks to be set in England. I guess we're making the most of it before Brexit really kicks in and the British government starts selling off national monuments for bread. But while Assassin's Creed Valhalla seems to be a lot stabler than Watch Dogs Legion and my PC runs it without me having to constantly hold a sick bag in front of the vents, it's also a lot less interesting to talk about. Without a unique selling point like NPC recruitment, it's just another Ubisoft Jiminy Cockthroat, another to-do list of samey stealth action missions with crafting and collectibles. While riding over the green hills of Merry England at one point I suddenly realised that I could switch to Ghosted Tsushima at this moment and probably not fucking notice if it weren't for the main character suddenly wearing a much more interesting hat. There's still the bird scouting and the RPG elements from the last two games but it's a little closer in spirit to the Assassin's Creed 2 era since you've got a home village to pour resources into and a bit more of a story focus. But who the fuck cares? It's just another point on the line graph. Another shake of the bag full of the same shit. The only thing that really marks it out is that instead of the climbing all over elaborately realised cathedrals and palaces we got in previous games, you're leaping across mud huts and wattling and 15 copy-pasted examples of the same Viking longhouse. Because it's the fucking Dark Ages, and they missed a trick by still having us jump into piles of straw and leaves, when it would have been much more authentic to replace them with gigantic piles of shit. I guess Ubisoft thought that might have been a little uncomfortably representative of the company's trajectory over the years. The initial spark of getting to play a burly Viking can't be sustained through the subsequent 40 hours of trudging through mud and dealing with political squabbles between people dressed in earth tones in the name of Assassin's Creed's trademark historical accuracy. I was getting sniffy about the ethical ramifications of monastery pillaging earlier, but if anything the game should have leaned more into that. Let us tear shit up, swinging a giant fucketh off hammer as our muscles bulge like mating walruses, and seduce all the hot monk chicks away from their inadequate monk boyfriends. It's this trying to hit all the points at once thing that muddles the tone, trying to make out like we're some kind of freedom fighter while we laughingly set all the pigsties ablaze, and hunt down the usual laundry list of Templars that we are assured are evil but who seem to be mostly minding their own fucking business. There's an RPG skill tree split between melee ranged or stealth focused builds but you have to do all three at various times so there's not much point in specialising. There isn't really a stealthy way to raid a monastery. I try floating the idea to my raiding party while we're all sprinting up to the gate waving axes but turns out it's hard to talk with your shield between your teeth. And there's the longboat because having your own ship has ticked enough boxes in previous Assassin's Creed games to keep bringing back but lacking in need for ocean travel it's just there for moving quickly along rivers and there's no boat combat unless you notice a particularly antisocial looking frog. So that's Assassin's Creed Valhalla, noteworthy only for its extreme unnoteworthiness. What a dull way to end the video. Here's a picture of a leopard in a scarf. Huh, that's odd. Records seem to indicate that a new console generation began at some point in the last few weeks, and yet mysteriously, I don't seem to care. I just double-checked, and yes, I'm still mostly just feeling the usual blend of boredom and alcohol-saturated dread. Sorry, Sony and Microsoft, this doesn't usually happen to me. Maybe I'd get in the mood if the two of you make out while I watch, but you know, it does kind of feel like absolutely fuck all has changed. But hey, there hasn't been a single console in all of gaming history that wouldn't have benefited from holding out its release for six months or so. Maybe I'll feel differently once I actually have access to a PS5 and the console doesn't exist merely as a glint in an eBay scalper's eye. Sony's gonna have to do a lot fucking better than a remake of an 11 year old game and an expansion pack sequel if it wants my shiny purple helmets to rise out of the trenches of no man's land, especially since one of them came out on PS4 as well. Sony, I'm not gonna date your spoiled overweight daughter just because your house has a new pool. Your older, more experienced daughter can let me into the pool as well, and she still has my credit cards. But anyway, I guess we shouldn't say expansion pack sequel anymore, that's an old term from back when PC games were sold in cereal boxes and life was good and children still recognised the sound of joyful laughter. I guess the kids might say DLC sequel these days in between quoting memes and picking up the pieces of our broken civilization. A DLC sequel is one that mostly feels 
feels like the last game, but a bit more of it. Some might say unavoidable in the case of a sequel to Disney's Marvel's etc. Spider-Man. I mean, obviously it's going to be in the same New York sandbox, Spider-Man's not holidaying in Cardiff anytime soon, and obviously you're going to be playing as Spider-Man again. Hopefully we learned our lesson last time that not playing as Spider-Man in the Spider-Man game is like throwing away the condom and sticking the wrapper on your cock. But wait, Yati Crowshaw, you snake in the sock drawer. You don't play as the original Spider-Man in this game, you play as Miles Morales. Did you accidentally cover up the title with spit when all the racial diversity sent you into fits of conservative rage? Look at it this way, obviously baiting viewer. Spider-Man is about a nerdy teenager who likes science and is a good boy who gets spider powers and a dead father figure and has to balance vigilante heroics with their troublesome personal life. Absolutely, bugger all has changed. I know Miles Morales is an established character in the comics because comic nerds will only tolerate permanent change when it isn't a fucking change at all. Peter Parker takes under his wing a freshly spider-powered up Miles Morales and swiftly forces him to use the same code name and wear the same outfit, which, let's be blunt, is a bit weird and narcissistic and not a little gatekeepery. Peter Parker goes on his holidays and leaves his new mini-me to defend the city alone, but Miles finally proves worthy of Peter's crusty Spider-Man pyjamas when half the people he knows turn out to be supervillains. Turns out you can only make it as a supervillain in New York if you've been to at least three of Spider-Man's birthday parties. Nepotism, I call it. These days, Spider-Man probably gets more thrown if supervillains don't turn out to be someone he knows. He wrestles them to the ground and the mask falls off and he goes, No, it can't be! I have no idea who you are! It's tempting at this point to say, if you liked the last Insomniac game Spider-Man you'll like this because it's more of it, call it a review and go back to alphabetizing my cum socks, but that would probably lead to the question of what specific parts of the original Spider-Man this is more of. Because like an ill-prepared orgasm, original Spider-Man was all over the place, with swinging and stealth and combat and collectibles and science minigames and puzzles, and that afore hinted at business where Spider-Man takes five every now and again, you have to play as his fucking roommate, trying to knock out a crafty one without the squeaky bed springs alerting a guard. Well, obviously the swinging is back, as well as the combat and stealth, but where the last game had a tendency to reward you for getting through stealth sections undetected by spawning a bunch more enemies you're forced to fight head on, the way a retail manager rewards their most diligent employee by giving them the closing shift every fucking night, Miles Morales tends not to do that so much, and even when it does, Miles has a new cloaking power that allows him to turn the combat situations back into stealth challenges, which, like a butcher's end-of-day clearance sale, does rather lower the stakes. When you can smash the cloak button at any point, piss off, and wait for the usual collective brain aneurysm that makes all the baddies split up to go look for you. You hardly even fucking need stealth at that point, smash a dude into a drum kit with a howler monkey in front of seven of his mates. Who cares, we can fucking cloak! One of the characteristics of DLC sequel is that all the new mechanics and abilities don't so much put a new twist on gameplay as make it easier, and that's precisely the issue with the cloak, not to mention the new electricity powers you can use in combat. If you punch dudes a load of times for example, you build up your enthusiasm for punches meter, which enables you to do the super spicy punch, which is like a punch but more so. And there's a couple of different super spicy punch powers that can also be used in traversal mode to gain height or speed, but then you run out of enthusiasm for punches and have to stop and punch some things before you can do them again. There isn't so much of those science minigames or roommate masturbation sections, there are some environmental puzzles based around finding the right line of sight to start flicking webs around but they integrate a bit better with the core mechanics. It's certainly less bloated than the last game. Funny that, putting less stuff in something makes it seem like there's not as much stuff in it. So you can call Miles Morales a lesser game, or you could call it a more streamlined one if you feel like defending a massive corporate franchise that will never care about you or know your name. I'd say we're still having trouble figuring out how to get the most out of the unique Spider-Man traversal mechanics instead of just shrugging and spawning more generic thugs to beat up. Take a mission to get a cat down from a tree and chances are you'll find a pack of generic thugs among the branches scrumping for apples. There's like one plot mission where you have to chase the main villain through the city that makes the most of the swinging mechanics and it's really fucking annoying because the game fails you on the spot if you drift six inches away from the intended route. It's like trying to locate a vagina in a pitch black bedroom and getting clipped around the ear every time you accidentally fuck the throw pillows. Yakuza like a dragon probably shouldn't be read as a complete sentence. Don't Yakuza like a dragon, dragons aren't very good at Yakuza-ing. They intimidate easily enough but their terrifying claws are bad at holding the protection money. No, this is actually the second game of an emerging trend where the western and Japanese titles for a Japanese franchise are combined into one title. See also Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, possibly part of a cunning ploy to claim dual citizenship after western society collapses. Anyway, Like a Dragon is part of the potentially ill-advised 
continuation of the Yakuza franchise after the stepping down of its lead character, Kazuma Kiryu, the man with a face like a granite paving slab and about the same durability. As was Judgment, but where Judgment failed because the main character was a size 10 twat in size 9 jeans, Like a Dragon succeeds by making the main character a somehow even bigger twat. But in a lovable way, importantly, not in a gelled his hair into spikes and dates high schoolers way. Our subject is Ichiban Kasuga, a Yakuza enforcer who was recruited on opposite day and spends most of their time handing out free money to people, and beating the snot out of other professional criminals for committing crimes. But fate turns on Ichiban when he has to take the rap for a shooting to preserve his mentor stroke father figure's honour and returns to Kamurocho after a long prison sentence to get to the bottom of his betrayal. Now wait just a minute, Yati moustache contaminating Croshaw, wasn't Kazuma Kiryu in the first game also an opposite day Yakuza, who also took the rap for a shooting to preserve someone's honour, and also returned after a long prison sentence to etc? Yes, and believe me, I had no small amount of concern for Yakuza like a rolling stone before I started. The story seemed to be treading enough old ground to irritate all the world's archaeologists, and then there was the reveal that it was going to have turn-based combat. And if there's any franchise where the combat has never needed any drastic fixes, it's Yakuza, the games that routinely cut from grown men making understated threats to each other with very serious faces, to those same grown men twatting the absolute three-bean salad out of each other with benches, traffic cones, and passing old ladies. But then I played the game and my doubts were put to rest. I mean, the main story is definitely treading old ground, but then most Yakuza main stories do. Mysterious betrayal, hero comes to the aid of victimised innocent, discovers sinister scheme to take over Japan, orchestrates by evil men in suits, strong themes of fatherhood and brotherhood, and then everyone takes their shirts off and twats each other with benches. That's every Yakuza game. But the main plot is rarely the interesting part, and that aspect of Yakuza like a G6 takes a back seat just a short eight or nine hours into the game when the prologue finally ends, and Ichiban finds himself cast out of Kamurocho and homeless on the streets of Yokohama. From there, the established plot is forgotten for a huge chunk of the runtime, and we become a sort of rags-to-riches story as Ichiban gathers a party of fellow deadbeats to do odd jobs that somehow all end up connecting to one of the local crime gangs. They can't fucking sell Girl Scout cookies door-to-door -door without it turning out that a rival trooper in deep with Colombian drug cartels. And while Ichibum is an ass-kicking Yakuza who wears disco suits, he's got a character of his own distinct from Kazuma Kiryu, mainly because he doesn't emote like a print of American Gothic glued to a cast-iron fridge. He's excitable, he's optimistic, he's a goofball, he's likeable enough to pull you along on his journey, and the turn-based combat works because it's tied to his characterization as a fantasist imagining himself as a Dragon's Quest hero. Oh, like a dragon, I just got that. Combat also has enough of that Persona 5 energy about it to keep the pace up. It also reminds me of Earthbound for some reason, possibly from the way I can dress my homeless friend like a chef and tell him to twat people with a frying pan. But while stylish, the combat feels a bit mechanically lacking. Strategy only really comes into play when using abilities that hit multiple grouped together enemies, and every participant of the fight is constantly shifting randomly around like crabs busting for a piss. So after you select a dude to be the centre of your breakdancer's windmill attack, by the time your dude runs up to that dude, chances are good all the other dudes around him will have fucked off to do a little window shopping. And I'd say the combat is definitely wearing out its welcome when you're still being constantly pulled into random fights on the streets of Yokohama with low-level dudes, long past the point that they can be dispatched in one punch or half an expertly timed fart. On the whole, though, it does its job of pasting all the bits together. It's not quite engaging enough to make me want to do the dungeon-crawling side activity, but I was never one of the kids who liked eating paste. In the usual way of Yakuza games, it's the side stuff that's the real tea and biscuits. I mean, just to repeat myself, fuck the critical path. The critical path is the place where we occasionally have to stand in a room for ten minutes while an old man in a suit verbally explains the plot. Let's just assume it ends with someone taking their shirt off and getting punched on a rooftop and get back to sniffing out those mini-games and side activities. Don't worry, once the nine-hour prologue is over, it only takes roughly seven or eight more decades to unlock them all. It's a strong showing across the board. There are a couple of driving minigames, in case Ichiban gets bored of Dragon Quest and wants to plug in Mario Kart for a bit. There's a creative little minigame centred around Ichiban struggling to stay awake while watching a movie that made me laugh, and which this time of year a lot of you young people might call Mood AF. But the most elaborate side activity is the business management sim. At one point Ichiban becomes the president of a corporation because someone looks at your unemployed homeless ex-yak as a protagonist and says, this person seems trustworthy and good with money, and must manage the funding and staff placement of several businesses day to day. I found it weirdly absorbing. It's dynamic, it's goal-oriented, it's got a little 8-bit sprite of Ichiban running along symbolically collecting money. I did fail the shareholders meeting minigame at first because the mechanics are very poor 
poorly explained, but I'm mainly bringing that up just because I love the phrase shareholders meeting minigame. For me, Yakuza Like Like You Know is a thumbs up. I thought the series was pretty thoroughly wrung out, but with a likeable protagonist and a bit more of a lean into the usual wackiness, it has successfully charmed the nurses into keeping the life support machine plugged in. Every Yakuza game is basically a loose box of disconnected toys, but for the record, this is a particularly nice box with some choice toys, like Legos and Masters of the Universe and none of your Tickle Me Elmo dog shit. Truly good and original games are like the itchy spots you get from a venereal disease. A product of love that's satisfying to scratch, yes, but soon there'll be a lot more of the buggers, and none of them will be as interesting as the first. Case in point, Breath of the Wild. Ooh, we like this game, we said to the soulless Daleks that run the games industry. We think it's atmospheric and mechanically intricate and offers a bold new take on the interactive narrative experience. Also, it made a lot of money. Replicate! Replicate! Regurgitate! But obviously you can't just knock out something as expansive as Breath of the Wild on evenings and weekends in between fistfuls of amphetamines, so the imitators are only just now trickling out. Like Genshin Impact, Breath of the Wild but anime. I know Breath of the Wild was already pretty anime, but you know what I mean. There is anime and then there is capital A anime. The kind of thing that's all pastel colours and jiggle physics and all the characters dressed like they got caught in a head-on collision between a truck full of random armour parts and a truck full of lace doilies. And we also have today's subject, Ubisoft's contribution to the new like Breath of the Wild butt subgenre? Immortals Phoenix Rising. What's the strategy here, guys? Hey, if we give our game the worst title in the history of anything, maybe the rest of the game will look good by comparison. Good thinking! Now are there any I's in the name we can replace with Y's? Immortals Vomit Rising is a fantasy open world hack and slash collectathon where you can pursue your objectives in any order and free climb anywhere as long as you've got enough energy drinks. So yeah, it's the faintly sinister, cheaply made knockoff of a Disney film, hoping to sucker in a few elderly relatives in time for Christmas. But how, you might ask, could any game replicate Breath of the Wild without the backing of decades of heritage like what Zelda has, the eternal Link Zelda Ganondorf monomyth. Well, said Ubisoft, can't get much more monomyth than actual myth, can you? So obviously they went to the free idea bucket again and just made another fucking game about Greek mythology. Only in this case you're trying to bring back the Greek gods who've all been put out of commission by the big baddie in what's academically termed a reverse Kratos. The Titan Typhon gets loose, turns humanity to stone and lets all the monsters out for afternoon play and our protagonist Phoenix, no relation to Marcus, must prove their worth as a warrior and save four of the Greek gods so that they can help you kick Typhon in the tighty whities Boy, I wish I could list all the original ideas that went into Immortals bile churning, but I fear I might never start. The last desperate Hail Mary attempt to establish at least some kind of fucking identity for itself is the open quotes funny dialogue, wherein all the characters communicate entirely in sassy quips. There's a narrative device where Prometheus is recounting the story of the game to Zeus, so every now and again they'll comment on your actions like Statler and fucking Waldorf, and it's like they're auditioning for How I Met Your Mother Classical Antiquity Edition. Leaving aside the fact that the quips are as funny as an Ebola outbreak at a rescue shelter, every cutscene is lent an awkwardness of tone, probably from the way the characters seem to pause after every line, to wait for the canned laughter to die down. Alright, we get it, Priscilla Queen of the snooty internet piss grumps, you're sniffy about any attempted humour that doesn't fully bisect your sides. We know that, how does the game actually play? Well, like Breath of the Wild mainly, with a few significant divergences. You remember how Breath of the Wild was restrained about populating its world to lend an atmospheric sense of wide open wilderness? Well, Ubisoft couldn't fight their usual instincts to splatter icons across the map, like saliva droplets across a Fortnite player's headset mic. Also, remember how in B of the Wii we'd stand on lookout towers and find places to go to by looking for them with our eyeballs, like how looking for things in reality works? Well, Immortals Violent Diarrhea doesn't have the sterling visual design to pull that off, so instead you have to systematically move your cursor over a load of seemingly empty landscape, waiting for the little sensor to go widdly-wee, at which point another icon gets added to the map like a cornflake in the beard of an ill-fated first date, and there are so many fucking icons to find from any given location that this process is incredibly tedious. Standing there slowly rotating like a car park security camera, checking off every random chest and collectible and adding it to your little notebook until you're thinking, this is a fucking day job. I am cataloguing. I am validating data. I am a train spot 
water in the middle of a loading depot. So we forget about all that, run back down the mountain and get into some combat instead, which is pretty generic and not terribly hard when you have the basics down. The parry window is roughly the length of an episode of the Great British Bake Off. The only X factor is making sure you craft enough attack power upgrades with your various multicoloured crystal meth supplies to keep up when the baddies' health bars start getting long enough that they have to book two seats when they go on commercial flights. There's some of that systems exploitation that Breath of the Wild had, where you can try to kill enemies in roundabout ways with physics objects or other enemies' attacks, but we also lack Breath of the Wild's weapon degradation, so there's not a lot of point in finding workarounds when very little is as effective or convenient as just stabbing dudes in the bum. There's also not much point in going out of our way to collect new weapons and armour, since they're all functionally identical but with slightly different bonus effects. In fact, there's not a whole lot of point in doing anything, is there? Why are you brushing your teeth? You're just gonna die or catch fire at some point, and the worms in the ground won't care. Wait, was I talking about a video game? Oh yes, in Breath of the Wild I felt like I went to the final boss because I'd finally built myself up enough to be ready. In Immortals Penis Softening I did so because I felt like I had nothing better to do, with the story missions done and everything else doing little more than adding to the clutter in my wardrobe. There's something terribly dispassionate about the game, what with its utter void of original ideas, the constant idle quipping making every character seem like they're more interested in the contents of their nasal cavities than they are about the ongoing world-destroying plot. The risk with making all your dialogue snarky and self-effacing is that the audience might end up agreeing with your self-effacement. I'm also iffy about the eventual message of the plot essentially being the all-powerful beings that run your life might be fickle, self-centred and dangerously incompetent, but hey, they own you either way so you might as well like it. Coming from a corporate publisher it seems a bit uncomfortably on the nose. Ubisoft, between this and monastery pillaging in Assassin's Creed, do you have anyone left there who knows anything about human emotion? Sure we do. Um, it was a song by Smokey Robinson, wasn't it? Hey kids, what starts with Sir ends in punk and has been splashed onto the computer screens of lonely single gamers the world over. That's right, cyberpunk, the hot new immersive sim conveniently if unimaginatively named after its genre. The genre of choice for people who hate capitalism but love looking like a member of Dead or Alive after they stepped on a landmine. I say immersive sim, I feel that description hinges on the game being in some way immersive. I was playing the Steam version, which might more accurately be termed a buggier than a party sub that got left on the floor of a motel bathroom. Sim. The bugs were ceaseless, mostly non-game breaking and animation fuckups and voice lines not playing, but every now and again I'd have to reload a save because I accidentally crossed a cutscene trigger while grabbing an enemy and I'd come back from the loading screen with my head jammed up their ass, like the result of some Cronenberg-esque teleportation accident. It's a shame because when I looked up at the dizzying neon towers of Night City and the crowds of NPCs where no two are the same and they're all uniquely dressed in some way like a cross between a character from Lazy Town and a Cenobite, I thought to myself, man this game would probably be really immersive if my trousers hadn't just turned invisible again. But as you know, I hate to harp on a game having bugs these days when the developers might eventually patch them all out, in this case given I'd estimate about 10 years and an industrial quantity of crab shampoo. Let's focus on the stuff the game meant to do, like the lovely titties and the working its developers half to death. Cyberpunk is set in the high-tech dystopian sprawl of Night City, and it's still called that during the day, which strikes me as a bit of an oversight, and the main character is V, of Vendetta fame, a jobbing mercenary on a quest for the big time. After a heist on a Corpo stronghold goes cyber tits up, V finds themselves with six months to live and a piece of classified tech jammed in their bonds which makes them hallucinate the ghost of Keanu Reeves, who in this world was a legendary freedom fighter who died in a blaze of glory, sticking it to the man, and was also a hard-drinking rock guitarist that everyone wanted to fuck and probably had a really big knob. Bit laughable really, it's like what used to happen whenever Gene Simmons got cast in a film and was given any amount of creative control. Honestly, Keanu Reeves seems a bit miscast as a dangerous super cool bad boy rocker, I tend to think of him as the human equivalent of an affectionate Labrador with slight facial paralysis. Anyway, V's task is to continue being a gigging mercenary while seeking a way to purge their brain of Keanu thoughts before their consciousness gets overwritten and they start seriously considering signing on to the The Day the Earth Stood Still remake. So Cyberpunk is an immersive RPG with an emphasis on the RP part of the G, where you must balance your status 
stats and perks across ranged combat, melee combat, stealth and hacking gameplay. In my experience this wasn't so much about picking a specialisation as it was picking one thing to really suck at. By the end of my game I had high stats in everything except tech, so my V was a super strong gun-toting tank who was also a stealthy ninja, and a master hacker who could insta-kill a good amount of the enemies just by looking at them funny and thinking about it, but who was absolutely useless at mending DVD players. Even the non-facetious tech skills didn't seem terribly useful, like crafting. I didn't craft Jack fucking Thompson in this game, and still ended up with 50 spare health kits and more bullets than John Lennon's corpse. As I say though, this was by the end. Earlier on it was easier to be intimidated by the sheer depth of upgrades and unfriendly interface. Incidentally, if one more AAA game has me navigate its menus by moving a mouse pointer with the gamepad, I'm going to lock it in a basement and only feed it when it's caught a fly with a pair of lead salad tongs. The first time I opened the map and the visual space was crowded with icons like teenage boys around a hole in a shower room wall, I felt a little overwhelmed. But it turned out that much like the working class in the eyes of American politics, there's a lot of Cyberpunk 2077 that's really not worth worrying about. I was baffled as to why the map has a special icon for food vendors, there's no hunger meter, and as I said I was cleaning health kits out of my armpits, why the fuck would I want to buy food? Is it just for the people who want to roleplay as Michelin travel guide writers? And I was initially impressed by the vast range of perks and cyber enhancement slots available for building your character, but after a certain point a lot of those didn't offer enough benefit to be worth a bother either. Would you like a robot foot with plus 5% defence against Verrucas? Well I do hate wearing a rubber sock at the swimming pool, so hacking off a limb does sound like a perfectly level-headed alternative. Better move on, looks like I've hit the backhanded compliment layer of this review trifle. Cyberspooge1969 is well written enough. The way it structures its story around V's personal struggles gives us a strong focus, while the background details subtly trickle in the necessary exposition and world building, like a nice quiet room heater, but it's the little touches of atmosphere that make it for me. My favourite moments were when I'd finish a gig and find myself waiting for my summoned car on the side of the road in a bad part of town at night, the cars hurrying by, sirens in the distance, to my left a pack of neon punks daring each other to snort a line of aquarium gravel, and I'd think, man, this is really bringing back fond memories of trying to camp home from Fortitude Valley at one in the morning, until I'd notice one of the punks T-posing or Cronenberging with a vending machine and get pulled out again. Oh right, I'm just playing a video game that's about as stable as a relationship counsellor's waiting room in an earthquake test centre. I did wonder why CD Projekt Red only unlocked my review copy like the day before general release. I mean this thing had more hype than Michael Stipe, what were you afraid of lads? Some people getting turned off by the bug reports and the game only making 9 billion squillion dollars. Cyberpunk is barely holding itself together with all its content and disembodied organs of developers that were ritualistically sacrificed to it, and the end result is a game that could seriously benefit from some editing. For every well-designed open-ended mission with multiple approaches there's one that just forces you into combat, or ends anticlimactically because the target clipped through a bus shelter. So I'd say this is the AAA horse plop plop syndrome again, the result of too many people working on the game who were trying to look busy. Sure there's a theoretically nice plate of steak fries here, but it's partially buried in potato peelings, and I don't understand why you peeled so many more potatoes than you actually needed, nor why you literally enslaved a few people to get them all peeled in time. Also not to make a fuss, but I ordered a salad! It's the end of 2020 and I think I speak for everyone and their clenched sphincters when I say thank fuck that's over with. Let's hope in 2021 we can start rolling things back to the previous more stable state of hell on earth. We might have been living in constant fear of climate disaster and financial ruin under leaders that could barely display the minimum pretense of caring, but at least we could still hug our elderly relatives as they died gurgling on their flooded lungs. But let's not forget the most important thing, making sure that the beings that one day discover the ruins of our civilization are very clearly informed on which video games from this year I liked and which I didn't like, and which just sort of dropped straight through my my perception without leaving a mark, like a high fibre turd through an incontinent rectum. Yes, it's the five best, the five worst and the five blandest. The tiresome yearly ordeal that unlike Thanksgiving you can't use global pandemics to wriggle out of. 
This year, I coined the term Jiminy Cockthroat to refer to the gameplay style that every AAA game has now. Stealth action open world with crafting and collectibles, and probably that one mission where they take your stuff away and leave it on a table six feet from your cell in an astonishingly small bag. But it's a style that's overdone for a reason, so let's give one of them a prize. Ghost of Tsushima. I can't pronounce your name without spitting on the mic, but your art design's good, so you're officially the least shit. Have a stale biscuit. Fifth Blandest is a game that started disappointing right out of the gate with its terrible subtitle, and then took us on a veritable rollercoaster of disinterest. Amnesia Rebirth. The first Amnesia was a game that spawned a genre full of imitators, and all Rebirth seems to want to do is sit right in the middle of them, playing with its belly button. As any of the agencies currently tracking my movements will tell you, I do like weird things. I'd play a Christmas-themed felching simulator that only makes sense to the homeless meth addict with a shoe on his head who designed it, but it has to not run like gravel through a chocolate fountain, hence Deadly Premonition 2 being fifth worst. You're an odd little duck and I like you, Swery, but your amusing quacks can't keep you out of the hoisin sauce forever. <laughs> When audiences have been awaiting a new instalment of your historically significant shooter franchise for over a decade, finally releasing a new instalment in the middle of a global crisis exclusive to VR, and as such playable only by 12 rich people and their accountant, requires the sort of psychotic boldness that one can't help but respect. I for one enjoyed Half-Life Alex Valve, perhaps one day we'll all come and join you on your planet. I was going over some of my previous top 5 videos and thought, man, do I make a joke every single year about the inevitability of a Ubisoft sandbox being in the bland 5? You have to point these things out to me, guys. Most New Year's I'm too drunk to remember. What? Oh, any of them, it hardly matters. Immortals Phoenix Rising, there you go. Really shitty title and the exploration is about as exciting as combing nits out of your pubes. Fourth worst, narrowly missed out on consideration for the bland list because while the game is undeniably bland, the utter wrong-headedness behind its concept deserved extra credit. Minecraft Dungeons. It's Minecraft but with no mining and no crafting. Were there no six-year-olds around who could have explained the problem to you, Microsoft? Were they all too busy consulting for the Xbox marketing department? Things weren't looking too great for the Yakuza franchise with the last couple of sputtering installments, but Yakuza Like a Dragon turned it around with its fun characters and greater lean into the inherent silliness of the franchise. Yakuza has been running out of steam ever since the zombie spin-off, but I should have known the series couldn't even decline unless it's in an unnecessarily drawn-out and grandiose manner. Oh yeah, it's always the best part of this process, having to write something funny about the year's third most mediocre game. Which was Serious Sam 4! Once all the unnecessary story and skill tree bullshit flakes off, it's just another Serious Sam game, that's it. Something that ruled the roost back when retro-style boomer shooters weren't common, but I'm picking retro-style boomer shooters out of my cornflakes these days. God, is there anything worse than a bad game that thinks it's funny? Pustular psoriasis? Oh, maybe. The remaining two games on your list? Alright, rhetorical! It's Battletoads. Why stop at boring, poorly designed gameplay when you could also add hilarious prolonged comedy animations to make it slow, clunky and confusing as well? It's like trying to count ceiling tiles while a clown is sitting on your face. I just couldn't decide which of two games stood out the most in the ever overcrowded field of indie roguelikes. On the one hand, Hades, beautifully artistically crafted and all that, but on the other, BPM bullets per minute, just plain more fun, with a primary gameplay loop that makes me unconsciously dry hump my box ottoman. So fuck it, I'm squeezing them both into the two slot, because indie can also be short for indecisive. True greatness has often been found in the pursuit of the pointless. Climbing Mount Everest is ultimately pointless, and yet every year people kill themselves trying to do it. You too can get in touch with that spirit by playing The Dark Picture's Little Hope, because once you get through its disjointed quick-time event riddled story and discover that the whole endeavour was completely pointless, you too will want to kill yourself. 
It's remothered broken porcelain, the atrocious bug fest that's unpleasant not in a creepy horror way but more like that weird smelling kid at school who was caught licking the door to the girls' toilets. It was probably giving the game away to put broken right in the title, alongside a couple of other words placed together with all the care and thoughtfulness with which one pitches soiled underpants into a laundry basket. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit buggy and has a weak ending, but Spiritfarer is still the game I think most fondly of from this year. The lovely heartwarming cartoon adventure about how everyone you love is going to die. Appropriate for 2020, really. Your elderly relative might have died gurgling on their flooded lungs, but hey, life is a journey and death is coming home. Why not imagine them as a giant anthropomorphic toad and feed them fried chicken on a boat? Okay. There was a time when Marvel Comics getting a massive multi-film big-budget crossover universe would have been exciting, but now it's here and it's blown its load a few times over with generic supervillains and badly explained MacGuffins, it's hard to maintain enthusiasm. And the fact that Crystal Dynamics managed to take that and somehow make an even duller and more jaded version clearly deserves the top spot in the blandness list, and perhaps even a Lifetime Achievement Award for blandness, if they can be bothered to pick it up. I'm not trying to be contrarian, I genuinely can't think of a game that gave me a more miserable experience than The Last of Us 2. And here we fucking go. Ooh, look at Mr. Controversial Opinions. You think the Game Awards Game of the Year was actually the worst game ever, do ya? And you think all the people who think it's good are wrong, do ya? And you think the Game Awards have their noses shoved so far up AAA buttholes that they wouldn't notice a good game if it was speedbagging their testicles, do ya? And you're going to put all these views into the mouth of a notional third party in a weak attempt at creating deniability, are ya? You're gonna interrupt at some point? I wasn't, no.